It's been quite a year, a year of hot starts and egregious ends, of Nintendo bounce backs and EA face plants, of reading political news through the cracks between my fingers, but as always we can't call it a year until 15 of the games I reviewed have been arbitrarily compartmentalised for future reference by weirdos. Greetings, weirdos of the future. You must be feeling like you were born in the wrong era. If only I'd been around in 2017, you're thinking. I'd have been practically lionised for my inappropriate behaviour around women. My fifth best surprises even me. I thought a fucking typing tutor would get into my top five before a fucking JRPG did, but here we are. Perhaps it's all the ways Persona 5 distracts from it being a JRPG. The style, the soundtrack, the investment in likeable characters, the high school girls in vinyl catsuits sticking their bums in the air. Hey, weirdos of the future, have you elected a patron saint yet? Sorry to wound you, Volition, but be fair, you wounded me first. After the peerless Saints Row series, their next game was going to be one to watch, and while they clearly went into Agents of Mayhem full of energy and ideas, all they did to follow through on that was rotate their wrist for a while going blah 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 Hey, I get it, games industry. Dark Souls is hot spit on a cheerleader's lower back tattoo, so obviously you want to make games like it. And hey, no one had done Dark Souls in a science fiction setting, the opportunity was there. But sci-fi Dark Souls that's annoying and stupid and plays like you're trying to unjam a kid and draw was probably too much innovation all at once, wasn't it? The Surge. It's the Surge I'm talking about. It's Breath of the Wild. Yeah, fanboys, I'm putting it in at four. What are you going to do about it? You're going to cry? Ooh, mummy, call the police. He only moderately lavished it with praise. Bring me my coat that looks good from the back because I'm going to do some serious shunning. Yeah, whatever. It's fine. Organic looks nice. Plays well, even if the protagonist could be out charismaed by his fucking horse. If I were giving out Lifetime Achievement Awards for blandness, Bioware would definitely be a hot contender. Bland, obvious settings where bland characters blandly goldfish stare their way through bland dialogue and occasionally blandly knob each other in a sequence designed by someone with very bland ideas about sex scenes who couldn't get a job at Cinemax. But I digress. More like Mass Effect Blandrometer, am I right? As we all know, the greatest indictment of a horror game is not being particularly scary, especially if it compensates by instead trying to put me off my fucking dinner. Outlast 2 covered a wide spectrum of bad, bad gameplay, nonsensical plot, and you come away from it just feeling kind of gross, like I spent the afternoon at the old folks' home sitting opposite a very talkative man eating pickled beetroot from the jar. The Game Awards always does this thing where they pick one prominent indie game and give it a bunch of token noms they can quickly go back to noshing AAA todger. This year it was Cuphead, so while I'm slightly hesitant to heap further praise on it, it is unique and well-realised and monstrously hard so the man with the jar of pickled beetroot won't keep bugging you for his turn. I always feel slightly unqualified to criticise multiplayer focus shooters, which are after all intended to be bland and for people with friends, but I can't help feeling that the best possible result of enlisting friends to help you grind through Destiny 2 would be not having to pay for as many Christmas presents. Sorry you couldn't be higher in the list, but hey, there is something appealingly ironic about coming third in a mediocrity contest. Naughty Yahtzee, this game came out last year. I know, but I reviewed it this year, versions of it came out this year, and I really want to give it one more kick in the baubles before the holidays are over. Dead Rising 4. A stripped down, tarted up holiday special of a Dead Rising game with none of what makes Dead Rising good. Even alongside the mediocre Dead Rising 3, it resembles a dog turd in a bread bin. It was going to be this or Mario Odyssey, and giving it to Mario felt like writing a sports movie where the winner is the team that practiced more and had the most funding. Perhaps to be expected, but nonetheless unsatisfying. I don't love Mario like I love A Hat in Time. Mario merely meets expectations. A Hat in Time is a bit wobbly and not very long but it's fresh, it's surprising, it's charming, and it did it without needing a room full of sweatshop workers filing every last imperfection off Princess Peach's left bum cheek.
Well, it wouldn't be the Bland Five without a token Ubisoft sandbox, would it? And this year it's Ghost Recon Wildlands for its protracted adventures in going to the icon and shooting the thing. Not Assassin's Creed Origins, that gets to go alongside games like Prey and Horizon Zero Dawn in the category of not quite bland enough for the bland list, which I suppose some might argue makes them the blandest games of all. Sega really don't learn their lesson, do they? You can have all the great ideas in the world for fixing Sonic, but they are not but ash in the hands of Sonic Team themselves. Sonic Forces starts with the good ideas of a custom protagonist and plot curveball, but I guess something spooked Sonic Team and like a nervous badger, they darted back to their comfort zone of shitty characters, horrible physics, and masturbation. Yes, yes, Don't think I'm supporting the view that your long-running series might come back around to being good if you just keep plodding along. Rather, I'm supporting burning your series to the ground on a regular basis to make snowmen with the ashes. Resident Evil 7 is a successful change of tune that also manages the balance between disturbing and knowingly camp that marks Resident Evil at its best. Well done, Capcom. Looking forward to seeing how you fuck it up this time. I know it's the loot box controversy that still haunts this game like the ghost of an albatross, but let's not forget it also had a single player campaign, an entirely obvious single player campaign composed from flakes of rust that peel off the grinding wheels of the corporate machine, every inch focus group to most efficiently trick the audience into finding the same nostalgic bullshit as always as valuable as new ideas. I'm not even going to say the name. It knows what it did. But after righteous anger, I want the worst game to be something so bad that I come back around to feeling positive about it, something so fucking pathetic all you can do is laugh. And for that, it's Sniper Ghost Warrior 3. Ugly, boring, badly optimised, and with a story straight from a 12-year-old boy locked in the bathroom with a Tom Clancy-themed pin-up calendar and severe familial issues. Still, at least it has a positive message on diversity. There's a place in the games industry even for complete morons, and not just holding up the archery targets. You know, it used to be difficult to decide what to cover in retro reviews, but not anymore. Now I just review whatever's been re-released lately. Be careful, Johnny Games Industry. You don't want to end up like Billy Film Industry, who now spends most of his time sitting on a gas mask hose so he can lounge about enjoying the smell of his own farts all day. Still, I shouldn't complain. At least we're playing an old game we know to be good and which otherwise would have been left in the abandoned storage unit of gaming history alongside composite cables and Jack and Daxter is an improvement on playing the latest AAA attempt to throw loot boxes at the skulls of gullible people in the hope that one of them will embed itself. So here's Akami HD, a re-release of a classic PS2 action-adventure game by the now-defunct Clover studio themed around Japanese Shinto, and as with many polytheistic religions, the smallest amount of research into Shinto will make you wonder why Christianity has stuck around so long, when all the other religions were clearly having much more fun. For example, did you know that Amaterasu the sun goddess fell out with Tsukiyomi the moon god after Tsukiyomi got grossed out by the goddess of food literally pulling a feast out of her ass? That's not just interesting, that's pretty fucking relatable. More so than that loaves and fishes bullshit. In Okami, we play as Amaterasu the sun goddess in the aspect of a white wolf. I gotta say, irreverent as I am, sun worship has always made a lot of sense to me as a religion. At least you're worshipping something you know is there and actually does stuff and he can say things like don't stare at god for too long or he'll dim your eyesight and then your parents will think you've been masturbating again but i digress amaterasu returns to glorious nippon because it's full of demons and um she'd rather it not be full of demons i suppose it's not the most complex plotting in the world but we're in the land of standard heroic myth here the kind of thing that can be told around a campfire to slab four-headed tribes people for generations and eventually retitled the legend of zelda so here comes the usual question for your retro re-release what we academics call the jenga problem does it hold up well firstly it's post 2000s and therefore to my crusty mind about as retro as what i had for breakfast this morning, so Akami is still highly regarded, but what you'll note about the rave reviews is that they always go off on one about the beautiful art and soundtrack, and don't seem to dwell much on how the game actually plays. Languid was a word that caught my eye from one review, which is about the nicest possible way of saying slow. It's not paced like a slug on wet concrete, it's languid. That wasn't premature ejaculation, that was biological time-saving. But get through the introduction, in which two characters establish the point to save the world from the naughty demons with about 9,000 text boxes that all slowly crawl onto the screen like an Irishman on New Year's Eve trying to walk across a parking lot, all accompanied by Banjo-Kazooie-esque 
procedural jibber dialogue and you will know whether or not you can put up with it for the whole game. And hey, here's the good news, you can actually speed up the text display in some of the ensuing dialogue, just not all of it, because we're doing the Yakuza thing of drawing arbitrary distinctions between kinds of dialogue that I guess somehow makes sense if you're Japanese. The weird thing is, most of the time the game dialogue exhaustively clarifies and re-clarifies every next step on the rigidly fixed story progression, but every now and again it does the opposite and leaves you directionlessly flaming around the overworld sniffing your own doggy butt. Zelda is of course the best comparison, it's not a perfect one, Zelda has never had a special attack that lets you whittle on the enemy, much as that would have improved Skyward Sword, but it'll do. The not quite open open world that unfolds as we acquire the sacred spanking paddles that open up areas blocked off by ancient stone buttocks, or in this case, celestial brush techniques which brings us to the main gameplay gimmick of Akami, that you can pause at any time and draw little beards and moustaches on the enemies for a laugh. Which is as annoying as ever with analogue sticks, so just as well the most complex thing you ever need to do is draw a flat horribly misshapen circle with a line on it to create a bomb. But even the simple drawings can be temperamental, if your elbow gets jogged by your starving neglected child while you're trying to draw a line, then your attempted slash will fizzle out and you'll have to withhold another meal. In any other game I'd consider the celestial brush to be a pace killer, having to pause the action and slowly drag your paintbrush across the screen like you're hungover and trying to lick crumbs off a breakfast tray. But this is a languid game, remember? Not slow, languid. That's not a urine stain on my trousers, it's a moisture concentration zone. And it's not like the celestial brush makes the combat any more annoying. Combat is a thing that ambushes you as you explore the overworld and holds you down so it can show you its holiday snaps. Some if not most enemies require celestial brush flappery to defeat, but even without that the camera has a tendency to get bored and idly wander off while you're trying to gauge how close is close enough to actually hit the bastards, and the action tends to be constantly lousy with special effects, for some reason it is considered important that flowers be constantly streaming out of our protagonist's bum. Better pack that in when Tsukuyomi's around Amaterasu, you know what he's like with rectal miracles. And yet the combat isn't particularly difficult either, so maybe it all balances out. It was something like 20 hours in before I was finally starting to feel challenged by it, up to then it had mostly been lots of running around in circles and people slapping their bums at me. Yeah, 20 hours and that wasn't even close to finished. Okami is one of those games that feels like it's constantly bolting more stuff onto itself. You defeated the giant all-powerful embodiment of evil in a grand climactic battle, kick ass, time to start on the giant all-powerful embodiment of evil next door. This was the PS2 era of course, back before games were split between either 5 hour story campaigns a lot of people are just going to watch on YouTube, or 200 hours of grind because you really want to unlock Tracer's new leg warmers. And perhaps it's true that to dwell on the open quotes languidness of the pace or how the combat isn't quite as slick and satisfying as something designed by psychopaths to trigger your addiction receptors is missing the point. Does Akami hold up? I do think there are a lot of things wrong with it that it excuses by hiding behind the arty game label. Yeah, the jumping feels sticky and you need to run for about half a mile before you can start sprinting, by which point you'll probably already be at whatever you need to sprint to, but overall it offers the catharsis of a simple uplifting story with lively engaging characters that doesn't get as up itself as some games with a celestial theme, El Shaddai springs instantly to mind, and it never stops feeling like something lovingly devised with a specific intent, which the gameplay foibles may even be part of. The celestial brush is temperamental because we're dealing with the fickle whims of the gods, yeah, who might bestow you with their blessing but then again might turn into a swan and bugger you all night. You may have noticed a rather glaring gap in my 2017 lineup of reviews. Oh really, Yards? You mean the game that's been the biggest seller on Steam for fucking months, the one that practically embodied the year itself because it's nihilistic, depressing, argumentative and full of loot boxes and wankers? Yes, I am of course referring to none other than Animal Crossing Pocket Camp. Haha, <laughs> big joke. I mean PUBG, which stands for Player Unknown's Bonanza Goldmine, the breakout head multiplayer shooter based somewhat on the concept of Battle Royale. Except Battle Royale didn't involve quite so many people running around in their underpants. Not yet, anyway. Don't put the idea in their head, you know what Japanese culture's like. 100 players are dropped unarmed and helpless into a deserted sandbox map. Everyone who owned a property in the area apparently thought that a small pile of guns and supplies makes a lovely living room conversation piece. The playing area gradually shrinks over time, and the winner is the last person to get shot, fall to their death, or quit in disgust after listening to the voice chat. Because another thing PUBG could stand for is players unabashedly backing genocide. Seriously, the first thing I did was mute that shit, because I started my first game and immediately heard someone going, niggers, 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 and I know that sounds like something I'd make up, but I swear they were. Hell, who needs to interact with the other players anyway? I do usually avoid multiplayer games, after all I personally understate the benefits of gregariousness, but I'm fine as long as I don't have to socialise and we can just mutely exterminate each other like when I go to trivia night at the pub. PUBG is such a simple concept I'm hesitant to give Mr Unknown any credit for it. Multiplayer shooters have had the tendency to overthink themselves lately, in an effort to stand out from the crowd. Ooh, let's make it about capturing territory. No, 
wait, let's make it one tough player against four weak players working together, like a sort of reverse gangbang. So sooner or later, someone was going to go, hey, why don't we just take the basic deathmatch concept that was in the very first multiplayer shooters ever and scale it up to the biggest map and the biggest number of players possible with modern technology? And then the innovation of the shrinking play area would be obvious, as otherwise you'd have the last two players sitting 18 miles apart, waiting for the other to come into the coffee shop they've been camping for three hours. For you see, pugnacity under boundaries germinates. What I'm saying is that someone was going to come up with this eventually, and in a better world it might have been someone who knew how to make a game that didn't crash every hour or so, that doesn't look like it was composed entirely from stock textures and models from the contemporary shooter starter kit, and where the graphics didn't flicker like my eyelids whenever my mum asks if I'm ever going to get a real job. But anyway, I imagine my first experience with Player Unknown's buggery grind was pretty similar to most people's. I ran around in a seemingly empty landscape for a while, then something far in the distance made a coughing sound and my head exploded. Then I'd use the death cam and witness my death from the point of view of the fucking Terminator, who whipped around 180 degrees, instantly spotted me eight miles away, and sniped me with a gun the size of an ironing board that he must have gotten from a downed alien spaceship. And incidentally, it was while consulting a death cam that I discovered that the game doesn't draw long grass past a certain distance. So there I was, crawling on my belly thinking I'd cleverly concealed myself, only to discover that the other players were seeing a bloke lying in full view, attempting to make love to a golf course fairway. But over time I picked up some useful strategies through experience, hard grit, and reading a website with some useful strategies on it, such as stop going prone, you idiot. If someone's shooting at you, that's when you need to be running like fuck. As we all know, proning ultimately begets grief. And try not wearing boots. It doesn't reduce movement sound by much, but hey, could be the fight winner. Advice I found slightly galling, because boots were the one thing I'd gotten from the one loot box I'd earned, and I'd been excitedly running around the levels, showing them off to all the concealed snipers. But my skills swiftly improved, I'd find a nice tucked away spot to touch down, find gear, sprint across open terrain, serpentining and making incoherent blubbering noises, find more gear, score a couple of kills by crouching in the corner of a large obvious building and waiting half an hour for people to serpentine in. By these methods I was soon routinely surviving to the top ten, but wait a minute I thought as a protracted squatting session between two pews in a church rolled into its tenth minute, there's something missing from this essential gaming experience. Oh that's right, I'm not having any fucking fun. Impressive as my numbers were becoming, the moment the game drew close and I was forced to go where the last few dudes were, I felt like Robinson Crusoe being rediscovered by human civilization. so there'd be five or six super terminators having the inevitable sniping duel that every game turns into, and me running into the middle of them going, it's me! Haha, <laughs> I was in that church all along, but now I'm out and I'm proud and oh look, so is my large intestine. But I'd only gotten better at hiding, not fighting, so that was when I made the command decision to do the exact opposite of the good advice and start dropping directly onto fucking target rangers and eye hops that were going to be swarming with dudes right away, so success becomes less about tricks the inconvenient things like actual skill, and more about who can randomly stumble upon a room with a gun in it first. Sure, I started dying a hell of a lot more, but I also hadn't put enough time investment into each match to give a shit, drop out and start another game. Fuck it. After all, prolonging the unavoidable bores me greatly, and hey, sometimes I'd actually survive the initial melee, and then bonus on bonus I wouldn't have to loot the area because all these corpses lying around have thoughtfully done it already. Then I was having fun. Sometimes I'd suicidally parachute onto the very edge of the map and hope to find a motorbike with which I could speed into the safe zone and start doing stunt jumps as increasingly large numbers of bemused crosshairs zero in, and that was fun too. So I'm not too bothered about getting good at Player Unknown's Bear Grills, because it's not a very refined game, and all the people who have get good don't seem to be extracting much fun out of the bargain. Lots of loot boxes, I'm sure. And in the year when loot boxes became a symbolic evil right alongside toothbrush moustaches and Ugg boots, Player Unknown's burbling grandma's cosmetic loot boxes are taking a pretty sizable amount of piss. Probably up to waist deep at least. After my first boots adventure, I knuckled down and church camped my way to my second loot box, dreaming of the next fancy cosmetic that would surely make me the belle of the morgue. And you know what I got? A pair of beige trousers. Great, this'll be perfect camouflage if the next match takes place in an Ikea showroom. So I knuckled down again until I got my third loot box which contained a pair of white trousers. My fourth, which was about where I resolved to give up playing the loot box market, was, brace yourselves, a pair of black trousers. Well, at least I assembled a complete spectrum of trousers, or to put that another way, I painstakingly united a breeches gradient. Our topic for the day is early access shooters, for it is very important that shooters undergo rigorous testing before they're officially released. It's all too easy for something to go wrong with the formula of click on the thing and the thing dies. What if you click on the thing and the thing doesn't die? What if you click on the thing and give the thing a bunch of flowers? 
The only possible solution is to let people pay for it before it's finished and make sure they're good and sick of it by the time it's to releasable standard. So let's start with Fortnite Battle Royale with cheese. Player Unknown's Bobcat Goldthwaite is of course more popular than the last pair of socks at the Wanking Factory, and when something attains that level of success, there have to be a few less well-known alternatives so that hipsters can say that they're way better, actually, but you wouldn't understand because you're a pleb. Apparently, Fortnite was already some co-op survival shooty crafty bollocks that they added a Battle Royale mode to when they smelled the whiff of opportunity coming off Player Unknown's buggy glitch fest, but who the fuck cares because the base game costs money and the Battle Royale mode is free to play, and frankly I wasn't planning to spend more on shooty fun times than the bus fare to the homeless shelter. It's a pretty faithful copy-paste of the mechanics, you wait for 100 players to join while running around an island where no one can die competing to find the most creative way to annoy each other, and then we cut to a plane passing over an island and decide when we're going to parachute out. Loot houses, last one standing wins, white circle crouch in a bush and have a smoke, blue circle keep serpentining towards where the line's pointing at and try not to cry. Where it differs is in the much smaller map and related lack of vehicles and the more cartoony art style, meaning the men have big chins and the women have big bums, and guns hover off the ground slowly spinning like they're being sold on the shopping channel. If you've ever rage quit player unknown's burly gentleman because you realise too late that the two pixels in a distant window in the middle of a bombed out city was actually a sniper, then Fortnite might be the alternative for you, as the larger than life art style removes a lot of the playing where's Wally for your life aspect of player unknown's blatantly garish. You can't even go prone, which is one way of ending the argument over whether it's a good idea or not. The more confined map means the games are shorter and you can get into action more often, and action can mean interesting circle strafing shotgun contests as well as fucking sniping duels. So maybe it is better than player unknown's bush getaway if you've run out of podcasts and aren't willing to sit quietly in a hedge for half an hour, but then again the smaller map also means that if you haven't got a decent weapon inside the first minute or so then you're fucked, because everything will be looted by then. Also Fortnite has construction mechanics, presumably transplanted from the base game, that I'm not sure I like because more than once I've seen end games descend into two or three dudes aggressively building towers at each other because no one's prepared to risk coming outside. So now as well as getting good at the combat and exploring and shit, we have to get good at building towers ridiculously fast. Also fuck traps. You can pick up an item that traps a section of floor, other players can't see it and it instantly kills them. That's not pitting skill against skill, that's just oh you walked into a room, well fuck you. That'll teach you to wipe your feet. Oh but it is early access so maybe they'll have changed that by next week or added a chocolate fountain, who the fuck knows. Let's talk about another early access shooter called Dusk, yet another deliberately old style nostalgia game in this new age where pixel art is passe and it's now early 3D that the nostalgia nerds demand between mouthfuls of barely chewed 90s breakfast cereal. Dusk is deliberately citing Quake and Doom and Unreal and everything else that felt like any title longer than six letters was just showing off. Dusk is not to be confused with Strafe of course, another recent game evoking the same era of shooters because it's got a completely different name. Alright fine, it's also not a roguelike, which is for the better to my mind. Hopefully we're growing out of this let's make everything a fucking roguelike phase of gaming. Replay value is all very well, but with random levels you're also sacrificing any opportunity you had to tell a story with the environment. In Dusk you can have a level set on a farm and be all like, hey this actually looks like a farm. A farm pieced together from a selection of differently sized cardboard boxes that are all coloured like they got fished out of the septic tank behind a brand tasting facility, but recognisably a farm nonetheless. Which brings me to the specific problem with this kind of nostalgic recreation of old style graphics, while 16-bit pixel art can still conceivably look good, early 3D invariably looks like crude paper craft that someone assembled using only their sphincter muscles, and I think there's a tendency to hide behind that. But ultimately even the thickest layer of nostalgic graphical manure can't hide good old fashioned bad level design, and some of Dusk's maps remind me of those CDs of 500 custom Doom and Quake levels you used to get from car boot sales in jewel cases with photocopied inserts, the ones that contained levels that some student had smashed together from plain rectangles on the day they figured out how the level editor's rotate function worked. What I'm saying is I'm actually old enough to remember the Quake era, and if Dusk had come out around then it wouldn't have been in the upper tier of shooters at the time. This ain't a Quake, this is closer to a Chasm the Rift or a Redneck Rampage, although I'll concede it's at least on a higher tier than Blood 2 The Chosen. Wow this is all starting to sound needlessly mean isn't it? There's like 
like one and a half guys working on this thing, Yards. You're supposed to shower it with condescending praise if it so much as has gravity set to go the right way up. Fine, there are some areas where Dusk absolutely nails it. For one, the atmosphere, and for two, the combat. The monsters range in design from Playmobil farm animals to stick figures that move like they're on roller skates, and to my mind, a few too many of them fire projectiles that move in randomised directions, so you have to basically roll a dice on whether your fat ass is about to dodge the right way. But the weapons are good, they've got that all-important visceral kick to them that makes for fun gameplay, and since you're using them an average of about 12 billion times per minute, good weapons and action can be a shooter's saving grace. Leaping over an enemy and blowing them away with dual-wielded shotguns is going to be fun, even if the enemy looks like a toilet roll tube with pipe cleaners stuck to it. Having said that, I wouldn't recommend getting Dusk now, nor would I recommend any linear single-player game going early access, because it's just sacrificing the first impression, and after you've finished the two available chapters of The Promised Three, you'll be left blindly groping for a climax like there was a sudden power cut at the Backstreet Massage Parlour. Sort of underlines the inherent problem with reviewing early access games, but as a great YouTube channel once said, fuck you, it's January. What else am I going to review? The smell of my dog's farts? Two stars, bold and earthy with subtle notes of toilet water. Alright, laugh it up, you bastards, you wore me down. You and the January release schedule. Okay, a little background. As my masseur said when they found clods of earth between my shoulder blades, a while back I wanted to make the point that there seemed to be an awful lot of anime dating sims sprouting up on Steam the way looters show up on a ruined battlefield, and I illustrated this point with a screenshot of the first one I saw on the listing, which happened to be Doki Doki Literature Club. And the response in the comments was like I'd accidentally rested my beer on the gravestone of an abuse victim. Ho 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 ho! If only you knew what you'd done, sang my correspondence. What? What have I done? Oh, we can't tell you. You have to play it for your parody game, got it, don't care, and I get off my fucking lawn. Then I started noticing a couple of words floating around the Steam tags and the reviews, words like psychological horror and disturbing, and I was like, oh right, it's one of those Five Nights at Freddy's arrangements, a game designed not to be played and enjoyed, but to be reacted to on a stream or hilarious YouTube video, because God knows it's hard to amuse 500 baboons at once without investing in a banana truck, but no one could stop banging on about it, so eventually I thought, fuck it, it's free, and having played through it, I can now confidently state that free was the perfect price for it. I don't intend that as the kick in the miniskirt it sounds like, it's just that it feels more like a concept game than a complete product, and besides, it goes out of its way to not drop the facade of being a bog-standard anime dating sim all over the store page, so if they actually charged money for this clever prank, they risk first the class action lawsuit from a platoon of the world's most depressing men, and second, the cost of having the courtroom fumigated. So I played it, but with the understanding that the moment it played the jump scare card, I was fucking out. That was the main concern I had, because I love horror, but cheap jump scares are the used tampons in my sherry trifle. So if it's a concern you share, rest assured, Doki Doki Literature Club's on a much slower boil than that, it descends gradually into madness and you can see most of it coming, like wading slowly into a cold sea and knowing that there's going to be a bit of a lurch at the moment the water reaches bollock height. Most reviews that I've read say at this point something like, ooh, I'm not going to spoil what happens, you got to see it for yourself, waggle waggle eyebrows, but fuck that, I've got points to make, so from now on there be spoilers. Just play it if you give a shit, you might as well, it's free. Yeah, there's a time investment, but let's face it, you weren't going to use the time to compose the anthem of a generation. So if you're still here, Doki Doki Upskirt Club begins as a bog-standard anime dating sim and keeps the act going for a surprisingly long time. You are a faceless generic Japanese high school boy man creature, and through some contrived circumstances meet a small group of anime girls. I believe the collective noun is a jailbait of anime girls, covering all the common fetish bases who all instantly fall in love with you at first glance, or possibly from the sound of your footsteps coming down the hall, and you must make branching decisions to court one of the girls in the hope of helping her overcome her inevitable massive sexual repression and get some lovely kisses and or plough her up and down the garden path, depending on what specific kind of visual novel we're dealing with. And you do have to enjoy visual novels to some extent to get the best effect from the game, it's like the Spec Ops The Line thing, you have to like war shooters so that you can play the war shooter long enough to get to the bit where it punches you in the face for liking war shooters. So it's doing the visual novel thing, you have extra scenes with the girls you're actively pursuing, you could accidentally lean on the skip button for 50 lines and not miss shit because the dialogue is 90% flustered reactions to sexual arousal, but then some odd details start popping up, the one girl offhandedly mentions she's manically depressed, another turns out to collect knives and secretly cuts herself, and you think, okay, all these girls have serious mental health issues, but hell, still no worse than characters in other visual novels I've played, you've got to be a little bit fucked in the head to enjoy guzzling cum that much. Hey, if you're surprised by fucked up things happening in visual novels, then you probably haven't played very many. The real turning point comes when the 
depressed girl commits suicide. That's the definite point of Bollock descent into icy water. Although her depression had been portrayed with a slightly uncomfortable authenticity, so it wasn't creepy in an enjoyable psychological horror kind of way, it was just really fucking sad. It happens regardless of what choices you pick, which in itself might be an effective premise for a game about depression, constantly reliving the same few days, trying to save her and failing every time, because her problems are too deep-seated to be fixed just because you accidentally felt her up on day three. Anyway, after that the game restarts, except this time the dead character is mysteriously absent, no one remembers them, and your old saves don't work, and I guess that sounds pretty creepy in a walking into a familiar bathroom with all the mirrors covered up kind of way, but I might as well give away now, I think the game's already peaked by this point, it's already thrown its skirt up and flashed you its knickers with subversion of dating sim written on them, and the game has been given away, so all it can do now is try to psych you out by drifting into the faintly lame territory of the video game creepypasta. So of course graphics start fucking up and characters start bleeding from the eyes, and doing that thing where their pupils go really small and they smile a bit too widely, which is of course anime shorthand for someone being too gratuitous panty shots short of a Sailor Moon episode, and if anything this all made me less creeped out. Phew, I'm glad you started bleeding from the eyes, because things were getting a bit harrowing back there for a while with all that slightly too real depression and suicide business, and then there was all that anticipation leading up to it, playing the happy clappy standard dating sim shit, waiting for the other shoe to drop. But now I can relax, because I see we've entered silly horror town. Yeah, you go ahead and stab yourself, missy. Couldn't hurt, could it? We also take a leaf out of the Undertale playbook by fiddling about with the save files and the way the game works. It even has essentially the same open quotes final boss thing, where the villain hacks the game, so you have to face them whenever you start up. Except instead of trying to kill you, they just want to make moony eyes at you all day. In Undertale, I was invested in the world and the story enough to want to foil them, and in this case there doesn't seem to be much of a world left to be invested in. Plus I was free to quit at any time, so I didn't exactly feel in danger of anything worse than losing a staring contest. To finally end the game, you need to go into the actual game folder and delete a file, which sounds like a clever subversive puzzle, but the game seems terrified of leaving anyone behind. Boy, says the character, sure hope you don't right-click the game in the Steam list, click properties, click browse local files, and then delete please delete this.txt. That'd be a pisser and no mistake, which rather took me out of the whole experience once and for all. So in summary, Doki Doki Literature Club is a nice little idea, with a memorable moment or two, but doesn't really have anywhere to go once the rabbit's out of the hat. It's not wise to stick around for too long after the big punchy moment. I learned that in a pub in Bratton Fleming. So I thought it was about time we had a revisit, or rather a v-visit, to the world of VR. PSVR, that is, which stands for PlayStation VR and not, as one might expect, pukey sickness vomit receptacle. I'm told the motion sickness thing is just a matter of getting used to it though, so you might want to get some time in on VR now, so after the machines take over the Matrix doesn't generate more stomach chutney than power. And of the commercial headsets on the market, I do prefer the PlayStation VR, it's more comfortable to wear with glasses and easier to set up, I only need to balance one motion capturing device on the piles of empty cider bottles that surround my comfy chair. A new game came out for it this week called The Inpatient, which in contrast to the last VR game we did, Wilson's Heart, which was about a dude in a haunted asylum where monster shit's going down, is a game about a dude in a haunted asylum where monster shit's going down. Well, let's be fair, for its faults, Wilson's Heart's had puzzles, had some combat, and in brief, stuff happening. Whereas in The Inpatient, um, hmm. Well, it's got some very lovely corridors you'll have plenty of chances to get acquainted with. The Inpatient is a prequel of sorts to Until Dawn, that branching path slasher movie game from a while back, and so it takes a few moments to remind us at length that our choices will have consequences. For example, if we choose to get bored and stop playing, that will have the consequence of a slightly more enriching afternoon. We're a patient in an asylum who's locked in their cell when the monsters throw a housewarming party and ends up trapped in there for weeks with nothing to snack on but mildew and an increasingly unhinged roommate. We have a couple of nightmares during this sequence that call upon us to walk down a hallway while occasionally a scary thing suddenly appears and makes a noise like it's screaming while hitting the inside of a trash can with a cricket bat. I mean come on guys, surely the budget could stretch far enough that you didn't have to steal jump scares from Newgrounds Escape the Room horror games. But then of course we get to the part of the game after we get out of the cell, which consists largely of following characters very slowly down dark corridors, and then I was like fucking hell, all is forgiven jump scares, come back and liven this the fuck up. 
I'm just going to spoil a lot of the inpatient, because trust me, missing out on this one is not going to haunt you to your dying days. The thrust of this and Until Dawn's premise is that if you eat human flesh you turn into a wendigo, right? And the main diversion of the plot is whether you turn into a wendigo or your roommate does. Now if the former, our roommate is absent, presumably because we scoffed down their entire body with french fries and ranch. But I don't get why the roommate becomes a wendigo in the other scenario, because we're self-evidently not eaten. And I don't remember looking down at any point and seeing that one of my legs was chewed off. Just a little plot hole, but there's so little plot, one hole turns it into a fucking engagement ring. It all culminates in the fantastic ending, where we get to the cable car to escape the mountain asylum and one character turns to whoever's turning into a wendigo and goes, hey you're turning into a wendigo. Yes, figured as much, bit of a pisser isn't it? Well how about all of us who are not wendigos sit in the cable car and you can stay here and start it for us. Alright, fair enough. That was the fucking final boss, was it? The explosive climax that I walked slowly down a whole five or six corridors for. Eat shit, the impatient. VR games really need to grow out of making open quotes experiences rather than games. They always make me feel the way I feel after riding one of those simulator rides at a theme park. I can't believe I spent my allowance on that. So with that in mind, let's talk about another VR game I played this week which controversially was a game and not just a walking simulator with no concept of personal space. Doom VFR, which knowing Doom probably stands for virtual fucking reality. I know they were going for badass, but when you say it out loud it kind of sounds like you're sick of the whole concept. Virtual of fucking reality. Anyway, Doom VFR presents itself as a side story to the recent Doom, where we play a random dude who was in the Mars facility when the demons took over, but seemed to have already been partly zombified because he has a weird habit of holding his hands out in front of him the whole time, like a sleepwalker with a sensitive priapism. Fortunately, the demons swiftly bite it off, along with a large percentage of his body, but our hero was smart enough to back up his personality on the solid state drive that morning, so he ends up in a robot body, somehow. So because VR tends to favour shorter games, so you don't play it for eight hours and get miniature TVs permanently fused to your eyeballs, what follows is a sort of Cliff's Notes version of Doom 2016 where we teleport around to some choice locations from the game, pursue some nondescript button pressing objective and more importantly rip off enough demon todgers to at least partially satisfy your mum. So this is Doom designed for VR. It's presumably possible to play original Doom with VR, but you'd either need a concrete inner ear or a tarpaulin to sit on. In VFR, instead of the usual FPS free movement, we get around by teleporting and quick dashing from spot to spot. And bite my nipples off and call me Billy No Tits if it doesn't bloody work pretty well. In fact I think this is the first VR game I've played that's pulled off the high octane shooty action and didn't even make me feel sick. It made my head hurt but, you know, mum always warned you that would happen if you sat too close to the TV, so what the fuck did you expect would result of strapping the TV to your fucking face? My expectations were low, because from every description I read it sounded like they were just going to turn Doom into a pop-up shooting gallery like a ferocious wolf being forced to mate with a ridiculously ambitious corgi. But rest assured, absolutely none of Doom's trademark frenetic challenge is lost. Teleport across the room, shotgun two imps in the face, let them all gather round for a space marine nipple salad, then teleport back out and rocket the place where you just were. Ha ha. It's just good old plain unqualified fun. That said, the fun spikes highest when you are engaged in pitched battle and warping around a big open arena, but at other times you have to move down narrow corridors, and in that case you feel a little bit silly teleporting your way along six feet at a time like a little hoppy murder bunny. And turning around is a bit of an arse, freely rotating yourself is still bad for motion sickness, or perhaps I mean extremely good for motion sickness, so we're still having to rotate in something like 30 degree increments, which is all very well when your game consists of walking very slowly down corridors, fretting over whether you should have had all that human flesh for breakfast, not so much when you've just teleported away from a heated debate with several cacodemons and would like to turn back around and deliver a double-barreled counter-argument. Besides that, some of my criticisms of vanilla doom still apply, it gets a bit too easy to towards the end when all the ridiculously powerful guns have been introduced and are now just lying around everywhere like there was an earthquake in an American high school locker room, but it doesn't really hurt the game. So that's it, Doom VFR, possibly a leap forward for VR action games, the inpatient possibly a leap forward into a ditch full of very uninteresting rocks. A world of ancient beasts, great savage drooling creatures that normal men and women must find a way to work around if they ever hope to live in peace, but enough about the last time I visited my grandparents, let's talk about Monster Hunter World. Now I've played Monster Hunter games before, but that was before I experienced my Dark Souls epiphany and realised I actually quite like games about banging my head 
against a wall for hours on end, because my face hasn't been terribly successful in the field of attractiveness, so might as well see if it has any application in the construction industry. So I was confident that I'm a little closer to getting Monster Hunter this time around, which by all accounts is kind of doing its own thing gameplay-wise, but can be tentatively classified as a fantasy exploration crafting RPG game with difficult boss fights, except instead of the boss fight being at the end of a level or sequence of linear challenges that just sort of spontaneously happen while you're wandering around looking for herbs that could fix your erectile dysfunction. Action adventure? Yeah, let's just go with action adventure. The plot, such as it is, is thus. In a fantasy world where everyone dresses like they're trying to avoid having to check baggage at the airport by wearing everything they own, a fleet of hunters is on their way to a newly discovered continent full of all kinds of wonderful new monsters to slaughter so that they can wear half the corpse and use the other half to kill all their mates. But oh no, just as we're making friends on the transport ship and about to exchange tips on what to do about incredibly strange tan lines, the ship runs into what the game persistently refers to as an elder dragon, but which looks to me more like a giant lump of coal miner's snot. Or possibly Grimace from McDonald's after he fell into the restaurant grease trap. The ship gets wrecked and thus begins our epic quest to seek vengeance upon the elder dragon before it enacts its dastardly scheme to continue minding its own fucking business. Well, I guess we're not really seeking revenge, since this seems to have been one of those RPG shipwrecks that killed precisely no one. The story is instead focused around researching monsters and figuring out exactly why elder dragons are migrating to the new world. It'll probably turn out that they're trying to get their knob on with another elder dragon, or failing that an appropriately sized fatberg. So one thing you're just gonna have to accept about Monster Hunter is that you're probably not going to be engaged with the plot, and at first that was feeling like a deal breaker for me, because I consider myself a narrative gameplay specialist, and I just can't enjoy banging my head against a wall unless I know it's for some purpose I can relate to on some level. Like maybe the wall killed our family, or we have a pressing urgent need to build an extension. And while I've played quite a few games where researching and or cataloguing the enemy is part of the gameplay, some of my favourite games even, like XCOM or Castlevania Aria of Sorrow, it was always in pursuit of the larger goal, whereas the researching monsters aspect appears to be the only goal of Monster Hunter, and the only way we know how to research monsters is to hack them up with swords as part of a live impromptu dissection. I found it hard to be invested when the monsters don't seem to be starting shit with us, and the plot reason for every hunt and kill mission is pretty much the same. Hey, this big monster's getting in the way of our research. You better give it a damn good researching so we can research all its helpless children. Be honest with me, are we a bunch of bastards? Because this is starting to feel like the kind of thing a bunch of bastards might do. Plot progression is less about the unfolding series of events and more about adding more shit to your to-do list. Oh boy, we unlocked a new area where there's a monster made of ready-salted crisps. Guess I'm gonna have to hunt them like 15 times until I've got a sword made out of his dick and armour made out of his bum, because there's a lot of other monsters with a weakness for ready-salted crisps. After a while, I think the appeal of Monster Hunter was starting to click for me. It's not about the linear story it's got set up to put a vague connecting thread through the world-expanding process, it's about the story you create for yourself. The wonderful adventure of Pooh Pants the custom character and their quest for the mythical assload of top-tier elemental weapons. The kind of story that's almost certainly going to end anticlimactically when you finally get that pair of level 20 thunder knacker clackers and have no more beasts to conquer, and are left to only to wonder why you wasted so much of your recent life hanging around one giant scaly butt after another, chipping single-digit quantities of health off it like they were little more than a succession of refrigerators badly in need of defrosting. Another thing that took a while to click was the combat, which is where the game happily throws you in at the deep end by handing you a box full of 14 different weapons with distinct attack styles, and when you look up from the box to ask when the tutorial's going to start, you realise Monster Hunter has already fucked off to go lovingly render some juicy steaks or something, and you've been left to figure it out for yourself. The game does offer a bit of advice, unfortunately it is lies. I started out with the longsword, just because the game gave it three stars for ease of use, but no shit was clicking the whole time I was using that fucking thing, unless you count the clicking of my shoulder joints every time I raise it up for a basic attack like I'm trying to raise the fucking flag at Iwo Jima. Eventually I switched to the dual daggers, because it turns out being able to attack quickly is pretty important when the monsters all get understandably jumpy when you have expressed an intention to make bolus out of their bolocks, and you need to be able to stop what you're doing at the merest hint of tail whip and roly-poly the fuck out of dodge. I think the main thing you need to know about Monster Hunter is that it just doesn't do quick gratification. You might notice that virtually every optional hunt mission is kill one monster and you have 50 minutes to do it, and that's not necessarily a generous time limit. This isn't some casual punch the nasty thing till it stops getting up affair, this is something you're going to be putting some fucking work into. Don't expect explosive action or heart-rending plot, this is a very specific kind of catharsis that you might be into if you've got a thing for admin. Getting your head around a fucking database of crafting menus and stat charts so you can most efficiently 
specifically planned precisely how you're going to torment a scaly bum for the next half hour or so. It's certainly not for everyone. The lack of player training, stodgy item switching controls, and the slow process of nickel and diming agitated scaly bums to death can be frustrating, and it's hard to recommend a game that feels like coming to work at the lizard buttock data entry department, but there can be satisfaction in work, and if you do get into it, the world of Monster Hunter is an oddly charming one. A surprising amount of effort was put into making your dinner look really tasty, which is partly the juicy glisten and sizzle, and partly the sheer flamboyance with which our character animatedly scarfs it down, and hell, it never seems to stop being fun to watch. The last time I got that enthusiastic about sticking things in my mouth, I got done for lewd conduct. Lord save me from all these fucking survival games. There's an ironic joke in there somewhere. They always start sensible with combining rock with stick to create stick with rock on the end, but sooner or later you end up mashing together two mushrooms and a piece of discarded tinfoil to create a magazine-fed 5.56mm Colt AR-15, which you then rub on a small pile of turds for a second to add the optional holographic sights. Still, I understand why they appeal, where most games revolve entirely around the player waiting giggling just over the horizon for you to step into the designated minotaur area so it can leap out and start flinging minotaurs, it's refreshing to play a game whose world feels like it couldn't give a shit about you. That its environments and life forms could muddle along perfectly well by themselves and which will kill you stone dead if you go 20 minutes without sucking any hydration from the tear ducts of a passing sparrow. Anyway, we've done crafting survival games in most of the standard Mario level biomes, grasslands, desert, jungle, ice world, so until they bring out a crafting survival game set in food world where we have to make spears out of twiglets, here's a crafting survival game set in an ocean level, Subnautica. You are Rex Handsome, faceless mute space adventurer with a superhuman ability to not go all wrinkly when they stay underwater too long. Sadly, he got this power by trading in his ability to prevent spaceships from exploding, and his spaceship explodes over an ocean planet with only three survivors. Him, one escape pod, and the Mars bar in the glove compartment. Now our hero must find a way off the planet, but in the meantime do the usual survival crafting game stuff. Build a base, find food and water, explore, and remember to breathe every now and again, you dozy git. Subnautica is the kind of game that probably could have gotten away with procedurally generating the map and having no further plot beyond to see how long you can last and maybe find yourself a nice crafting project like building a castle with a fire-breathing effigy of the Almond Brothers on the top, so I was surprised to see that it didn't do that. The world map is fixed, and astonishingly there's a plot with an actual ending where you get to leave the planet, tearfully waving goodbye to the Almond Brothers as you go. Oh yes, that spaceship disaster wasn't just a contrived setup, the massive wreckage is your principal navigation point for the whole game. And your first challenge is figuring out how you're going to loot it while it's on fire and pissing radiation like an incontinent dog from the Bikini Atoll. The core mechanics of Subnautica are exploring and crafting so that you can expand the area of map you can explore and craft things from without running out of air, food, water or contraceptives. Craft flippers and a larger oxygen tank so you can dive further and find the rarer elements so you can craft rocket flippers and an oxygen tank the size of a fridge and so on. The crafting is very much in I created a nuclear pogo stick by rubbing together two leaves and something I scraped off a wall, land. But we're using a Star Trek replicator right off the bat, so I guess we'll let it slide. Progress was a bit stop and start, because you're supposed to figure everything out by exploring and every now and again I'd swim into a big underwater wall, because I couldn't find the one thing that would open up the next important branch of the progress tree, and would have to alt-tab out to find a wiki, which is as good for immersion as a herring in a sock. For example, one of the early crafting items you need for the utterly vital repair tool is cave sulphur, which I just couldn't track down. Okay, said the wiki, you know that thing that you've been running into in caves that aggressively swims towards you and explodes and kills you dead? Well, cave sulphur is the thing that that thing was sitting on. Oh right, forgive me, I was kind of getting the impression that I wasn't welcome in that dude's house, rooting around in his toilet bowl. What about Kyanite? Where do I find that? Oh yeah, search the entire fucking map for the one cave that keeps going down and down and down until you're in the planet's fucking molten core. It'll be a six-week expedition and you'll probably die, but if you pull it off you'll get a depth upgrade for your prawn suit, so chin up. And yet there was something about Subnautica that made me keep alt-tabbing back to it. Underwater exploration is an inherently appealing concept, this whole new world rolling away before you made all the more beautiful by its utter hostility. I remember the sheer wonder I felt when I first breached the lava zone in my protective suit, descending into a cavern big enough for a cathedral, rivers of glowing orange snaking along the floor like the arteries of some giant protean god, whereupon one of those cocking psychic monsters came along, teleported me out of my suit, and made me boil to death. And it was a different kind of wonder I experienced then. I wonder if those psychic monsters possess bollocks. I wonder what they would taste like after I put them through the Breville sandwich toaster, preferably without having removed them from the rest of the body. I came damn close to rage quitting after that setback. I only recovered by painstakingly working my submarine through the caverns leading up to the lava zone, 
like a kitten crawling down a hose pipe, and stocking myself up with enough health kits to reach my abandoned prawn suit before I turned into a service station pre-cooked Cornish pasty. It wasn't the only time I considered quitting, but Subnautica always found a way to worm back into my interest pipes. I told myself I wasn't going to stick around long enough to want to mess around with the base building element much. I'd just build one scanning room to show me where the nearest 7-Elevens are, and that needs power, so solar panel, but wait, what if I wake up in the middle of the night wanting a disgusting cupcake? Better have a biomatter reactor as well, and now we'll need a little terrarium to feed it with. This is taking a lot of stuff, better add some storage. Ooh, there's a volcanic vent down there. I could probably extend the base far enough to build a thermal reactor, and if we're doing that, might as well add some more rooms. Hey Yards, you're still playing that game? Who dares trespass upon Fortress Ocelot Alpha? In the end, I'm glad I stuck with Subnautica. It is a little unintuitive and not a little buggy. I had an alarming tendency to sink through the floor of my submarine and end up outside, at which point the engine would temporarily forget how water works and I'd plummet to my death on the rocky ocean floor. But the story ended up being pretty good. It's a light presence for most of the game, set up largely through lengthy documents and pieces of scan data, and you're a more dedicated man than I if you can be asked to do more than skim most of it. But there's still a competently structured beginning, middle and end, with a small handful of important events spaced out between the free exploring to mark a switch from one act to the next. The ending is surprisingly elaborate as you reach the lair of a godlike beast and learn that your struggle to fill a succession of increasingly elaborate shopping lists is finally at an end. Just as soon as you fill out this extremely elaborate shopping list. And then as I stepped aboard my escape rocket, I couldn't help looking back with a sentimental pang at this world that had become so familiar, at the Rex ship where it had all started, the now deserted fortress Ocelot Alpha, my submarine that I had of course painted bright yellow and renamed the Yoko Ono. I was gonna paint it pink and call it the Blake Edwards, but I didn't think anyone would get that. Kingdom Come Deliverance is a let's charitably call it brave attempt to create a highly realistic and historically accurate immersive RPG set in 15th century Bohemia, but forget all that, what the fuck would have been the problem with just calling it Kingdom Come? Why bolt a meaningless fucking subtitle to the end except to add an unnecessary roundabout to the otherwise perfectly straight road of any spoken sentence containing the name? Yes, I've harped on this before, but if you're still showing the symptoms, then keep taking your medicine, motherfucker. Kingdom Come by itself would have been a perfectly appropriate and snappy title, and what's more, it would have emphasised the come part, which would have been fitting because that's what the game is covered in. But we get ahead of ourselves. After the death of the beloved Charles IV, his heir, Wenceslaus, of good king fame, proceeds to, in a very literal sense, fuck things up royally, until his half-brother Sigismund imprisons him and starts smashing up the countryside for giggles. At the outset, none of this means a whole lot to our main character, Henry, a peasant blacksmith's son who's more concerned about the day-to-day -day doings of a medieval peasant, which is to say, covering himself in shit. There's even a mechanic where certain speech and charisma checks are affected if you show up covered in shit, which is pretty fucking unfair because it's medieval times and the only thing that isn't covered in shit is the clouds, and only because no one's built a big enough siege tower. There's no character customization in Kingdom Come, wouldn't want you to pick a female protagonist and have to change the entire plot to get sold to a Norwegian duke die in childbirth, so you're stuck with Henry, who everyone seems to think is a fresh-faced teenage boy but is clearly a big strapping bloke in his twenties, or as it was known at the time, middle-aged. Soon enough, his village and parents get smashed up for giggles and he must venture into the world, and this is where the whole deliverance subtitle becomes relevant because Henry's last job before shit went cloudwards was to deliver a sword to the local bigwig, and the first twenty-odd hours of the main plot revolve around his struggle to recover the sword so he can finish delivering it. And everyone seems to realise how fucking stupid he's being about this, even the bigwig in question flat out says to him, Dude, I've got swords, I own a fucking castle, I could eat a sword a day from now till Michaelmas and never run dry, chill the fuck out. But no, honour is on the line and Henry is channeling the spirit of every pizza boy to fall foul of the get it in thirty minutes or it's free policy. So we're in a witchery, skyrimmy sort of immersive RPG area, the kind where it's way too easy to make tons and tons of money because every time you kill someone you can nick everything they have, right down to their jock straps and tampons, and run to a pawn shop, or rather waddle to a pawn shop holding your trousers up because we're overburdened again. There are a lot of things to admire in Kingdom Come in my pants, it is nice to see a game actually trying to teach us something about real history, since Assassin's Creed dropped its in-game encyclopedias to focus more on charging twenty extra bucks for the gold-plated super historical edition, and the commitment to realism is certainly very earnest, going so far as to factor in what you're wearing and holding and how clean you are when you're talking to people. It was always a little jarring in Dragon Age when you were gamely snarking with NPCs while visibly drenched in about three pints of their former acquaintances, but I'm saying all these nice things so that I can get to the main gut punch of this review, which is that the combat is fucking terrible. 
I'd think of some clever, wordier way of putting that, but honestly I can't convey my feelings any better than by just saying that again in a weary, emphatic tone of voice. Fucking terrible. It's doing a sort of For Honor angle of attack based stamina management thing, but makes the age-old mistake of trying to incorporate the controls that are normally for controlling the camera. So with either the mouse or right analog stick, we're supposed to rotate our sword to one of five possible angles, an inexact science in itself, but every now and again the game spaces out and forgets it's using the camera controls for something else now. Okay, I guess you want to look over to the right instead of changing your sword angle. I mean, it's not like there's a jaunty fellow shuffling back and forth like a lemur on a unicycle who's about to stick his polearm down your ear, and then after you pick your angle and press the button to slash your sword, about half an hour of camera jiggling passes and then the slash happens. This is where a third person camera might be helpful, because I'd really like to know what the fuck Henry is doing all the time he's not slashing his fucking sword while I'm fucking telling him to. Reading the instruction manual? What makes it worse is that as you get hit you lose maximum stamina as well as health. Realistic, I'll grant you, I'd probably be less up for this morning's crossfit after a hairy European has split my nose in half, but it means that if you start losing you'll almost certainly keep losing. And none of this would be so bad if it weren't for, and get your zoot suits on because this is a fucking retro pisser, the limited save system. Yes, saving the game requires a limited item, because clearly anyone who has to step out for an urgent appointment or funeral isn't showing enough commitment for the game's liking. See, this is why backwards compatibility is important, because without the context of history we forget that all the stupid fucking ideas were stupid fucking ideas. All this is doing is making me lose three hours of progress because I got caught off guard by a random combat encounter on the road with two guys and they've got a bunch of lucky shots in while I was still fumbling to get out my weapon that handles like a depleted uranium ironing board. Oh, but yeah, surely it's an immersive RPG, why don't you just play as a non-direct combat focused character? Oh right, you mean like an archer, when your aim wobbles like a meth addict in a crystal cavern and there's no targeting reticle, so you'd have better luck sticking your arrows up a cat's ass and making it fart them out. But I take your point and manage to get pretty far into the game, avoiding conflict mainly by winning speech checks or stealthing up and getting a few crafty slashes in before they can react. But then I reached a point where I was supposed to join a big raid on a bandit camp with 20 other lads, which took six or seven tries because victory was hinging on all my NPC helpers pulling their weight and that was like expecting a team of sled dogs to help with your maths homework, but finally we managed to breach the inner camp and Henry decides he's going to fight the bandit leader by himself. In a fucking thunderdome. And then I had to give up on the whole game because I could barely get one hit in before he wiped the fucking floor with me. Fuck realism. The realistic approach would have been to let me lure him out of the fucking thunderdome and get my 16 heavily armed mates to pass him around for sweaty cock slaps. But no, fuck player choice, fuck your build, it's standard boss fights or into the bin with you. So bollocks to kingdom come, but I reserve the biggest and most suffocating bollocks for those twats I saw on the Steam discussion forums praising its obnoxious qualities and asking the devs not to change the save system because if they did then plebs might get into it. Fuck you, toffee nose PC master race shitheads. I wish I'd named you something else now, like the PC gaming dick slurp all stars. Let's all laugh at an industry that never learns anything, tee hee hee. On today's episode of the Zero Punctuation Occasional Guide to Moments from Gaming History Least Likely to be Adapted into a Life-Affirming Coming-of-Age Drama, we turn to the subject of moral panics. And then we turn around again and do a big fart in moral panic's face. Over the years, controversy in video games have gone hand in hand, followed by tongue in mouth and then cock in bumhole. But they've only relatively recently gotten into valid, helpful controversies like publishers are running barely disguised casinos through legal loopholes in the hope of stealing all the money in the world so they can build a new solid gold planet from which to plot their conquest of the universe and the death of that meddling fool Flash Gordon. Most video game controversies have been repeats of that tiresome debate over whether it's healthy for little Timmy to make Sub-Zero tear out spinal columns, and which can be routinely countered with the argument that every spinal column torn out in make-believe pixel land is one real spinal column not torn out in the schoolyard, but what happens when video games touch upon the one thing moral guardians hate more than violence, the reproductive realities of their own depraved, shameful biology? <laughs> The year is 2005, when the PlayStation 2 was sitting pretty atop the games industry like a big sexy jockey. Grand Theft Auto San Andreas was the fifth GTA game, and in their drive to experiment with the GTA formula, developers Rockstar had absolutely riddled the fucking thing with stat-grinding minigames that had all the entertainment value of a large bag of polystyrene packing material, and in the spirit of grinding waggle eyebrows, someone made a mod for the PC version of the game that replaced the slightly weak source fade-out fade-up implied boffing session that ended the dating side quests with a full-on graphic sex minigame in which two fully clothed models made honks and squeaks of pleasure as they slide in and out of each other like a pair of 
of butchered horse carcasses in a dog food processing vat. Initially, Rockstar claimed that it was all the work of naughty hackers and that one could no more blame them than one could blame an exercise book manufacturer for a schoolboy's crude drawing of a knob, until it became clear that all that the mod actually did was go into one file and change the variable enable horrible sex minigame from zero to one. With the revelation that the general public had trustingly allowed into their homes a shameless portrayal of consensual lovemaking insidiously trojan horsed within their wholesome innocent policeman murdering simulator, the moral guardians threw one of their characteristic shit fits. For me, the fact that you had to mod the game to turn it on sort of defeats the traditional corrupting the innocent children argument, because any innocent child who unsuspectingly visits a PC modding website and downloads and installs Activate the Hot Sexy Porn Minigame with Actual Sex in It.exe by accident, presumably while searching for Bible verses and poems about grandma, is either a severely unlucky or unflinchingly dishonest one, but that nicety was wasted on the usual suspects who were relishing having an excuse to get their huff on again. Notorious anti-video game lawyer and humanity's answer to the Sarcoptes parasite, Jack Thompson, jumped all over it, which was par for the cause at the time, but none other than Hillary Clinton also joined in for the kicking, just in case you thought the only mark against her was being unable to win an election against a large pile of cheesy watsits in an ill-fitting suit. But this was before our current age of digital distribution when we don't so much own games we buy as agree to temporarily house them on our hard drives until the publishers decide they can't be bothered to keep the servers running. And there was no denying that the content was on the disc. You can't get away with putting one page of high-fidelity dick pics into the middle of the very hungry caterpillar just because you glued another page over it, and the ESRB rating of San Andreas was changed from mature to adults only, the rating reserved mainly for porn games and which most retailers refused to stock. Meanwhile, Europe only had an 18 plus rating which the game already had, so Europe didn't give a shit. Europe barely looked up from its tea and weird smelling cheese. Australia, of course, didn't have a rating above mature for games, so they just pulled that old refuse classification bullshit, because that country's so into the nanny state that it's using nanny's labia as drapes for its four-poster bed. Rockstar swiftly recalled, patched and reissued the game and the mature rating was promptly restored, but if the history of moral panics has taught us anything it's that complying with the moral panic is the least effective way to end it. It's showing weakness, isn't it? It's like saying to the frenzied shark, if you promise not to bite all my arms and legs off you can have this used tampon. Lawsuits got underway, Clinton introduced the Family Entertainment Protection Act to federally enforce the ESRB ratings that would ultimately flounder like an armadillo in a ball pit, but it wasn't enough. Still brimming with huffy energy and not wanting to admit that this was all rooted in general frustration at losing control of a changing world and having nothing else to do all day but pick the kids up from soccer practice and shag the pool cleaner, the Moral Guardians extended their rage to Rockstar's next title, Bully, a slightly quaint game about a rascally schoolboy, which they decided, sight unseen, was some kind of loving tribute to the Columbine murderers. In perhaps the most hilarious episode of the time, a group apparently unironically calling themselves the Peace Holics organised a protest at Rockstar's headquarters, even issuing a list of demands, which is worth googling if you could do with a laugh, because their demands basically amount to immediately sabotage your own business and admit responsibility for all human suffering and wrongdoing. I can't seem to find any information on what the peaceholics were threatening to do if their demands weren't met. Presumably they were going to get real fucking peaceful on these motherfuckers. I think it's fair to say that hot coffee wouldn't happen today, as publishers would be able to digitally patch it out before Carl Johnson had finished his first crudely animated thrust. Any controversy about locked content on the disc is more likely to centre around publishers trying to flog it as DLC. But in the aftermath of insert name of currently most relevant American mass school shooting, we ask ourselves why the video game moral panic never seems to permanently go away. Who ultimately was hurt by hot coffee and benefited from Rockstar's chastisement? Well, we don't need to speculate, we have stats. In 2007, the class action lawsuit was settled and Take-Two agreed to pay every offended customer enough money to buy a slap-up McDonald's meal for one. But as of June 2008, less than 2,700 people had made a claim. Oh, how shocking, said the 11 law firms that have been drawing the case out. Guess people just aren't as committed to taking a moral stand as they used to be. Gosh, is that the time on my suspiciously expensive Rolex got a run? So yeah, if you want to know why moral panics drag on, it's because somewhere, somehow, a shadowy cunt is making shitloads of money from it. Basically the same reason they're still a DC cinematic universe. Sorry to fumble open an old wound, like a frustrated teenage cinema goer on a fourth date, but what do we think actually happened to Half-Life 3? Was it just shunted down the priority list because Team Fortress 2 needs 
needed some more fucking hats or knowing Valve did they almost finish it two or three times only to scrap the whole thing and start from scratch because they weren't 100% satisfied with the colour of the tomato sauce bottles in the 50s diner level. That is to say knowing Valve from back when they were game developers and didn't just spend all day sitting atop their dragon's hoard of plunder gently rubbing their scaly bellends with an emery board. With the epic and scintillating story of Half-Life that we all spend 15 years getting invested in now it seems resigned to end on an unresolved cliffhanger, fans of Half-Life may now turn to drastic means for the sake of some kind of closure. Fan fiction, cosplay, allowing Valve to essentially monopolise digital distribution for PC games. Some of them might even do something as drastic and self-destructive as pay actual money for Hunt Down the Freeman. But please, if you're even considering it, remember that there is always help out there, and failing that, morphine tablets. The staggering thing about Hunt Down the Freeman is not that it exists. If we had to stop the presses every time someone made a shitty fan game, the presses wouldn't be running long enough to print a fucking Bazooka Joe comic. The staggering thing is that this is a fan game embellishing Valve's story, using Valve's intellectual property being sold for actual money on Valve's own distribution network, and therefore carries an unspoken stamp of endorsement, despite being truly madly over-insistingly bad on every imaginable level, in ways that only bad fan games can be. The unique juxtaposition of the professional art assets and mechanics of the original game, taken apart and reassembled in the clumsiest way possible, like an art gallery's storage room after an earthquake. It also fairly obviously nicked a lot of its new content, weapons and level architecture from asset stores and other mods, as again, some of it looked competently made, but it's all been dropped into the game with the care and precision with which turds are placed in the bottom of a budgie cage. The kind of thing where you walk into an over-large room and there's just 12 zombies arranged in a neat row because I guess the people in this room were doing the fucking hokey-cokey when the aliens invaded. Hunt Down the Freeman is also weirdly plot-heavy, interrupting its shitty levels regularly for elaborate source filmmaker cutscenes, starring multiple intense soldier dudes who all look like they were created in the Mass Effect character customization screen with about 90% of the options removed, and sound like they had that usual mod problem where every character has different audio quality, because the actors were recording with their personal headset mics they more commonly use to swear at 12-year-olds in Counter-Strike. As for the actual story, you are a soldier bloke called Mitchell, who was one of the soldier blokes sent into Black Mesa in the original Half-Life to kill Gordon Freeman and all his scientist pals, but instead Gordon Freeman kills all our pals and duffs us up with a crowbar, whereupon we swear revenge on his orange ass. See, it's not just that the plot only makes sense if you know the plot of Half-Life and Half-Life 2, it's also that it only makes sense if we assume the main character also knows the plot of Half-Life and Half-Life 2. Why else would he solemnly swear epic revenge upon someone who, to him, should just be one random pimply scientist committing the sin of not wanting to be killed? In truth, Gordon Freeman is rather conspicuously absent from a game with his name and indeed lovely marketable face all over its Steam store page. There's an in-game screenshot on there showing his face that's a flat-out stinking lie. Mitchell gets embroiled in the seven-hour war against the Combine, bridging the plot of Half-Life 1 and 2, just in case this didn't sound unmitigatedly galling enough yet, and what follows is a showcase of some of the worst level design ever commercially sold. And in that I include every shitty asset flip Steam game consisting of one flat square of grass texture with some trees dotted around it, because in this case someone was actually trying. Environments are smashed randomly together so half the ways to go are empty dead ends and nothing indicates the actual way forward. I spent ten minutes in a bunker with some infinitely respawning friendly NPCs fighting off waves of infinitely respawning alien soldiers that all resemble a three-year-old's drawing of Mysterio from Spider-Man, before I realised I was supposed to get bored, wander off behind enemy lines and stumble into a nearby level transition. The enemy placement seems to be inspired by the placement of crumbs on my kitchen counter after I've made my special breaded chicken, with little consideration for the size of the environment, so after a while I just ran past everyone like I was having severe gastric problems at a wedding reception. There are also hazards that can only be bypassed with abilities and items the game forgot to fucking tell you that you have. You only find out they added a prone ability because what Half-Life really needs is to be more like a fucking Call of Duty game, he said, with sarcasm leaking from the corners of his mouth like hastily stolen cake, when you can't get past a hole too small to enter and look up a walkthrough. You also need to use a mantling ability that only bloody works if you've holstered your bloody guns. Unfortunately the game forgot to bind a key to holster guns, and even after I bloody did it didn't bloody work so I had to bloody no clip through the problem. And once the president is said it's very tempting to keep no clipping. Hmm, I could spend 20 minutes searching for the way out of this pitch black cave that I can't navigate because the game only gave me one flare and apparently I used it in the wrong place, or I could just open the console, kitty pride my way out and have enough time to go out and steal some more cake. Still the plot chugs happily along through its multiple breaking bugs and design fuckups, Mitchell ends up joining forces with the Combine to take down Freeman, revenge for being self-defence bitch slapped now taking precedence over revenge 
revenge for, you know, enslaving the human race, and the story eventually nonsenses its way to thrillingly and climactically ripping off a line from The Dark Knight Rises. Twice. But Hunt Down the Freeman is about what to expect from any game where half the developers are credited by their forum handles alone. The only reason I wanted to talk about it is because of the depressing indictment of modern gaming it creates, not by itself, but by Valve's apparent indifference to this waterfall of piss trickling down either side of its legacy's nose. Twenty years ago, Half-Life was a focal point in gaming's ongoing development as an artistic narrative medium. The next few years saw a slew of titles that combined AAA game design with genuine emotional story. But what happened between then and now? Why are the games routinely rewarded with AAA status and income exclusively lootbox-infested live-service bull Bullshit. Games designed not to inspire or stimulate our emotions, but to numb them, and hypnotise us into lab rats mindlessly pouring the button that makes treats come out, while the games created with love and artistic integrity drown beneath waves of bottom feeders like Hunt Down the Freeman that tear chunks of rotten flesh from the corpses of Valve's children as Valve itself, once habitual founders of new ages of narrative gaming, merely waves them on, barely glancing up from their tax paperwork. What happened to you? What happened to us? To the people we were supposed to become? I don't know, but it's probably safe to blame John Romero. All the new games I've played lately have had a distinctly rodenty theme. I don't know why rats and mice are suddenly the in thing, maybe because spring cleaning has begun and I finally chased out that weasel colony that was living in my favourite stack of damp newspapers. First I played Moss on VR, where you play a brave little mouse, but I figured we did some VR fairly recently and the tech's still only as relevant to most people's lives as the British space programme. Then Steam started pushing Vermintide 2 at me, which is mainly about killing rat dudes. Look, yeah, it's an exciting horde fighting game where you enter the rich Warhammer universe and start up your own pest control business. So I played that for a while and it brought many an excited cry to my lips, mostly sounding like this. Isn't this just Left 4 Dead? Um, no, it's Vermintide 2, so a completely different name. No, really, this is just Left 4 Dead. Four players, hordes of weak enemies, there's the hunter, there's the smoker, there's the spitter. Don't be silly, Yards. Left 4 Dead is a shooter, whereas this has a lot of melee combat. Oh, right, forgive me, let me reassess that. Isn't this just Left 4 Dead 2? Except with levels and loot boxes and crafting and all the usual live service manipulative hornswoggle. Not the best sales pitch, is it? Hey, kids, did you like Left 4 Dead 2 but wish that it held you in more contempt? So then Ghost of a Tail caught my eye, which is a plucky little indie game that came out of nowhere where you play a scared little mouse in a big rat fantasy castle in which before you say anything is a totally totally distinct entity from the red wall books. I'll just say the title again because you've no doubt forgotten it already, Ghost of a Tail, which I know sounds like it could be a pun but I've gone over it eight times with a set square and I'm damned if I can find one. There is a ghost in it and most of the characters possess tails but if that's a pun then a cardboard box full of warmed up dead fish is a harem. Anyway the main character is Tilo, a mouse minstrel imprisoned in the castle dungeon who must embark on a quest to find his wife, also a mouse, his mouse spouse if you will, and escape. The game that follows likes to refer to itself as an RPG, which is very cute, like a small child wearing their mum's coat, but doesn't have much in the way of RPG elements. You mainly stealth around until you find the armour that turns guards friendly, after which you just around. What attracted me to Ghost of a Tale was that it appeared to want to stick to its mouse guns. A lot of games with stealth on the menu only have it as a starter dish and it devolves into a straight combat main course at the slightest fuck-up, but Tilo isn't a fighter. His ability to knock out guards with thrown bottles to the bonds notwithstanding, but they don't stay knocked out for long, and he can only scurry away to find a nice toilet to hide in. I respect the way the game's focus on stealth enhances the story, establishing Tilo as physically all but useless and getting by on raw cunning, and yet the game also doesn't kick you in the teeth the instant you get spotted, because there are hiding places everywhere and it's easy to scurry off like a shy roommate furtively darting to the bathroom in their underpants. I like how Tilo's speed, small size and climbing ability give him options for bypassing guard patrols other than having to just creep along behind them the whole time like a toadying lackey with an enthusiasm for farts. But I still have some nitpicks with the stealth, the guard's attention meters still go up even when you're creeping, and only go down when you stop so you might as well not creep at all, just sprint stop sprint stop like an incontinent marathon runner. Until your stamina runs out, cause sprinting chews it up like popcorn and then all you can do is maintain a huffy brisk walk away from pursuing guards, like a suburban mother very offended that the Whole Foods wouldn't take their expired coupons. I'm also a bit iffy about the way the camera insists on sticking close to your little furry butt 
again like it's into farts, because it's hard to keep an eye on what's going on in the distance. Less a problem while you're in a cramped dungeon, more of one once the game opens up and you have to start exploring large confusingly laid out courtyards, or rather one large confusingly laid out courtyard over and over again, because this is one of those games whose dev team is only big enough to get about one tenth of the way towards satisfying your mum, and which could entirely fit in the back of my car given time and a hacksaw, so the game has to be economical with its content. There aren't that many environments, and you end up going back and forth across them a lot to complete the quests, almost all of which are fetch quests. It was starting to get a bit disheartening every time I saw a little speech bubble icon marking a new friendly NPC because I knew another fucking fetch quest couldn't be far behind. It's like some fantasy universe where the major religion was World of Warcraft and fetch quests supplanted handshakes as the main form of greeting. You escape the dungeon, meet your mysterious benefactor, and they tell you that they'll take care of all the finding your wife business just as soon as you do their fetch quests, all of which will splinter off into fractal fetch quests on the way, and would you mind opening that hatch for a second? Whoops, all my pets escaped, another fetch quest for you! Well, what do you want, Yards? You're a scared little mouse. Fetching stuff is just about your only skill besides scurrying and adorable nose twitching. What were you expecting? Ornstein and Smog? Smog? Smoth? What were you expecting, Ornstein and your mum? I get you, viewer, the fetch quests are just a means to enable the core gameplay, but there are two little sticking points hanging off that fact, like turds needing to be pinched off. Firstly, the only benefit to most of the fetch quests is XP, which only levels you up, which only increases your health, which is rarely an issue, because you're supposed to pull up your knickers and scarper at the first sign of danger. And secondly, whatever fun can be extracted from the stealth, not too far into the game you get a rat disguise that removes the stealth challenge entirely, and then the fetch quests are all that's left, like the bad joke on the lollipop stick that remains after everything else has been sucked away. I probably sound down on the game, and after a while I was tempted to go back to Vermintide, where I could at least decapitate any rat who demanded I fetch their pipe and slippers, but I stuck with Ghost of a Tale because I think the writing saves it, the dialogue's nicely written, it even at one point made me laugh in an out loud fashion. That's right, a literal lol. And it's a rare thing for me to literally lol because I'm jaded and got the tunnelling brain parasites. And I like the story, the way it starts out nice and simple, mice good, rats bad, escape dungeon find wife kiss wife shag wife? Question mark. But as you explore and learn about the world, things get more nuanced. Not mice good, rats bad, maybe mice flawed, rats complicated? See the rats tend to be dour and brutal and not the best people to call on if your restaurant's got a health inspection due, but there's also a nobility to them and they seem to be the only ones getting shit organised. Meanwhile, the mice are superficially good-spirited but in keeping with our stealth activities lean more towards being sneaky, thieving little cowards. And I hate their big noses and their monopolisation of global finance… wait, what were we talking about? Whoops, I hear the enchanting sound of freshly disembodied giblets raining upon the roof. I think we're getting a visit from that lovable nutter Kratos, video gaming's favourite god-botherer stroke god-pulveriser. But then we start God of War 4 and it's like our crazy alcoholic friend showed up to the party and quietly asks for a mineral water because he found religion in prison. You want to go out and murder some people who mostly don't deserve it, Kratos, mate? No, I have to set an example for the kid now. Oh, for the love of God, of war, Kratos. Last time we met you pulled a guy's head off because he had glowing eyes and he needed a flashlight. Now you're all teaching your kid about restraint and mercy and the only decapitation is consensual. Maybe there was a feeling God of War needed to age with its audience, but the original God of War's unique selling point was its sheer ridiculous audacity and violence, and now I feel it, like evil within, has been sacrificed on the altar of the serious hairy dad game, pioneered by The Last of Us that I still say is overrated. I should probably admit to being somewhat biased against God of War 4, and yes I am going to insist on calling it that, because I hate when a big game comes out on a Friday and takes up my whole weekend, that I could have spent wasting time playing video games instead of wasting time playing video games for work, but also because I remember the first God of Wars on PlayStation 2, specifically I remember how they used to start, with Kratos getting dropped into a room full of enemies, yelling, if anything's still alive in 30 seconds I'm gonna get a real narc on, and splattering them all against rocks like he's doing the laundry. Meanwhile, God of War 4 starts with Kratos very slowly carrying a big lump of wood home to cremate the missus. I'm slightly insulted by the way the game insists on making us 
press buttons and push forward to progress this glorified cinematic like we've got any fucking choice. Maybe I don't feel like carrying the body to the pyre. Maybe I think it'd look nicer on the privet hedge. I say the game starts this way, but really the game starts about six times. After the funeral, Kratos takes his little cum sprout hunting, and then the game finally starts when a troll shows up and the combat kicks in, but after we formally introduce him to the inside of his chest cavity, we just go back to bed. Finally, the game actually starts when an introductory boss appears, or at least after we kill him and set off on the big journey. Then we play through some linear levels for a while before we unlock the boat and the world opens up and the game can truly begin. Right after you get to Tyr's temple and unlock the Nine Realms, anyway. This is like listening to a story being told by a very old person and waiting for them to get to the fucking point, eventually realising there might never have been one in the first place. So yes, the plot. Having ensured that the ancient Greeks now have to pray to a skip full of guts and severed heads, Kratos is now hiding out in Norse mythology, but after the death of his wife, the local gods start noticing the four-mile radius of disemboweled goblins surrounding his house, and he and his son must go on a road trip through Midgard and the Nine Realms. Well, four or five of the Nine Realms. Gotta save something for the fucking DLC. To smash Odin and Thor's heads together until they start making squishing noises. Oh wait, no, not that. Sorry, I forgot we're a serious hairy dad now. We're just going to scatter the wives' ashes, learn valuable lessons about maturity, and maybe get some ice cream. In fact, despite the game constantly banging on about Odin and what a violent, paranoid fuckface he is, he never fucking shows up. And what I assumed at the time had been a rather bland and heavily scripted boss fight as a prelude to the final chapter of the game ended up being the final boss. And then at the very, very end, the game does a very cheeky thing by setting up an explosive climactic battle and then going, whoops, here we go again. Freeze frame, roll credits like it's fucking happy days. I know there's no law saying that games have to end with boss fights, but when I looked back on God of War 4, I felt like nothing much of consequence happened. We tootled around Midgard for a while, at one point a dragon pops up out of nowhere which we smack straight back down with a rolled up newspaper, and the only major Norse god we got to beat up was Balder, who it seems never recovered from being in too human and became addicted to meth. I partly want to blame this on Save It for the DLC syndrome, and partly on the open world design that it seems is now as mandatory for AAA games as picking up a case of crabs on shore leave. It means the plot can't be so consequential that we can't blow it off for three hours to go winkle picking, and the game's really not subtle about pushing that aspect. Hey, we could continue the plot, but then again we could piss about for a while, what do you say? Says Kratos' precocious little sperm deposit on three separate occasions. Nice try, game, but if I explore, I'm damn certain I'm gonna find treasure orifices that can only be spread apart with the magic anal beads we don't get till plot mission nine or whatever. You haven't mentioned the combat yet, Yards. Alright, fine, the game's pretty good for majestic landscapes, and I felt moved to progress just to see what the next environment was, and if we could get souvenir postcards to bore Kratos' neighbours to death with once we get home. Um, I was actually asking about the combat, and I suppose the relationship between Kratos and his overgrown pubic louse is quite nicely written, and watching them mutually develop over time is the big draw of the plot, even if the open world thing also makes their arc a bit stop and start. Yards, tell us about the combat. The combat's not great, alright? Are you happy now? It's over complex for one thing. It didn't take long for me to start finding it really hard to decide what combat upgrades to unlock, when I knew damn well just from the descriptions that I wasn't going to use any of the fuckers. Press R1 and then pause and then hold down R2 and bite down on the trackpad to do the Spartan gurgling death bum wiggle. Thanks, I think I'll stick to just mashing light attack and pressing dodge or block when appropriate. Oh yes, and later in the game remembering to switch between my ice weapon and my fire weapon, depending on whether the current enemy has orange or blue stink clouds coming out of their armpits. Also, I know you've long admired Kratos from afar, camera, but now he's let you into his life there's no need to be so fucking clingy. The way the camera stays right up his bum the whole time makes it hard to gauge distance and your surroundings which isn't ideal for melee combat, and I know for a fact the game fully agrees with me because it had to put visually off-putting and hard-to-read glowing arrows around you to indicate when something's standing right behind you with a smile and a massive stiffy. Seems like the much more elegant solution would have been to just draw the camera back a bit so it's not giving us a constant rectal exam. God of War 4... God of Four? God of Four is absorbing and imaginative enough to keep me going and perfectly satisfactory in a vacuum, but I can't help thinking of it as yet another classic series sacrificing some of its unique identity for the sake of making itself more like the standard AAA game of today. Grindy side quests, item crafting and standard camera bum-hugging instead of the arty fixed camera angles overseeing combat like watching a lawnmower blade inside an overheating tumble dryer. Younger Kratos was never relatable, but he was pretty fucking interesting to watch when he had a narc on and two fistfuls of Cyclops nutsack. Serious hairy dad Kratos is more human, but also boring, stuffy, and aloof. Yeah, Kratos really seems like a guy concerned with maintaining his 
dignity. That's why he coloured in his face with red biro and put on a cheerleading skirt. A Way Out is a new game by the dude who'd made Brothers build as an EA original, which is a classic oxymoron and is equally oxymoronically a linear narrative focused multiplayer only game. Let me talk you through my thought process when it was first pitched at me, it went something like this. Uh, mm, mm, e, mm, uh, but, mm, hmm. Now maybe I'm just a hideous man-child who clings stubbornly to his views because he lacks the imagination to envision an alternative, but I still didn't think you could have a story focused in a multiplayer-only game. Story calls for immersion, and you can't get immersed when there's another person there acting as a constant reminder of the real world. This is why one does not go to the cinema to socialise. And talking to the person sitting next to you through the whole film is a good way to get decked on the way to the toilet. But now having played through A Way Out, I have to admit that I've been proved wrong. I'm actually a very attractive man-child who clings stubbornly to his views. I was right about all that other shit. Although A Way Out does cunningly avoid the immersion issue by making it story incredibly bland and poorly written, so immersion was kind of a lost cause anyway. The story focuses on two men in prison, Leo, a career criminal with a frivolous attitude who probably got into the lifestyle because his distractingly big nose is large enough to smuggle the Hope Diamond, and Newfish, Vincent, a middle-aged banker led astray with a terminal case of Kane and Lynch dad bod. That becomes clear in an early scene when he's getting hosed down, pimply bum out for all to see. You mean like that bit in the Shawshank Redemption yards? You know what, viewer, I'm fucking glad you brought that up. A way out, if you want to get away with ripping something off, maybe rip off something that isn't a universally renowned cultural touchstone and the favourite movie of basically everyone. A Way Out boldfacedly lifts the entire new prison induction scene from the Shawshank Redemption, the warden character looks the same, there's a bit where people are tarring a roof, it's so blatant that one might expect the designer to claim that it's an intentional homage, but trust me A Way Out, you are doing yourself no favours by constantly reminding me of something infinitely better. I might decide I'd rather just watch the Shawshank Redemption while arm wrestling the person sitting next to me and get basically the same effect. So A Way Out is strictly two-player co-op and gratifyingly there's a split-screen local mode so you don't have to play online and overlay the game's cinematic soundtrack with some dickhead's nasally voice voice honking through a poor quality headset mic. Although the split screen has its own issues, there's a bit where one player has to tunnel out of their cell while the other keeps watch for guards, which would have been an effective bit of cooperative gameplay calling upon our communication skills, were we not free to just look at the other person's screen whenever we want like it's a fucking rear view mirror. So A Way Out posits itself as a game where the two of you must work together to solve its challenges, and you know what that means, lots of really heavy doors, get ready to stand next to them a whole bunch waiting for your partner to stop fucking about and come help you open it. At other times, throughout the first section of the game, when Leo and Vincent are piecing together their escape plan, there are puzzles to solve, usually based around stealing the tools they need, but pretty much all of them are I will do naughty thing, you distract guards so they do not see me do naughty thing. And if it's not that or heavy doors, the massive eye gouging finger quotes gameplay consists only of David Cage style slow time events where we are given precisely zero option but to follow one contextual button prompt after another. But the distract the guard puzzles all but vanish the moment you do escape from the prison, which is barely halfway through the game so god knows what the title is referring to after that, possibly Leo's massive nostrils and the way out they offer his bogeys. Gameplay instead begins to focus on slow time events, slightly ridiculous action sequences and bumming around environments randomly fiddling with stuff, the David Cage triple threat. After the escape, you break into a farmhouse to change clothes and steal a car, all of which is fairly straightforward, but for some reason you can also bum around the house messing with the ornaments, play a banjo, do the washing up, compete with each other at horseshoes. It's all completely useless, disconnected toddler's activity centre game design, and yet there was something about it that made me reluctant to move on. Maybe because I knew that more button prompt action sequences were waiting in the trees ahead to drop onto our heads and smother us with their body flab. But this was also the point where we started actually role-playing. As I dutifully searched the house for fresh clothing and car keys, I'd pass my partner in the hall trying on hats or bumming the dog and I'd roll my eyes like their passive-aggressive spouse. Also Leo can draw a little moustache on a painting which Vincent can then wipe off. And this sticks out in my mind because it's pretty much the only moment when the main characters or indeed any character display an ounce of personality. All the dialogue is completely bland and functional.
functional, and when it comes to action it seems either character will do most of the time, their weird insistence on always lifting the same side of the very heavy door notwithstanding. It makes me think of Fear 3, or for 3 year as I passively-aggressively insist on saying it, which was mostly lame, but the co-op was kinda interesting just because the two player characters had vastly different roles in the gameplay. It also didn't hurt that the characters were, if not likeable, at least somewhat engaging. Leo and Vincent are neither. The Kane and Lynch comparison rises again because they're just a pair of growly, boring dads, selfishly pursuing personal revenge at the expense of their families, busloads of innocent citizens, and whoever's job it is to resurface the tarmac after you're done high-speed car chasing over it. One thing you can do to make a criminal bumble cunt sympathetic, of course, is to give them a spouse and young child to think about, a tactic a way out apparently thought was worth using twice, for both its principal bumble cunts. So in the final act, Leo and Vincent are seeking revenge on a crime lord and torture one of his lackeys for information, a scene which could have been harrowing but they go about the torture like a pair of substitute woodwork teachers, and are informed that the crime lord is in Mexico. Apparently that's enough to go on. All of Mexico? He must be very fat. And once they get to all of Mexico, the gameplay switches again into a bog-standard co-op shooter. You can't accuse a way out of being static, but I wish it'd figure out what the fuck it's doing. You gonna turn into Cooking Mama next and end the game on a climactic souffle bake-off? Sadly not. I guess this is spoiler time, so everyone stick your head in a bucket of old lemons. The game ends with a plot twist that made me jump up and yell, watery bullshit spewing from an ornamental fountain game. This twist punches so many holes in the plot that the plot is now a cheese grater. The co-op game then turns competitive and the players fight each other to decide the ending. Interesting idea, but again the characters are so unengaging that the only drama came from the fact that I was playing with my girlfriend and had to balance my thirst for victory against making her all huffy for the rest of the evening. Here's a quote for your blurb, a way out. All the death-defying excitement of failing to acknowledge a new haircut. I noticed the sun saw fit to rise again this morning, so I guess Ubisoft is putting a sandbox game out. They really aren't a sandbox game what Sierra was to point-and-click adventures in the 90s. Let's just hack out two or three a year, because all those Tom Clancy plushies don't pay for themselves. And never mind that we're single-handedly making the sandbox game market look like what most online dating sites look like to heterosexual women. Last year it was Assassin's Creed's go, so now it's Far Cry's turn, so since I guess we're hacking out the usual thing, charismatic villain with army of followers takes over small helpless isolated nation and has to be opposed by a gormless tit with untapped survival skills they developed from routinely leaving all their gift shopping to the last weekend before Christmas, but where to choose for a setting? What part of the world could audiences credibly believe would allow itself to be taken over and isolated by a charismatic psycho with inexplicable legions of mindless followers and which furthermore has a greater density of firearms than it has effective social services. Hmm, I wonder. Thank you, Yards, I think everyone's gotten the joke. Oh hello, rural America, didn't see you there, hiding under Canada's frilly miniskirt. You ever read The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire? Because by my reckoning the US is up to about volume 4. So an isolated county in Montana has been taken over by a doomsday cult run by the prerequisite charismatic villain, so charismatic that there was no money left for the player character's charisma budget, so it's faceless silent protagonist a go-go. Faceless silent police deputy, rather, sent into the heart of Cultland to arrest their leader, but making the rookie mistake of showing up in a helicopter, which in the prologue of a video game is always tempting fate. Someone didn't play Outlast 2. Predictably enough, we soon find ourselves minus one helicopter in deep behind enemy lines and tasked with liberating the county piece by piece from the evil Trump voters. Well, actually, while one might get that vibe from the premise, in practice the politics are more even-handed. Yes, the cult are all religious fundamentalists, to whom gun ownership is more important than basic personal hygiene, but they're also very racially diverse psychedelic drug users sporting hipster beards and man buns, so you're pretty much covered whoever you personally think are the people presently ruining the country. While Far Cry 5 has much of what should now be expected from the Ubisoft sandbox, a phrase that for me must now be said with the same tone as the rape of Nanking, liberate the outpost, stop the convoys, find collectibles, stare at people till little icons appear over their heads like fairies on Christmas trees, but some effort seems to have been made to escape some of the Ubisoft sandbox's worst excesses. For example, you don't climb radio towers to unlock the map. In fact, the game makes a little joke about that, with the air of an unpopular teacher humiliating themselves in the Christmas play in the hopes that the kids will start liking them now. And as for liberating districts, there are only three, one for each of the main sub-bosses, although the charisma budget was still running low so they're all basically the same character as the main boss, infuriatingly self-assured soft-spoken religious nutter talking condescendingly at you like a Bay Area health food specialist. The game as a whole is also laid out the way I personally think all sandbox games should be laid out, the linear plot advances to the next 
next stage after you've done a certain amount of missions, it doesn't matter which or in what order. What is, after all, the point of a sandbox if it's just a rigid critical path of plot missions and all the side stuff is so much leftover Thanksgiving gravy? Or indeed of using a levelling system to ensure that only a tiny chunk of the sandbox is worth hanging around in at any one time? Yes, thankfully, unlike Assassin's Creed Origins, it doesn't feel like everything's designed around loot box and micropayment bollockery. Although there are still micropayments, so I'm not going to toot Ubisoft's horn just for not being quite as big, horrible, money-grubbing bastards as we know they're capable of being. Also, it actually has an ending. It doesn't just dump you back in the sandbox after the final story mission and go, hooray, the day is saved. I know from a layman's perspective it might seem like everything's as fucked as it's always been, but maybe you could finish off the last few side missions and then, I don't know, buy yourself a bunch of flowers. So don't plan to leave stuff for post-ending fuckabouts, because there ain't none. Focused as I am on narrative gameplay, I do appreciate this, because a story without an ending is orders worse than a story without a beginning. Mainly because a story without a beginning just doesn't exist at all, and therefore isn't much worth worrying about. But having said all that, the ending of Far Cry 5, let's raise the spoiler alert level to elevated, is a bit of a downer. Not disappointing, more depressing, and granted that's why I seek out stories, to actually feel something other than the usual background radiation of slightly aroused contempt, but it's kind of killed any future inclination I might have to replay the game, knowing it's not going to turn out well. And unlike, say, God of War 3, in which turning off the game is the only way to ensure that Kratos doesn't fuck the whole world up a dog's bumhole, and yet we play anyway for the fun and spectacular combat, the gameplay of Far Cry 5 is just going through the same Ubisoft sandbox motions as always. The apple has fallen far from the unforgiving trees of Far Cry 1 and 2. It's still relatively easy to get yourself a bow or a silent sniper rifle, squat in a bush and have all the outposts alarms and half the guards taken out before they can finish daydreaming about nobbing their first cousins, but it's also hardly worth using clever tactics like that, because on one occasion the outpost got alerted but the whole lot of them were taken out by the random NPC support character I'd brought along, while I was still scoping out the area for cougars. Also, the game seems to have absentmindedly forgotten that we can spawn as many attack helicopters as we want. 90% of the missions are outdoors and get real fucking trivial when you show up in an attack helicopter. Although granted it becomes much more likely that the mission will somehow fuck up if you do that. After I finished the last sub-boss, I promptly attack helicoptered over to the big boss's stronghold because that's what the game had always said to do, only to find it deserted. I was wondering if that was the point and was keeping an eye out for vats of Kool-Aid, but no, after I fast-travelled somewhere else I got a message from one of my earpiece friends going, alright, now go to the boss's stronghold. Sorry, we hadn't finished blowing up the party balloons. Far Cry 5 is about as good as Ubisoft sandboxes get these days, and take that for the massively qualified statement it sounds like. It's got Ubisoft's strengths on display and not so many of its bad habits. Time-killer gameplay that has been polished over umpteen games to a state of perfect functionality with a decent story to spice it up. The tying of missions to individual NPCs GTA style creates a deep cast of characters with admittedly some overlap. All three regions have their own version of tough no-nonsense leader lady and about nine variations on frivolous comedic violence liking person. The story is also pretty fucking relevant for the times. That was what was depressing about it. The world spiralling towards nuclear war? Well yeah, obviously that's a pisser, but hang on, is this something we could conceivably blame on the Democrats? You remember Nino Kuni 1, Wrath of the White Witch who doesn't show up until like right at the end? It was that heartwarming Studio Ghibli JRPG about a little boy who fucking stone cold kills his mum and then skips town so he can blow his allowance on pixie dust and party it up in Fantasyland with two older kids and a gonk. Well they've put out a sequel to it, one that's basically completely unconnected to the first one because the protagonist of that is presumably stumbling along the side of a highway by now in a drug-addled haze. Nino Kuni 2, Revenant Kingdom is sadly not a game about a society run by rocket launcher-wielding giant skeletons, but a typically twee cartoon fantasy JRPG with a slightly off-putting title. Now I wasn't sure I was going to do this game because you know what I'm like with JRPGs that aren't called Earthbound or Persona 5. I'll be rolling my eyes dismissively at the first sign of hairdos that look like they were crafted out of brightly coloured mashed potato by an extremely bored child who can't leave the table. But precisely 30 seconds into the plot I had a feeling I was going to have to talk about this one, firstly in a review, and then maybe at some kind of inquest into what the fuck Japan has been playing at for the last 30 years or so. So here's how the story starts. The President of the United States is on his way to a summit of the UN when the city he's driving through gets hit by a direct nuclear strike. Don't worry, you didn't just turn over two pages at once, this is still Nino Kuni 2. Moments before death, the President is transported to a fantasy world, specifically to the bedchamber of a little prince boy wearing cat ears. Well that's one explanation anyway, but maybe you should save it for the hearing, Mr. President. Also, he gets de-aged about 30 years for no 
particular reason, except it's the law that JRPG protagonists can't look old enough to buy health potion without getting carded. Fortuitously enough, the royal castle is in the middle of a coup, and the president rescues the prince from the ensuing purge by drawing his sidearm and straight icing some motherfuckers, before deciding maybe he shouldn't go 100% Ash Williams on this shit, and picks up a sword to ice motherfuckers with instead. At this point, I was more on board than a superglue enthusiast cheating at a surf competition, but I got a sinking feeling after the president gets the deposed prince, Evan he's called, which you'll notice very nearly naive spelt backwards, to safety, and the prince declares he's going to found a much better kingdom with blackjack and hookers. I was like, oh, don't you fucking dare make this little twerp the main character now, game. I want to be President Kickass. He's smart and capable with a hint of darkness to him, and all in all was probably written by someone with archaic ideas of what it takes to be a world leader. But then again, the protagonist does need to go through an arc, and President Kickass is about as arced out as a McDonald's logo from the word go, so fine, we'll play it your way, King Evan. But just so you know, the instant we unlock more characters than the standard party size allows, then you're going straight on the fucking bench. The guy in charge spearheading the adventuring party didn't make sense in Star Trek and it doesn't make sense now. President Kickass agrees to be Evan's chief advisor because hey, turns out statecraft is his primary skill set, and it's not like he's got any major dental appointments coming up, so the pair set out to find a new land and some subjects who'll agree to join their treehouse club for cool dudes, which turns out to be slightly easier than it sounds. There's a big old chunk of resource-rich, highly defensible land right around the corner that for some reason no one has claimed. Maybe someone saw the unpopular kids hanging around it, so the Fantasy United Nations declared it that smelly land for gay lords. Sadly, after the effective opening hook that is President Kickass, the plot settles into achingly typical fantasy JRPG territory. Evan and friends travel from city to city, sort out major civic problem du jour, pick up a party member, fight a boss, and then all aboard the ship, or the airship, or whatever you need to unlock the way to the next city. Every city is having its own issues with the tyrant ruler, but of course the only reason any of them are doing bad things is because the big baddie has corrupted them with wibbly-wobbly purple badness juice. When I say bad, I suppose I mean contrary to Evan's interests, because I don't think he wants to be throwing stones in the good-bad area, considering that his stated goal is to take over the entire motherfucking world and create eternal peace. Yeah, sure, Evan, you just want peace. It's all these unhelpful types who don't want to be subjugated that are stirring up the trouble. You'd have peace in no time if only they'd calm down and hold still while President Kickass stabs them to death. So Nino Kuni 2 is juggling a few layers of gameplay. First of all, standard combat, which is a full-on real-time hack and slash affair rather than turn-based battling, or indeed that god-awful hybrid system Nino Kuni 1 had, which was like being unable to decide if you're gonna walk or take the subway train so you try to do both at once with different feet. You've got your light attack, heavy attack, dodge and block, but 90% of the combat is a visually cluttered punch-up with groups of weak dudes so you can get through most of it perfectly well just mashing attack and occasionally doing a big clearing special move when they start getting too fresh and you need personal space. At other times, like in boss fights, you might as well not bother with blocking at all, since getting into block stance on the spur of the moment takes, I'd say, without hyperbole, about 5,000 years. Plus it doesn't absorb everything and only works from a specific angle, like a very badly designed tampon. So that's the basic combat, but there's also the kingdom management element, which isn't terribly deep. Sadly you don't get to set the tax rate or oversee the laying of the poo pipes. It's more your Facebook management game thing, build stuff to earn money to build more stuff to earn more money, so management in the sense of tying a piece of string to a slug so you can manage it along a drain pipe. Your kingdom also generates a constant stream of vendor trash inventory that you can collect on the off chance that one of the game's several trillion fetch quests will ask for some of it. Lastly, there are also skirmish battles that play like a basic real-time strategy where all your units are glued to the same lazy Susan. It's not terrible as gameplay interludes go, but that's kind of what it and a lot of the kingdom management stuff feels like, an interlude rather than interconnected. The thing is, as the game wore on, I inevitably started to feel underleveled for the main story missions, so I took time off from the plot to run through some side stuff, and after three hours of aggressive citizen headhunting, toy soldier battles, and fetching people sandwiches, I realised, hang on, my standard combatability has improved by basically fuck all. So what was the bloody point? Overall, Nino Kuni 2 feels a bit hacked out as sequels go, you'll note the conspicuously small monster variety and conspicuously absent animated Studio Ghibli cutscenes like what the first one had, and the story runs the gamut between total predictability and utter nonsense. The conclusion to the Ocean City segment leaps to mind, there was a disaster but the Queen is keeping the city alive with a magic time loop and a giant staring eyeball. What are you on about, fishy tits? You forbid love, because if the population changes 
changes, then the city explodes or something. Well, I just headhunted like 12 guys from your main square, so you're probably fucked. Have you considered solving everything with the power of friendship? Usually works for me. Fucking cheaper than fossil fuels. It's been a funny week, mainly focused around stabbing gigantic things and not just because I got my bell end pierced. It started when I tried out the distinctly unmemorably titled Extinction by someone called Iron Galaxy Studios, which rang a small bell, and when I looked them up it turned out they were the ones who ported Arkham Knight and Arkham Origins to Windows, which didn't bode terribly well. They used to say any port in a storm. They've now had to add unless it's the Windows port of Arkham Knight, in which case put on a waterproof hat and take your fucking chances. Come on, yards, be nice. Well, Extinction is a game about a tiny man with a very big sword and an impressive jumping height who has to kill giant city-destroying orcs and literally nothing else. Not without content. Apparently we're killing giant city-destroying orcs because we'd rather they didn't destroy cities. Seems a bit oppressive. What else is a giant city-destroying orc supposed to do with its time retrain as a giant dog-grooming orc? Extinction is a game designed around a very small number of elements. You could believe it was adapted from an arcade game from the 80s or something. You rescue civilians and kill normal, sensibly proportioned city-destroying orcs to fill your power meter. And once it's full, you can do a super mega slash that cuts off giant orc body parts which you can use to decapitate them. Or at least that's how I interpreted the tutorial. After I started repeatedly failing missions and got heartily sick of the king complaining my ear off about how I was lazing around desperately liberating innocent citizens while the giant orcs break all his lovely buildings, I eventually discovered that you only need to be at full power to do the final beheading. You can do a standard super mega slash whenever you want, but for me that raised the question of why we have standard attacks at all, because you have to pummel the tiny orcs for long enough to give your fists repetitive strain injury to kill them, but the super mega slash pushes their shit right in. Also you can cut up giant orcs arms and legs straight away, they grow back in time but it does build your power meter, so one viable strategy is to hang around the giant orc pruning it like a fucking bonsai tree until you can cut its head off. Sadly this does somewhat increase the chances of getting pounded into a cardboard cutout by a flailing arm swing you had no way to see coming, because you're too close to the fucking orc to see anything besides a huge screen-filling greasy armpit. And then an NPC complains at you again because another building got smashed while you were peeling yourself off the tarmac with a fish slice, so not the most rewarding experience. It is quite well presented with elaborate animated cutscenes which might surprise you if you've looked at the Steam user reviews and noticed the game getting fucking bent over a clothes horse and paddled like a naughty canoe. This might have had something to do with the fact that the game is selling for $60 at time of writing which is taking oceanic quantities of piss. For a game that's little more than just one mechanic tortuously stretched out into a dowdy list of same emissions in basically the same environment. You can get Shadow of the Colossus on PS4 for $40 and Extinction is no fucking Shadow of the Colossus. Maybe if Shadow of the Colossus only had one Colossus that you fought over and over again and every time you got hit your comatose girlfriend rang you up to yell at you because you obviously don't love her enough. Look, the giant orc bonsai pruning isn't unspectacular, but it needed more, and not to be wrapped on all sides by poorly thought out game mechanics like a sushi roll made with green duct tape. But it was in one of these Steam reviews that I noticed someone accusing Extinction of being an Attack on Titan ripoff and I thought this seems like the sort of thing a responsible journalist would research before embarrassing themselves by repeating it, so I looked up some gameplay videos of Attack on Titan 2, and then I thought, huh, that looks fun. Looks like something I'd much rather be playing now, actually. You know what? Fuck it, double review. Attack on Titan 2 is based on the anime of the same name, in which the inevitable cast of highly emotional 14-year-olds use repurposed extreme sports equipment to fight an invading force of the eponymous Titans, which are a pretty effective fucking nightmarish design, looking like humans with weird proportions and big smiles, like someone brought to life all the hideous monstrosities we've ever made in RPG character customization screens as a joke. Their brazen nakedness also acts upon primal fear dredged up from that time in your childhood when you saw your dad stand up in the bath. Well, speaking of character customization engines, this game has one of those very things, because we're not playing as any established character in the series. You are original character Do Not Steal, who becomes everyone's best friend and is just as good as the protagonists. So I guess it's like Sonic Forces, but for the Attack on Titan fanfiction weirdos. I never watched or read any Attack on Titan before, and this doesn't strike me as the best way to experience the story for the first time, as the important events tend to lose their impact. Oh look, one of our schoolmates just turned into a titan slightly resembling a roided up Steve Tyler. Bit weird. Oh well, let's go home and craft some fucking sock suspenders. But anyway, 
as with Extinction, Attack on Titan 2 is like one game mechanic worked to breaking point, namely Titan Fightin', or Titi Fighty. The basic premise is that Titans can only be killed by slitting up the sensitive spots, and the best way to do that is fucking demented high-speed kamikaze strikes with a combination of grappling hooks and jetpacks, like you're flicking an elastic band and the elastic band is you. Let's not burden proceedings with silly questions like why don't you use a gun, or how about just fling your sword on the end of the elastic band rather than fling your entire person into biting range, because this mechanic is, in brief, a blast. The movement system brings back happy memories of the web swinging in that one good Spider-Man game on the GameCube, and while you have to swing around a Titan and dive-bomb their precious bits an average of about five million times, it's got the right mix of cathartic speed and finesse to not get too boring. But then of course the game fucking slams the brakes on your swinging and your dive-bombing the instant your blades break or your gas runs out, and that's where we get to all the faffing about packed around that central mechanic. Everything's quantified, health, dexterity, blade power, blade strength, real strength, real speed, real Ghostbusters, so downtime between missions can be spent crafting and side-questing to add tiny increments to your stats in ways that mostly don't seem to add anything to the overall feel of the combat. There's a rather Persona-esque mechanic where we level up relationships with characters to develop skills, a bone thrown out for the fanboys, I assume. There are way too many characters and pretty much all the relationships go as follows. I want to do my best. I also want to do my best. Let's both do our best. Whoops, I only did nine-tenths of my best. Burn the heretic! But when I said Extinction needed more than just its core mechanic, I guess this is sort of what I meant. Downtime is essential. Extinction's flat to-do list of giant monsters to kill made it harder and harder to summon enthusiasm for the next one, but in Titan, after I was deposited back at base after missions, I'd get drawn into some conversations, light filing of crafting items and general cooldown until I'm thinking, oh go on then, I can fit one more completely non-Freudian tighty-fighty in before Dad stands up in the bath. I mean bed. So after God of War was about Kratos taking his pet semen sample for a walk, it's no secret that I think that narrative AAA games have a preponderance of serious hairy dad games right now, almost certainly because game developers and veteran players are now old enough to be dads themselves and want to envision a world in which their families actually respect them. All I'm saying is, surely there are other kinds of people with stories worth telling besides serious hairy dads. Why don't we ever hear about serious hairy mums? You know, games in which jaded and battle-weary mums escort their helpless child as they kick down the door of a jamba juice and demand to speak to the manager. Oh wait a second, does Bayonetta 1 count? Well anyway, let's play Yakuza 6. Hopefully there won't be so many poignant lessons about fatherhood in a game centred around stoving faces in with other people's bicycles. Oh for fuck's sake, there's a baby! A baby that the hardened, permanently scowling dragon of Dojima Kazuma Kiryu has to amuse in a baby amusing minigame where we swing him about like a sack of spuds to fill the baby amusement meter. Well, you're still surprised by the range of weird side activities in Yakuza games yards, but this isn't side activity, this is critical path. And worth mentioning because virtually everything else on the critical path is the same shit one should always expect from Yakuza. There's a massively convoluted plot to take over Japan that Kazuma Kiryu discovers and foils basically by accident during a personal investigation he started pursuing after he got really cross about a beautiful innocent lady being dishonoured. And the story is told through a series of prolonged scenes of very serious-faced men staring at each other saying ominous things until they get bored and start hitting each other with bikes. There's one particularly hilarious scene where one dude starts splashing gasoline around and the other dude just continues to sit angrily staring at him because it's literally the only way anyone in these games knows how to deal with situations. Maybe the match will go out if I scowl slightly harder at it. This time, as well as the usual dicking about in Kamurocho, we get to spend time in Hiroshima, where the plot eventually centres around a mysterious secret that the town's leaders will stop at nothing to keep covered up. Which I don't want to spoil, so let's just say it's a giant robot brontosaurus. Frankly, it might as well have been that. It's about as absurd, and in the end what it actually is doesn't seem to matter a tinker's fanny flap, because it never does anything. Kazuma Kiryu never gets to ride on top of the giant robot brontosaurus or slide gaily down its tail like on the Flintstones, it just shows up looming over the houses and all the characters look at each other and go, well, secret's out, time to take our shirts off and start decking each other. This is all part of why I love Yakuza games, they're hilariously fucking dumb and yet so earnest you can't help getting invested. Having said that, Yakuza 6 definitely feels lacking compared to its predecessors. Kiryu is the only player character, the new Hiroshima sandbox is kinda low on content, and even Kamurocho feels a bit deader than usual. It wouldn't even let me play on the skill testers at the batting cages, and they haven't even tried to mix up the standard combat like Yakuza 0 did with switching around the main character's favourite part of Neapolitan ice cream. It's
It's just the usual punch, kick, stomp, bite to the face combat. Incredibly unbalanced combat as well. Nothing seems to be nearly as effective as picking up a bench and flailing it around. That just wrecks shit like a high fibre diet. And when there are no benches, I eventually discovered that even the final boss is made your cringing shirtless bitch if you just keep knocking them down with flying drop kicks. Don't you see, Kazuma Kiryu, the bench was in you all along? The only major shake-up to the core gameplay is a levelling system where the XP is split between five stats – Strength, Defence, Sage, Rosemary, and Umami. And this doesn't really add much except a delightful rainbow colour scheme to enjoy as I go down my stat screen, half-heartedly mashing the A button to make them go up. If the intention was to try to encourage specialisation then it was a misguided one because Kiryu was only ever called upon to deck people and none of the stats do much to change the effect of picking up a bench and going on a mandible safari. But I think it's finally clear to me that the draw of Yakuza games absolutely isn't the main plot or the critical path. Look, I'm gonna spoil every fucking Yakuza game's main plot now. Early in the game there'll be a scene where you have a growly voice angry stare sit down meeting with someone important that doesn't end in a fistfight. Someone in that meeting is the main villain. Probably someone shifty looking off to the side. At the end of the game, after the bit where everyone puts on dark suits and walks slowly down the street as the weird unfucking around music plays like we're going to a West Side Story themed funeral, they'll be the one who pulls their breakaway suit jacket off to reveal their torsos built like a fucking double-decker bus with the Chronicles of Narnia poster on the back. So forget all that, it is the side stuff that makes Yakuza games that are usually the thing to make me start laughing until my buttocks fly off into a sandwich. One highlight for me this time around was the sexy internet chat room minigame where a live-action video of a sexy lady plays as we have to complete a series of button prompts to type phrases like YOU ARE SEXY LADY and MMM LOVELY BOOBS in all caps. And I think what really made this for me was the image of Kazuma Kiryu typing in the bottom left, still wearing the furious scowl he uses to confront dastardly villains. And then of course there are the numerous side stories wherein Kiryu demonstrates his unending willingness to humiliate himself at the request of random strangers. And none of this would be as funny as it is without the very serious main plot, which is as good a justification for its existence as any. When we agree to put on a mascot costume to amuse the kiddies, it's funnier because it's the dragon of Dojima in there making a happy mascot pose, who half an hour ago made a room full of Yakuza captains piss themselves because his left eyebrow slightly twitched. Oh yes, and in keeping with every Yakuza game, having a main side activity like the real estate stuff in Zero or Akiyama's Hostess Club Stroke Blue Ball Factory in Yakuza 4, this time around we have a street gang simulator. Yeah, I can tell you're serious about leaving the Yakuza life behind, Kiryu. That must be why you exclusively hang out with Yakuza and casually started a fucking street gang. We develop a fraternity of disillusioned young people and fling them Pokemon style at enemy gangs in a series of contained real-time strategy battles, or rather real-time press-the-button to spawn dudes battles for there isn't much strategy involved. I only played four or five of them but they all took place on perfectly straight roads with an area chance for even the simplest pincer movement. About the only strategy I figured out was to only spawn the big tank top dudes at the start of the battle because otherwise it takes so long for them to saunter leisurely into action that by the time they get there it'll all be over and everyone will have pissed off to the ice cream social. In case it wasn't clear, I'm not impressed by this whole side quest, don't see why we needed the gang at all when Kiryu has taken on bigger numbers by himself with just his two fists and a communal seating area, and I'm less impressed by Yakuza 6 generally. Yes, it's another idiosyncratic ball of Yakuza brand fun, but it feels lesser than its predecessors. Less player characters, less depth, less complexity, less all forget about it and play Yakuza 0 instead. Haha! <laughs> Doing retro reviews of games like Okami and Crash Bandicoot just because they put out an HD re-release in a rather base acknowledgement of history more selective than a Midwestern high school sex education course is all very well, but you know what, it's probably more important to retro review games that are never getting an HD re-release, the embarrassing little moments that publishers would rather we'd all forget, but one can learn a hell of a lot more from failure than from success. As I frequently established, this industry never learns anything, tee hee hee, because it's always so quick to reboot franchises and eschew backwards compatibility in an attempt to forget its failures. But if failure is how we get better, then there are some publishers that 
that if they embraced their failures would be wielding the fucking Infinity Gauntlet by now. Unrelatedly, let's talk about Konami. More specifically, let's talk about Silent Hill 4. Silent Hill 4 is one of my favourite Silent Hill games after 2, but I'm certainly not going to argue that it's a good game. It is one of the few Silent Hill sequels to embrace a truly original concept, considering every Western Silent Hill game is just trying to recapture Silent Hill 2. Ergo, clueless dork with dark secrets stuck in haunted town confront dark secret win prize. Silent Hill isn't necessarily that. Silent Hill 4 isn't that, and it's still unmistakably Silent Hill. Now I'm bored of saying Silent Hills, and from now on I'm going to call it Splappy Boom Blappy. The essence of Splappy Boom Blappy is in a grim, cold, oppressive atmosphere of entrapment, like being locked in a campsite lavatory late at night, and Splappy Boom Blappy 4 brings that to a whole new style of explorative gameplay focused around the titular room. The premise is, Henry Townsend, a man resembling a Thunderbirds puppet wearing denim pyjamas, is renting a nicely fitted if slightly washed out apartment and wakes up one morning to find the door chained shut from the inside. A few days of sucking on the radiator for hydration later, a hole appears in his bathroom wall, leading to a series of bizarre nightmare worlds where he keeps witnessing people get murdered who then turn up dead in real life. The reason for it all probably loses something without context, but to give you the quick cheat sheet version, it's because a deranged ghost murderer thinks that Henry's apartment is his mum. And let's just say he ain't chuffed with his new stepdad. If Silent Hill 2 captures the feeling of walking home through unfamiliar back streets on a cold, foggy night with a pocket full of loudly jingling valuables, Silent Hill 4 is like repeatedly waking up from a nightmare, seeing the familiar contours of your bedroom in the darkness, and being afraid to fall back asleep in case you go back to the dream about the grey monkey people with testicles for heads. Henry's room is his haven he can come back to to save and heal up in between nightmares. Cleverly, the camera switches to first-person mode in the room, so it feels cosy and intimate, and outside it we go back to the wonky third-person camera that traditionally lent Splappy Boom Blappy games a dreamlike sense of detachment by refusing to behave itself. And then, having gotten you reliant on the safe haven, the game starts taking it away from you in the second half, and that's when you know your buttocks have been splashed with the cold toilet water of Omen. The room concept is masterful horror design and evokes the spirit of Splappy Boom Blappy without needing to physically go to the eponymous town. Henry Townsend doesn't even have a dark secret for fuck's sake, although the clueless dork thing I'll grant you. Henry Townsend would take the gold in the all Silent Hill protagonist's clueless dork off. He looks and acts like he got partly concussed from an elephant dropping a ten pound turd on his head, which on reflection might explain his hairdo. Obviously a big sleepy nerd whose heavy melee attack looks like he's trying to give himself whiplash is somewhat unqualified for action, hence the combat being a bit wonky. But that's Splappy Boom Blappy tradition, James Sunderland was just a clerk out of his depth and that's why he swings bits of wood like he's trying to apologise between each blow. We accepted that this was part of giving us a sense of vulnerability and that being able to dodge roll everywhere would have just been fucking stupid, mentioning no homecomings, I mean names. It's just that Silent Hill 4 goes a bit too far with the awkward gameplay creating vulnerability bit, and I think the point of going too far is when the awkwardness stops making sense in context. It makes sense that James holds a gun like he's afraid of the smell, it does not make sense that Henry can't stack bullets in his limited inventory, or that ten bullets take up the same amount of pocket space as a fucking chainsaw. Also, in survival horror, where one of the principal activities is sticking your nose in every nook and cranny looking for puzzle items and bottles of Yakult, it is more annoying than scary to be constantly badgered by indestructible ghosts, especially when there's a constant roaring sound when they're around like you're playing the game while your mum's trying to vacuum. Splappy Boom Blappy 4 has the Capcom 5 quality of no middle ground, its good ideas are great and its bad ideas are great big flatulent chinchillas in the fruit salad. And nowhere is this encapsulated better than in the sound design. On the one hand, it's got the usual Splappy Boom Blappy really effective use of spooky ambience and unnatural gloopy sounds that are the audio equivalent of sticking your hand in a bucket of expired Rice Krispie squares, but then there's the overly loud footstep noises, of which there's only like one for each floor type, so walking across a gantry is like there's an annoying child in the room with a new drum. And some of the monster audio design is a game of spot the stock sound effect. The little buzzy moth things that are another thing that's way more annoying than scary. When you stomp on them, it sounds like someone threw a custard pie in a Looney Tunes short. And then there are the nurse monsters that burp when you hit them. This is probably something that would have been scarier to the Japanese, because they're culturally a lot more concerned with etiquette, and if you break wind at the dinner table there, you're expected to disembowel yourself. But the real humdinger of the bad design decisions is the entire second half of the game being a fucking escort quest. Again, awkward gameplay to make us feel vulnerable we'll accept until it stops making sense, and it doesn't make sense that this stupid broad won't take her fucking high heels off when ghost murderers are in pursuit. Keeping her alive might make sense to Henry,
angry if he's got a shy little chub on for her, but it doesn't make sense to me, the player, when I'm using a pull my yakult, diving between her and testicle head monkey attack. I try to sprint past all the monsters, but Henry is a good boy, raised to politely stop and play out his whole pain animation whenever something hits him. And sometimes he's so polite he'll fling himself somersaulting through the air at the slightest blow. Fucking Alucard from Symphony of the Night would tell him to stop milking it. So that's Blappy Boom Blappy 4. Really good story, really good concept, really shit gameplay, but it pulls off the surreal, oppressive, dingy atmosphere of Silent Hill better than any of the Western titles, and its sheer originality automatically makes it more deserving of attention than Silent Hill's 2.5, 2.6 and 2.7. Sadly, it's practically abandonware. It was absent from the god-awful HD collection, and Konami, it seems, are more concerned with making Metal Gear-themed Pocky holders these days. You'll find second-hand copies kicking around, but the point of buying games is to support creators. And when you buy second-hand, you ain't supporting shit but the previous owner's meth habit. You may remember the last time we here at Zero Punctuation shoved our critical periscope right up Conan the Barbarian's loincloth, it was for Age of Conan, quite a few years ago now. One of Funcom's many attempts at memorpagas that went the way of all the others, because running a memorpaga is like having to share your house with an incontinent giraffe that's constantly injuring itself on the staircase and incessantly complaining to you about how the PvP's unbalanced. But massive online roleplaying was a natural fit for the Conan universe, because where else could the gameplay capture the feeling of being strapped to a grinding wheel for 20 fucking years? L, O, and furthermore, L. Age of Conan was a perfectly faithful adaptation in that there were a lot of deserts in it and player characters had the option of running around with their giggle zones hanging out like they were role-playing as a Boris Vallejo painting. This was a privilege you may recall I immediately set out to abuse by creating the character of Thinderella the Necromantic Naturist and vowing never to constrain my giggle zones with earthly fabrics. Imagine my joy then to discover that Conan Exiles is bringing the wonder of the giggle zone to a new generation and the opportunity arose for Thinderella to ride again. Although after turning all the body sliders down to minimum, Thinderella was still rocking a monster booty which was slightly disappointing, but then I suppose this is the nature of body types in the Conan universe. If your thigh muscles are only as big as medium-sized pool floats, you officially qualify for humanitarian aid. So with Conan's sex aisles, Funcomer having another spin of the severely unbalanced roulette table that is Mamorpaga development, so let's hope- excuse me, Yahtzee Crocher of the internet, but Conan Exiles isn't a Mamorpaga, it's a survival game. Oh, forgive me, I got confused because it's a role-playing game that's massively multiplayer and online. Oh yes, and the gameplay is largely concerned with grinding up specific numbers of items all bloody day. Yes, granted, smartass, but the difference is you have to come up with the grindy fetch quests yourself. It's like self-flagellation, but with boredom. Oh yes, and you can play it single-player. Well, that sounds to me like the perfect excuse to see if it holds up as a single-player game. You know what I'm like with other people, I'm fine with them on principle, manufacturing things and driving buses and shit, I just can't stand when they try to relate to you or ask you to stop making lampshades out of their flesh. Besides, there's a chance if I join a multiplayer server that they might have turned nudity off, and that would have been completely offensive to Thinderella's lifestyle choices. So the game starts promisingly, with your character already in their skivvies and nailed to a cross in the middle of a desert, although the process has done fuck all to make you less beach body ready, so Conan the Barbarian in his obligatory contractual appearance shows up, cuts you down and leaves you to figure out the rest yourself. Fortunately, there's a source of fresh water about five minutes walk away since the authorities were probably busy and couldn't be bothered looking for a really big desert to abandon you in. So Thinderella started heading over there, picking up enough plant fibres on the way to craft a complete set of clothing for herself, by which I mean one pair of hand wraps and some flip-flops. Although it wasn't quite as intuitive as that, surprisingly for a modern game there aren't any contextual button prompts, you just have to figure out that you're supposed to stand in front of a bush and keep mashing X until all the useful parts of the bush are extracted, meaning the bits that were stopping the rest of the bush from disintegrating and mysteriously fading from existence. Also, you drink water by standing in some water and mashing X until you have sucked enough moisture in through your kneecaps, and here's my advanced level tip, if your giggle zone starts to bloodily disappear, that's an alligator, you should probably move. But it did make me realise that naturism has really caught on in the Conan universe since our last visit, as every time you die the game strips you naked again and deposits you on the spawn point with no stuff, par for the course really, but after you streak into the cave of enemies you died in last time and desperately mash the take all button over your corpse as several nonplussed giant spiders gather to nibble your bum, the game also doesn't re-equip everything, so you have to then streak back out, climb a tree and patiently glue all your tools and weapons back to your quick select wheel before you can fight back. And some of these monsters really don't know how to take a fucking hint. I ran across two entire fucking biomes once and the giant spiders were still nipping at me flip-flops. Damn this extremely attractive bottom of mine. But I found a nice quiet spot to set up base camp that was convenient for the river, the local spider
inside a cave in the rock tree and bush emporium and started progressing my way up the tech tree. Make a stone pickaxe, one bit of wood, five rocks, gotcha. Make a bedroll, one bit of wood, five leaves, that's done. Now make a wooden storage box, 100 bits of wood. Whoa, 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 that was a fucking jump. I only wanted a footlocker, not a fucking Regency wardrobe with complimentary portal to Narnia. Now let's build a tannery, that'll be 240 rocks. What? It's like three bits of wood with skin stretched over it, what are the rocks for? You're gonna put it on a gravel driveway? Look, we're just making sure you get the full intended experience, that is to say wasting hours of your life banging a rock with another smaller pointier bit of rock. My progress up the tech tree then hit a bit of a beehive when I suddenly needed 100 bits of iron to make a blacksmith's bench, and I hadn't seen any iron up to then. Well, tell a lie, I found one ingot in a dead bandit's loincloth, which I can only assume he was hoping would impress all the naked women on corpse runs, but I resolved to look this up before I set up a bandit concentration camp, mindful as I am of the perverse glee with which survival games refuse to tell you shit. One trip to the wiki later, it turned out there were some iron deposits that spawned in select locations around the mountains half an hour's trudge away, like nature's pubic thatches, and I'd just have to mine them all, let them respawn, then repeat. Blimey, lucky this wasn't multiplayer, you probably have to sign up for a waiting list. But now that I had iron, I could finally explore the game's most enticing feature, building a fuck-off torture wheel to turn NPCs into my slaves. Weirdly, the wheel came with a dude already on it, despite being ostensibly empty, maybe he was the model they used for shop floor demonstrations. I clouted a bandit from the nearby camp around the skull, dragged him over. Incidentally, this is where we discover that you can't drag and climb, so hope you didn't build your base somewhere you can only access by climbing, like some kind of sensible person who understands base defence, and shoved them up the demonstration model dude's butt. Thirty boring minutes on Gas Mark IV later, my brand new slave popped out and Cinderella promptly stored him away on her person. Somehow. Let's not speculate. I equipped him, planted him on the floor, and he proceeded to fucking stand there. Would you like to come and mine some iron with me, slave? No, I'm a fighter, I'll just stay here and guard your base from fuck all. My sword's kinda shitty though, better grind me up a nicer one. And that was when I decided I'd had enough of colon textiles. When I end every play session by declaring bollocks to this shit, that's probably all you need for review purposes. It's hard to come back from a bollocks to this shit situation, and your bollocks won't appreciate it much either. I have a feeling it's going to be a long summer. E3 hasn't even been and gone yet, and I already emptied out the retro review bucket. Alright Steam, stop kicking that visual novel developer in the stomach for a second so I can see what's on your top setters list. Well, you know what all the kids have been talking about this week? House Flipper. Hmm, intriguing. Just one question. Are you taking the piss? No, seriously, it's had even more user reviews than Wizard of Legend. It's a thrilling first-person RPG in which you play a proud, stoic adventurer who comes to a land blighted by the forces of a less-than-satisfactory housing market, and must battle sinister oil stains and a mismatched internal decor with naught but your mighty stippling brush and the colour swatches of Zenthar. Oh, you are taking the piss. But you know, I've occasionally found some value in games that fall into the genre of what it's like to have a real job. I've whiled away many an hour in Stardew Valley and Euro Truck Simulator, and I do have a lot of podcasts I've been meaning to listen to, and House Flip is the kind of thing we'll all be playing for escapism in a few years after society collapses and we've got a few hours to kill before Lord Humongous raids us at dawn. So this is where we are. I'm reviewing a daytime television simulator for frustrated spouses who want to imagine trussing up their fantasy dream home even as their real life home descends into filth and squalor around them. So you play a sort of mercenary handyman and at first to get to grips you're given some contract jobs where someone just wants you to come into their house and clean, repaint, buy specific furniture and or shag the missus. But once you've got a handle on things and more importantly a big sack of cash, you can start buying your own houses, all of which were apparently recently vacant by meth-dealing cockroach farmers who never quite pinned down the difference between a toilet and a floor. So first of all, we clean. You remove the litter and crystal meth gift baskets by pointing and obliterating them with your laser eyes, and then you clean all the stains by holding out a perfectly dry mop and waving it a bit. Now, annoying as it was in Viscera cleanup detail to have to pick up every shell casing and severed knob and carry them all to the furnace in a bin while walking like you had a pogo stick strapped to each leg, I don't think you're doing us any favours in a job simulator game by removing work. Isn't that what we're here for? And using the mop in Viscera cleanup detail had a cathartic and, for want of another word, visceral feel to it. It was 
satisfying to thrust a newly wetted mop into a big stain while imagining it was the face of your supervisor. In comparison, using the Limpass mop in House Flipper is frankly humiliating. This is supposed to be House Flipper Simulator, not Stone Dare Traffic Controller Simulator. So after that comes the painting, and again I feel it suffers from oversimplification. Point paint roller at bucket, point paint roller at wall, hold down button. Even if you can only glimpse half an inch of the wall between a bookshelf and a meth lab, you can still merrily roll away. I'd have appreciated this more if there'd been a more systematic aspect to it, you know, not moving the furniture before you start painting results in ruined furniture that you'll have to half-heartedly jab with your mop. You also need to install appliances like showers and washing machines in weirdly obsessively detailed mini-game sequences where all you're expected to do is click on components as the game highlights them. And gameplay-wise it's about as involving as leafing through a booklet of IKEA assembly instructions. And once the contract gigs are done, the game isn't much more than an interior design creativity toy with a number representing your cash flow that you can close your eyes and dream is real. I think we could have done with a bit more gameplay structure, a win state, like say earning enough to buy Disneyland and sell it to the Russian Mafia. Thank you for your assessment, Yahtzee. Now please supply an explanation and apology for reviewing House Motherfucking Flipper. Ah, I got no excuse. Of all the new games I played this week, it's the one I kept coming back to. So there's something absorbing about it, or maybe it's the kind of downtime I seek after a long shift at my day job as an international jewel thief. And the thread of games about working a repetitive job leads us loosely to our second game, Far <laughs> Lone Sales, which is a narrative indie game from the post 9-11 politics school of game design, i.e. keep moving right until you can't anymore. Far is a game about... That doesn't sound right. Lone Sales is a game about... That doesn't sound right either. I'll just call it Bollocks. Bollocks is a game about making a journey. And because you're a little waste paper basket person with tiny legs, you obviously have to make that journey in a gigantic land sailing vessel the size of an average suburban McDonald's. There was an obscure LucasArts game called Night Shift back in the day that I used to like about running around a big Heath Robinson machine checking on all the components as it ran. And I think it's a core gameplay concept worth exploring because it captures all the thrill and excitement of turning on a self-assembled PC for the first time, not knowing if it's going to run or embed a fan blade two inches into your fucking eye socket, and Far Bollocks scratches that itch to a degree. The idea is you've got to keep your ship going by running around it loading fuel, putting the sail up and down, releasing steam, putting out fires, making sure everyone's got cheesy biscuits, and it's well designed enough that this is all effectively tutorialised without dialogue, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to inform you Mr and Mrs Sales that your child is suffering from a severe case of indie game-itis. If only you'd brought her in when she first started emitting sad music and washing out most of her colours, it's now progressed to a terminal case, complete with bog-standard, deliberately ambiguous, unsatisfying ending. I'm afraid there's not much more we can do now except submit her for the best art direction prize at next year's Game Awards and hopes you can one day rejoin society. No, small child scary world standard indie brand atmosphere doesn't inherently worsen the game, but I still think Far Lone Bollocks is missing something. Maybe the attempt at a thoughtful, understated tone doesn't match the inherent concept of piloting a fuck-off giant roadster that wouldn't have looked too out of place with Mad Max hanging off the front, looking like he's undergoing a wasteland teeth whitening procedure. The sort of thing I'd want to push up the top speed and then ride on top of going, clang, clang, clang goes the trolley, ring, ring, ring goes the bell, crunch, crunch, crunch go the bones of old people not getting out of the way. That might have stirred a little engagement up from the dried up store of emotions I keep repressed so hard they dangle out my asshole like a prolapsed surgical glove, but having to stop every five yards to pick up some fuel or solve another gate opening puzzle killed the pace. Yes, I know there's a vacuum for picking up fuel, but I turned it off, because it kept messing up my fuel storage organisation system. Maybe it would have helped if we'd established a need to get to or away from something quickly, to justify going in the vehicle. There's one brief bit right at the end when you have to go full speed to escape a volcano, and otherwise it's the video game equivalent of a vegan diet, watery, anemic and disappointingly low on steaks. Oh boy. A new game by David Cage. Let's get the bingo card out. Ooh, a game about androids with only vague ideas of how to act like human beings. Finally, David Cage is writing what he knows. Lol. In all seriousness, while David Cage games are universally horribly written, cringeworthy of suspect values, mired with gameplay akin to trying to watch a movie while fighting to get the remote away from an overexcited dog, they. Um, 
hang on, it's coming to me. Oh yeah, they're usually good for a laugh. Although the biggest one I got from Detroit <laughs> Become Human was right at the end when there was a little survey to get my impressions on the game, and one of the questions was, were there any points when you were personally touched by the story? All the time? Most of the time? Some of the time? Or no? Obviously I answered, no. And when I checked the global stats, 90% of those surveyed had also answered, no. So congratulations, David Cage. Something in one of your games finally made me feel hope for the future of mankind. The story is, in near future Detroit, commercial-grade androids are booming the economy while causing mass unemployment and the highly relevant theme of income inequality we could have gone with sails merrily over David Cage's head as he goes for the clumsy Civil War-era racism analogue. We follow three protagonists, a nanny droid who accidentally kills a deadbeat single dad and must go on the run with his daughter, an artist assistant droid who falls from grace and becomes the deviant android's charismatic leader, well, the leader at any rate, and a prototype detective android who is torn between his instructions to hunt down the deviants and his blossoming romance with Clancy Brown, a grizzled human detective who hates androids except not really. As with many David Cage games, it's the kind of plot that makes you constantly yell questions at the screen. Why were androids built for menial tasks designed to look and act perfectly human in the first place? Why weren't they boxes on wheels? Or how about this, a dog with Dr. Octopus tentacles? That would have been more efficient at cleaning up and amusing for the kids. But considering the androids do look human, why are all the real humans so unflinchingly hateful and dismissive of them, when the android superficial human qualities would be triggering the sympathy instinct in most normal people? The answer to most of these questions is the same, because melodrama! David Cage is only one tool in his storytelling arsenal, and it is a giant sledgehammer with the word melodrama written down the side. His stories always play out like rampant human misery simulators as written by someone who's never met any human beings. Well, I suppose we know he's met Ellen Page. Fucking hell do we know that. He probably puts it on his business cards. And just because a story's depressing doesn't mean it's deep or complex. There's a moment in Despair Become Miserable where we literally watch an ugly man in a rundown house loudly explain to no one in particular how much he's going to enjoy beating up his daughter in between puffs on his crack pipe. Half the characters in these games are like one-off villains from the Incredible Hulk TV series when they had to contrive an excuse for Bill Bixby to Hulk out every episode so they'd chuck a random inexplicable asshole into the room to smirkingly give him nipple cripples for literally no reason. What's sad is that there's always a great deal of potential in David Cage video games. I look forward to the day when he actually creates one. Ha ha ha. He doesn't make branching narrative video games this lad. He makes branching narratives and then tries to tortuously squeeze a video game into it. I feel like he'd rather be making films. He doesn't appreciate the essential differences between the way an audience engages with a game versus a film. At the very start, we play weird-faced lanky detective android as a hostage situation, and we're permitted and indeed obliged to bum around the room next to the hostage situation gathering intel on the perp before we confront them. This also gives us the chance to learn a bit about the world we're in, which would have been fine, but as I leafed through a jolly interesting magazine, the hostage taker suddenly shot one of the SWAT guys, and the game went, whoops, you bummed around too long that's going on your permanent record. I don't get it, David Cage. Did you want me to explore and immerse myself in this world you've created, or did you want to maintain psychotic death grip control of the story's pacing? Because if the latter, then just make a fucking film. Or perhaps more realistically, a choose-your-own-adventure book. Well, I say he should make a film, but he'd never hack it in films, ironically because he's a hack. All his dialogue is cliched, and most of his ideas are nicked. I enjoyed Westworld too, David Cage, but you didn't have to enjoy it so bloody publicly. Is he getting any better with practice? Well, at least Detroit Cum Dumpster is only fucking retarded, as opposed to completely fucking retarded like Beyond Two Souls. But that only puts it on a level with Heavy Rain, which it's hauntingly similar to at times, especially when you're exploring a crime scene in the pouring rain playing a detective who acts like he's from space. So nothing has changed about the gameplay, once again the standard movement controls make our character seem like they lost all sensation in their legs after a broom handle got shoved up their ass, and we either press the on-screen button prompts very slowly to perform utterly tedious household tasks that don't progress the plot at all, or we press the on-screen button prompts very very quickly during an action sequence. And of course some of the prompts are fucking six-axis motion controls, the button prompt equivalent of the short kid with the lazy eye and the weird smell who's convinced he's one of the gang. Does anyone still seriously think this shit is immersive? I'll tell you what isn't immersive, having to rise from my controller clutching slump on the couch so the game will finally register me thrusting the controller downwards. I know David Cage likes to imagine every player leaning forward in their seat with a constant enraptured look on their face, but we don't all have good lumbar support.
support, or broom handles shoved up our asses. The nicest thing you can say about David Cage is that he has potentially good ideas. He just never puts enough thought into them. The way characters have to symbolically smash their objective prompts into invisible walls to break their programming was a good idea. Are we twisting the core mechanics to make a point about free will? Oh, the rote instruction following gameplay came straight back afterwards, so I guess not. Well, now that my main points are across, I'd like to close this review by discussing one of the plot twists. So now's the time to tuck live oysters into your eyelids if you don't want spoilers. Ready? Here we go. Remember that nanny bot who adopts the human child? Towards the end, it turns out the child was also an android all along. Ooh, what a twist. An inadequately explored twist that adds nothing to the characters or story and may even be detrimental to it. I mean, can a robot mother truly love a human child was a question with some power to it in this context, but can a robot love another robot? Yes, they can. We know they can. We've seen like 12 of the buggers doing it already. It's just a twist for the sake of having a twist. In other words, it's a David Cage twist. Sounds like a dance, doesn't it? Hey everybody, do the David Cage twist! Walk stiffly round the room for ten minutes, then reach for the sky and fall flat on your face. Atmospheric, psychological horror, story rich, nudity, sexual content, gore, psychedelic- Whoa, you can stop now, Steam user tags, you had me at psychological horror! Well, be honest, nudity sealed the deal. What's more, a title like Agony will be near the top of my Steam library list, and when I'm looking for it later I won't wear out my scrolling finger and it will be fully prepared for the inevitable wank. Plus, I'm impressed by the way Agony resisted the urge to bolt an unnecessary subtitle on the end. Because it really seems like the kind of game that would. Like Agony, Horror of Babylon or Agony the Revenge of Barbie Pink. So for all those reasons I played through Agony, and having done so I now see another advantage to it, the title is very easy to do a games journalism with. Agony, it certainly was. Mmm, <laughs> smug smug. Let's all stroke our chins about misogyny and then give excessive coverage to an indie game made by someone I know. But anyway, Agony is a first person stealth adventure thingy that reminded me somewhat of Sid Meier's Jericho by Clive Barker, in that it seems to take place in a world composed entirely of raspberry jam. So half the textures have that weird glisten effect on them that look like my video card is being swarmed by lightning bugs and every time I move it's like I took LSD and ate pop rocks. The story is, you are a bloke in hell. And none of that weak source metaphorical hell either, this is full on Hieronymus Bosch climbing in and out of giant anuses territory. Oh yes, no symbolic confrontation with our sins in life here, unless our sins in life consisted of being a novelty cake designer for lesbian S&M weddings, and your mission is to escape from hell. At least I assume it is. They don't tell you much at the start, all you can do is press forward to continue exploring. I just assume if you're in hell you probably want to be somewhere else, unless you're planning to complain about the noise. On the way you're given directions by the Red Goddess, a sinister temptress with her bum out who taunts you from atop her throne of bloodstained labias. Remember the lust level from Dante's Inferno? Oh, sorry, let me take that a step back. Remember Dante's Inferno? The game, not the first canticle of the Divine Comedy. Yeah, that thing that had a huge marketing push and then it came out and everyone instantly forgot about it. Well, there was a level themed around lust in it, and agony is basically that, multiplied 50 times, and with a big bucket of the pink slime from Ghostbusters 2 thrown over it. Agony makes me think that the phrase psychological horror is getting banded around a bit too easily these days. Psychological horror to me means something with more of an understated creeping dread about it, more Ugh, than Ugh, and Agony is very much on the Ugh, side of things. Yeah, if I can transcribe that one, bitch! There is very little psychological about the horror involved in being in a room made of bones as human tripe pours from a nipple-shaped wall dispenser and we have to tread carefully to avoid getting chased down and torn to shreds by big-titted demons with heads shaped like vaginas. Well, I suppose that's a little bit psychological, in the sense that the art designer should probably talk to a psychologist, preferably one behind a whip and a chair and an inch of reinforced glass. Your main objective throughout the plot is find the Red Goddess, which you succeed in doing multiple times but it never seems to take. Oh, you found me! Go find me again! I'm over there now, in that temple on the crest of that distant hill shaped like a giant buttock. And in keeping with the Tom Clancy's Jericho comparison, we have the ability to come back as a ghost after death and possess any damned soul who isn't wearing a bag on their head, necromancy being powerless against the divine magic of Burlap. So every other person hanging around the level get to be your extra lives, 
which they probably didn't picture for their futures during their sessions with the high school guidance counsellor, but that's hell for ya. These basic mechanics aren't terribly well explained. When I first saw the contextual icon for Take Bag Off Head, I thought it was the icon for Push Person Over, and since the person was standing on the edge of a cliff at the time, I was like, geez, there's no need for that kind of pettiness, this is hell, not a staff meeting at a failing startup. Eventually I figured it out, but I suspect the basic mechanics weren't terribly well explained to most of the developers either. We're doing a stealth game, I always forget what that means. I guess it means that if you try to move quickly past the vagina face monster, then it hears you and bites your face off, but if you carefully move slowly past it, then it will also hear you and chew your throat out. Um, no, I think you're missing some of the basic principles there, Agony. Alright, now about those hiding places. I'm pretty sure I know how this works. You're running away from vagina mush, you quickly get into a hiding place, then vagina mush catches up, spots you instantly, and masticates your nipples off. Wait, I confused myself, what were we talking about? Most of these hiding places are also impossible to recognise as such until you're standing right over them and the contextual icon appears. They're little piles of cartilage pancakes against a background of more cartilage pancakes. See, the cluttered environment design is making all the important stuff get lost in the noise when it's not actively halting me in my tracks because my hitbox got caught on an extruding canker, thus allowing the pursuing vagina monster to catch up and nibble me pancreas out, and yet environments are simultaneously too busy and extremely boring. Turn things up to 11 and stay there and it's just as dull as staying at 1. Repetition, you see. Scene 1 pulsating ulcerated jawbone with little tiny bellends instead of molars. Seen them all. So what other mechanics have been thrown into this big undisciplined bucket of liquidised offal of a game? Well after a while you can possess the vagina monsters as well as the humans. Don't know why you'd fucking want to, since only the humans are allowed to pick up items and work the puzzles that are necessary for making progress, so all you can do is run back and forth around the current map trying to find something to kill yourself with, or failing that stand in front of a mirror for a while, jiggling up and down. Also there are a grand total of three character upgrades, as token as the wheelchair-bound dude from the Burger King Kids Club. Increase how long the player can hold their breath. Oh, there's a hold breath button! Now I understand! I'm supposed to hold my breath as I move slowly past the vagina monsters so they won't- Oh, it spotted me anyway and gnawed my gonads off. Never mind. In truth, the actual core gameplay mechanic of agony is press forward to continue, and everything that's layered onto that, like flakes of greaseproof paper on a turd, stealth, puzzles, collectibles, labyrinthine maps, all of that is annoyance and busy work so we can say it's not just a walking simulator. What was the idea setting out on this, Agony? To make a fun game? <laughs> but seriously. Were you trying to shock me with all your gore and tits? Cause you failed. There's no relatable humanity to give the shocking stuff context, we might as well be watching you smear ground beef on a real doll. Alright fine, we just wanted to draw some bums and process unresolved feelings about when our teenage babysitter made us go to bed early. Well that I respect, but piss off now Agony, you're dripping pussy juice on the afghan. So E3 rolled around once more to insolently demand our attention like a street corner preacher with his knob out, so the developers can demonstrate to the world that they are in vague occasional contact with someone who can cut a half-decent trailer together, and for this reason alone we should fork out now for their overpriced grindy tat that we can't even play yet. Gathering once again in single file to have a good old splurge to camera are the usual suspects, EA, Bethesda, Ubisoft, Sony, Nintendo, and… what was your name again? Microsoft. 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 Oh yes, weren't you the guys who made that funny paperclip thing? Ostensibly, this year's conference was from the 12th to the 14th of June, but as seems to be increasingly common, most of the big lads did their shows beforehand. I guess if they tried to keep it in their pants a moment longer they'd have started spooging out their nostrils. Interestingly, it was almost all games this year, none of the big boys were pushing hardware, even Nintendo didn't bring out that Labo thing much. Not that I'm that bothered, because I'm a 35 year old man and don't plan to spend a week putting together little origami pianos before making a sweary internet video about my paper cuts. EA started spooging first, a full three days early, with some more anthem footage to make my eyes glaze over faster and more efficiently than ever. Still looks like they mulched together Mass Effect, Destiny, Titanfall and Horizon Zero Dawn and spread it over a garage floor with an uninteresting broom. Did you see that pulse-pounding combat in action? Can't wait to point at an enemy, hold down the fire button and stand there picking at my itchy bum crack until the damage indicator stopped coming out. Then Bethesda stepped up and said, who likes pre-rendered teasers that tell you fuck all? Nobody. Well, nobody's gonna like this then. And we proceeded to learn precisely fuck all about Elder Scrolls 6, Starfield, Wolfenstein Youngblood and Doom Eternal. We did get to see an only slightly less uninformative, painfully scripted Rage 2 video that I would only call gameplay footage because suffocating yawn fest takes slightly longer to type, so someone at Bethesda must have said, we're 
making sequels to Scrotum Pulverizingly Good, Doom, and Teabag Squeezingly Forgettable Rage, which one would people most want to hear about? Well, I think that should be obvious. Haha, <laughs> yes, I suppose it is. Oh fuck, now I'll look stupid if I ask again. We also very loudly and conspicuously didn't learn much about Fallout 76, except that it's online focused, so we can reliably infer the rest from what we know is already popular and easy to rip off. So, open world, survival, crafting, you know the drill, get ready to punch trees. But only now can you punch trees while wearing sporty Fallout brand blue. So roll over and yap like little dogs at supper time, you uncritical, butthole-relishing, close relative molesters. My goodness, Microsoft's conference showcased a lot of games. Cyberpunk 2077, Just Cause 4, Metro Exodus, Shadow of the Tomb Raider, wow, are those all Xbox exclusives, Microsoft? Um, no, none of those are. But you can play them on Xbox? Yes, Microsoft, we could, hypothetically, do that. Shadow of the Tomb Raider is apparently the game where we see Lara Croft become the Tomb Raider. Fuck you, Square Enix, that's what you said the last two times. She's been becoming the Tomb Raider for five fucking years! When is this whimpering cunt gonna get out of training bras? So what exclusives have Microsoft got? Well, there's Halo Infinite, which already isn't even the most interesting FPS sequel about a green Lego astronaut with a generic subtitle that means never-ending. In contrast, Sony's show went for a quality-over-quantity approach with in-depth endoscopic looks up a small handful of first-party anuses. And forgive me if it seems like Sony are putting a lot of love eggs in the same basket, or asshole. I mean, first there's Ghost of Tsushima, a game about stealthing around an apocalyptic landscape killing thugs, then there's Last of Us 2, a game about stealthing around an apocalyptic landscape killing thugs and being a lesbian, and then there's Death Stranding, a game about… what the fuck are you about, Death Stranding? Well there was something stealth-like going on in an apocalyptic landscape, so I'm adding it to the pile. The more I see of Spider-Man, the less confidence I have in it. And I wasn't exactly foaming at the urethra in the first place, because every Spider-Man game they've made in years makes the same three goddamn mistakes. One terrible dialogue, two trying too hard to be like a Batman Arkham game, and three not being Spider-Man 2 on the GameCube. And the new trailer terrible dialogues its way through a sequence that is literally Batman Arkham Asylum except with Spider-Man's shitty villains, and it blatantly isn't Spider-Man 2 because Spider-Man 2 was a game, not a bunch of overblown scripted action sequences strung together like a line of colourful flags coming out of Stan Lee's dried up old man tits. Right, who else? Neo 2 got announced, which was unfortunate timing because From Software announced their own feudal Japan Dark Souls game, namely Shadows Die Twice, and instantly removed whatever reason Neo had to exist. Ooh, and also Nintendo announced a new Smash Br- oh, oh, sorry, halfway through saying the title I suddenly stopped caring. I suppose I could mention Ubisoft, but that feels like mentioning the colour of the wallpaper. They're always hanging about in the background, putting out their samey sandboxes with the clockwork regularity of an explosively copious period. New Assassin's Creed right on cue, set in ancient Greece, which makes sense because the ancient Greeks were really into buggery. But what made me choke on my sherbet was when the bloke narrating the gameplay video said, for the first time you will be able to choose between a male and female hero. You what? Am I on crazy pills? Assassin's Creed Syndicate did that! What is the fucking point of doing progressive and innovative things if you're just gonna pretend they didn't happen two games later and try to score innovation points a second time? It's not progressive if you're progressing to the place where we already fucking are, genius! I'm genuinely mad about this. I've got no more room to snark about Beyond Good and Evil 2 now and it's Assassin's Creed Odyssey's fault. <sighs> you know why I still do these rundowns every year, it's because gamers as consumers have conceded too much fucking ground, and what counts as acceptable standard business practice inches more and more toward Fort Bullshit Tennessee every year. Twenty years ago the relationship was, play one third of our game for free, as much as you like, and then consider paying this unworthy mortal twenty insignificant dollars for the rest, your grace. And somehow that's turned into, pay in full now, stinking plebs, because we showed you a logo. You can't have it for six months, and then you have to pay another ten bucks for the special helmet with a bell end on the front, so everyone knows what a cockhead you are. The push back against loot boxes was a good start, but how about this? Let's all stop pre-ordering stuff. Just for a year, six months maybe, trial period. If you're tempted, ask yourself, can I envision a scenario in which my decision to purchase this game might ultimately hinge on whether or not I can play it while wearing a special pre-order cock helmet? At least consider it, so that next year I'm not saying, hey guys, how about we all stop ticking the box that says Sony have the exclusive ownership rights to our blood?
Oh, blimey, you know, it's that time of year, don't you? When the AAAs all go into hibernation and all the games the publishers were a little bit nervous about come out in bloom. Hence all that agony business, I suppose, which publishers probably would be nervous about if they were planning to make eye contact with their mothers anytime soon. And if I were a publisher, I'd be a bit nervous about Vampire. I'd be all like, do you mind if I run it past a proofreader? Because I'm pretty sure you spelled it wrong. You spelled it right everywhere else. I'm just worried having the title like that might make us look slightly pretentious. Like spelling magic with a K. Or sticking an E on the end of noir. Vampire comes to us from French developer Dontnod Entertainment, and before you say anything, yes, I looked it up in the French don't spell vampire that way either, so who the fuck knows. Dontnod were previously responsible for Remember Me and Life is Strange, and as such, Vampire carries the distinction of being their first game whose title isn't a complete sentence. Vampire is a gothic action RPG with a wide open world in the Deus Ex sense of not being particularly wide or open, taking place in a sort of Legoland version of early 20th century Landentan. The protagonist is Jonathan Reed, a tall, dark, pasty bloke with a pointy beard whose transformation into a vampire therefore couldn't have come fast enough. Um, excuse me, Yahtzee, they're called Ekons. I beg your pardon. Ekons. It's our special word for vampires. We made it up. I can fucking tell you did. Might stick with vampire if it's all the same to you. Ekons sounds too much like an alien race of the week from Doctor Who. Anyway, Jonathan's a physician by trade and returns after the First World War to find London stricken by both the Spanish flu and a plague of ghouls who, not ghouls, Yati, scowls. What's a fucking scowl? It's a human tainted by vampire blood. That's a ghoul! We call it a scowl! Don't do this to me again, Don't Nod. I couldn't understand a fucking word of Life is Strange because everyone was speaking in this weird French interpretation of how young people talk. Anyway, now we get to the other reason publishers might be a bit nervous about Vampire, because it's trying to do something innovative. A surefire way to make publishers shrink back holding up crucifixes and sucking on a pre-order bonus for comfort. The rub is, each district has a number of named characters we can talk to and do side quests for, and as a physician it's Jonathan's responsibility to get to know them and craft them the right medicine when they're ill. It's not hard, 90% of the time they need fatigue medicine, which I'm pretty sure is just Red Bull. Unfortunately, Jonathan is a vampire on top of being a doctor, so he also has to decide which members of his social circle he's going to rip open and chug like a wild cherry Capri Sun. With the understanding that their disappearance will have knock-on effects on other characters and the health of the district as a whole as well as your digestion. Now that sounds interesting, doesn't it? Especially since the value of a target's blood goes up the more you've gotten to know them, organically pushing us to get fully invested in the character's backstory and struggles before we put them in a sandwich. So, and here I find myself flashing back to my review of Remember Me, that was the good idea, here's how they fuck it up. I probably made it sound like you have to pick people to kill, didn't I, much as the game does, but the thing is, you really don't. Your reward for chowing on your chums is a big dose of XP for buying vampire powers and stat upgrades, or perhaps I should say, the stat upgrades. <laughs> but you also get XP from basic combat and achieving objectives and after a whole game of not killing a single citizen, I was, at worst, slightly underleveled. And none of the boss fights were insurmountable once I had the patterns down. See, I went for the pacifist run because there was a distinct whiff of moral choice-driven story branching about all this and my instinct is always to shoot for best ending because it's usually the one that feels like an ending and not like I fucked something up. Vampire may be an exception, however. It really wants to be a story about a broody vampire tortured by the clash between his urge to kill and his duty to heal, but after I didn't kill anyone it becomes a story about a perfectly nice, if slightly intense bloke who doesn't get enough vitamin D. So the quote good ending was a bit of a damp squib, one of Reed's vampire pals trying to get their melodrama on, going ooh we are nothing more than killers and our blood is cursed, and Reed's all like bollocks we are, I haven't killed shit. Oh so you haven't, never mind then, let's get McDonald's. Now when Reed says he hasn't killed shit he is truncating a little, he should have said I haven't killed shit except for the 500,000 vampire hunters I murdered in standard combat. Yes this is the rather glaring incongruity of vampire, there's something a little bit hollow about Jonathan Reed's quiet nobility and pacifism when he's just had to murder 12 identical cockney thugs on the way back from the chemist. Well, I suppose it's self-defence killing, but it still raises a lot of questions. How come killing these lads by the hundreds somehow doesn't affect the rest of London's population like killing named characters does? Did they all get bust in from Wolverhampton? Also, if Reed can drink blood from his enemies mid-combat in a way that doesn't kill them, why can't he figure out a way to non-lethally drink blood from his mates as well? A little please and thank you goes a long way. We do need there to be combat because otherwise there's no core gameplay loop and more to the point it'd be fucking boring, so maybe we could have just fought ghouls? Sorry, scowls. But if we did that, it would raise the question of why all the named characters are oblivious 
previously going about their cheerful cockney lives when there's a fucking zombie apocalypse going on next door. Also, since we're suggesting changes, did you ever consider making the combat less shitty? It's Dark Souls-y stamina management mixed with a bit of Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines combat, ergo shittiness. There's a very small variety of monsters and weapons and your vampiric powers aren't that great. They're not much fun to use or even as effective as just twatting the dudes with one of the stronger weapons and I'll remind you we're supposed to like these powers so much we'd murder our friends to improve them. The problem with the core dilemma of Vampire, kill friends to get XP to make combat easier, is that it falls apart if, like me, you enjoy a challenge and removing it doesn't feel like a reward. And the other problem is with the other half of the concept, interacting with characters, exclusively done through fucking dialogue trees of the worst kind. Tell me more about the city, tell me more about your job, tell me more about that thing you said about the city that I'm awkwardly bringing up again apropos of nothing. Tell me more about this weird boggle-eyed look we're giving each other like a pair of love-struck goldfish in neighbouring bowls that even routinely interrupt important plot cutscenes so that Reed can run down a questions list, even in the very last cutscene just as everyone's poised for the climax. I'm sorry, but if you're still giving us exposition dumps literal seconds before the dramatic conclusion, something's gone wrong. It bears about as much resemblance to natural conversation as sticking your knob in a muller fruit corner as to a whirlwind love affair and it makes all the participants come across as incredibly stiff. Well, they are British, Yahtzee. Oh ho! A cheeky sting! Scurry off, you rummy blighter! Fish and chips! If there's one major indictment of our current era, besides the chocolate syrup they serve with the brownies at Domino's Pizza that's like dipping them in slightly viscous water, it's anti-intellectualism. It's been on the rise ever since the word scientist started comfortably fitting after the word mad. But you know what? You're not meeting everyone else halfway, scientists, when you go around saying, my education is based on the groundwork of tens of thousands of years of progress and strict scientific rigour, and that is why I'm a better authority on my sphere of expertise than a suburban housewife who half remembers a Facebook post she read once. Well, that's the kind of superior attitude that makes people stop vaccinating their kids out of spite. If you want to start turning things around, science, I can think of one place to to start, stop ruining everyone's fun when it comes to dinosaurs. I've never met a dinosaur that a scientist hasn't tried to ruin. Jurassic Park comes out and everyone's enjoying the T-Rex and the Velociraptors, but then Johnny Scientist jumps up and goes, um, actually we did a little bit more science, and we've learned that Velociraptors were two foot tall and feathered and could be trained to fetch slippers. Also the T-Rex was more of a scavenger than a hunter, and all the other dinosaurs used to bully it and knock its school books out of its tiny, pathetic arms. Well, for the record, Jurassic World Evolution is staying consistent with the films, with Velociraptors being the prickliest little madams in the daycare centre, which kind of compromises its usefulness as a learning resource, and that's a shame, because the whole fun and entertaining to play thing didn't work out either. But let's not oversalt the pudding before the first thrust. Jurassic World generic subtitle is a business management sim wherein our task is to wave our corporate bodies at the lessons of history and build a bunch of all new dinosaur parks for rich white tourists to come and look at who I guess aren't satisfied with just taking a nice holiday on an unspoiled tropical island, no, they've got to see some perversions of nature as well so that Mrs. Klebold from next door doesn't show them up again with her pictures from her trip to Euro Disney. So we're given an island and we usually kick off by building a simple enclosure with some nice boring unfussy dinosaurs who don't mind posing for selfies, stick a gift shop opposite so the plebs can buy Struthiomimus t-shirts, and wait for enough money to accrue that you can build something sexier. And you know what? The park executives in the films must have spent all their time coked to the eyebrows, because it turns out stopping dinosaurs from escaping is easy peasy Murdoch's lazy. If only Richard Attenborough had known that you just have to click on each dinosaur and a bunch of meters will pop up showing exactly what makes them comfortable with regards to enclosure size, terrain type, diet, whether you're piping in death metal or Barry Manilow, etc. You have the omnipotence of a fickle creator god when it comes to landscaping, so all you have to do is adjust the environment according to their preferences and they instantly stop banging their heads on the walls and become nice as pie. You don't even need the electrified barrier at that point, a white picket fence will keep them in. Having said that, earlier on, before I noticed the stat screen and had one or two incidents where I didn't notice a small gap in the fence because I couldn't see it through the fucking trees, I did have a couple of escape incidents. This was when I discovered there is literally fuck all you can do about escaped dinosaurs if you haven't got a helipad. Only helicopters can tranquilise the slippery little fucks, so if it's still early and you can't afford one yet, then all you can do is hope to god it just wants to steal the candy floss and get in a few photo bombs. I had jeeps, I had 
jeeps for days, each one equipped with a dude with a dart rifle, but the only darts you can fire from jeeps are healing darts, and that's sending entirely the wrong message to a ceratosaurus that's chewing on the bottom two-thirds of a little screaming lawsuit in waiting. So if I were you, I'd stick to herbivores until you've got a helipad, because I guess there's some real arbitrary dickishness going on at the dart rifle firers union. Carnivores are just complete pricks. That's another thing I had to learn early on. Don't put carnivores and herbivores in the same enclosure. Oh really, Yarts? Thanks for the insider tip. Don't forget to remind us not to mistake an orbital sander for a wanking sock. Alright, it seems obvious now. I just assumed it'd be fine as long as everyone was high on comfort and had readily available food, but nope, carnivores just have the prick gene and will murder any herbivore it sees, even if it's full, content and getting regular pedicures. But after you learn these lessons, running the parks is very straightforward. And here we get to the central awkward truth of Jurassic World Ebola virus that the interesting part of Jurassic Park the film was not the part where everything was going swimmingly. To spice things up, we're given tasks by our three company divisions, the science division, who think we're running a research facility, the entertainment division, who think we're running a theme park, and the security division, who I guess think we're running a prison for dinosaur drug dealers or something. Complete a task for one and you'll lose points with the other two, which feels like drawing things out unnecessarily and doesn't point to a terribly healthy work environment, but it's particularly odd when they all give you the same tasks. Entertainment man says Hatchostegosaurus because people think they're cool. Science lady says Hatchostegosaurus because we need to research how cool they are for science. And security dude says Hatchostegosaurus because we're going to put targets on its back plates and use it as a firing range. Actually, I don't mind the missions because I like business sims to be goal-oriented. Don't see much appeal in just sitting on a perfectly functional park, accruing more imaginary money than I know what to fantasise about doing with. But at the same time, I do think Jurassic World Electric Boogaloo is a bit thin and lacking the personal touch. All the spaces you're given to develop in are kind of pokey and the range of buildings is small and low on options. There is one and only one kind of restaurant you can stamp out when your park is scoring low on food availability. It is simply named Fast Food and I assume it sells everything in featureless grey packaging like an Australian tobacconist. You can rename your Brontosaurus Sergeant Bellend and paint him in khaki brown instead of khaki green and that's about it as far as personalisation goes. But he'll still have infinitely more personality than the human guests. Human beings just seem to grow on the walkways like a fungus. You get money just from Captain Generic's tolerable fast food emporium existing and not from how many individual guests pass through it, which I guess is fine, but it does mean it's hard to sympathise when the attractions bust out and start chewing on them. Even more so when they all gamely come straight back the moment the threat is gone. Already thinking about what a funny story this will make when they explain it to child protection services. I don't know, I guess I just like to know who a person is as I'm picking their dentures out of the T-Rex's litter box. So at E3 everyone saw that Resident Evil 2 was getting remade and everyone hopped smartly onto their backs and began squeezing out great big fruity woofers to express their glee, but my woofers stayed resolutely where they were and yes it was actually very uncomfortable, because I'm aware that the Resident Evil series follows a pattern. They put out one good game and then they proceed to churn out inferior sequels until they can churn no more, making what was once a perfectly straightforward standalone horror plot into a nightmarishly convoluted mess of canon ever expanding like fresh vomit on a tile floor, making everyone in the room nauseous and creating vomity spin-offs to make the matter worse, until finally someone takes a self-awareness pill, locks themselves in a vomit-proof basement and makes another good one, usually by stripping things down to core concepts and keeping the shit-smeared hippo of established canon out of its virgin waters. And then, the moment it does well, Capcom goes, phew, time to get back on track, and the shit-smeared hippo promptly belly-flops straight back in to ruin things anew. This process has already begun with Resident Evil 7, the piles of DLC have already done a marvellous job at ruining all the base game's subtlety and mystique. It's like we had a lovely dildo that had a nice smooth glide action in our tender butthole, but for some reason they insisted on taping a Lego astronaut to the end. And I knew this would happen because it happened after Resident Evil 4 as well. And it occurred to me recently that for all my years of trumpeting Resident Evil 4, of wafting its delicious farts around like I'm making smoke signals, I've never done a full retro review of it. So as the summer drought crawls ever onwards, I thought I might as well do one, if only for cataloguing purposes. So here we go, Resident Evil 4 was very far from the fourth Resident Evil game. It was around the ninth or tenth depending on what counts. The straightforward numbering of 1, 2 and 3 gave way to a sort of toxic soup of Code Veronica's, Survivor's, Outbreak's, Dead Aim's, until no one really knew what Resident Evil was, broadly speaking, just that it wasn't something you wanted close to your nose. The time for change had come. Away with tangled backstory, unfix that camera from its lofty perch and let it breathe free as it hovers about our shoulder, demanding pets and bits of cream cracker. But
but this is misleading. Resident Evil Dead Aim was using a third-person chase camera and free aim shooting before Resident Evil 4 did, but Resident Evil 4 possessed the additional innovation of not being complete dog shit. You see, the series had a problem with shilly-shallying between its original methodical, claustrophobic tone and a more action-oriented focus, and Resident Evil 4 was the first to decisively shake off the scraps and turn the action dial all the way up. Right from the word go you can tell things are going to be different, we're not starting the game in a spooky mansion or a ruined city at midnight or any other enclosed foreboding environment, it's a nice bright day and we're in a forest in Europe. Europe has about all the information we're given as to where we are, some mysterious remote region of Europe where they speak Mexican Spanish and still use pesetas as currency. But the point is, Resident Evil 4 is where the shilly-shallying ended. Ooh, I just can't decide, flounced the Resident Evil series. Am I about survival or action? Monsters or conspiracies? Am I serious or camp? Resident Evil 4 silenced the room by loudly slinging its knob onto the table. I don't know about you, but I'm about action, I'm about monsters, and by all the damned souls in hell I'm camper than Dale Winton on a caravanning weekend. The story sees Leon S. Kennedy, protagonist of Resident Evil 2 but practically unrecognisable as a smirking secret agent who thinks ladders are for pussies, on a mission to rescue the president's daughter, him being the only dude bad enough, you see. His chosen method is to burst into a random house with his gun drawn and start jabbering questions at non-English speaking locals, so obviously he gets chased through the woods with scythes and pitchforks, but then it turns out they're all in an evil zombie death cult on top of being offended by Leon's people skills. Compare the quality of story and dialogue to any previous Resident Evil game and there isn't that much difference, it's all on a level somewhere around sci-fi original movie recreated for the school Christmas pageant, but with the slightest turn of the heel into self-awareness, Resident Evil 4 makes it work. Leon's dry bravado in the face of heads exploding into seafood platters, squeaky midget Napoleon, the merchant with the pirate voice who constantly talks like he's rubbing himself through his trouser pocket, it's all of that combined with the sheer sincerity of the voice acting. What Resident Evil 5 got wrong was forgetting that all the ingredients were essential. It had the terrible dialogue, it had the sincerity, but it didn't have midgets dressed like Napoleon. And yet simultaneously RE4 is still an unnerving horror game. There's this perception nowadays that horror has to be subtle, and that what you can't see is always scarier. A perception encouraged no small amount by me and my storybook marriage to Silent Hill 2. But if you're going for action horror, your best approach might be complete fucking relentlessness. RE4's combat is designed to hound you on all sides with angry European football hooligans until you can't back up any further because the big pile of poo that came out of your bum is getting in the way. It's not a constant barrage like your RE6 or your Dead Space, that's just mind-numbing. Downtime is used very effectively but it can ramp up in a second. And like a well-written essay, this is summarised in the very first paragraph when you arrive at the village and have to fend off an endless horde of smelly foreigners for a fixed amount of time. Maybe you'll survive until the bell rings and watch nonplussed as the entire horde fucks off for pancakes, or maybe you'll meet the bloke who came to the costume party as a potato who instantly chainsaws your fucking head off. Either way, you'll have come to appreciate the way RE4 goes from 0 to 100 and back again in an instant like a bipolar dad on a long car journey. I don't think one can overstate the impact RE4 had. It was a landmark title in the history of third-person action games. Play it now and you'll note a few niggles, like the way you can't freely look around and the movement's a bit tanky, but the camera positioning will feel familiar if you've played basically any bloody third-person game that's come out lately, including God of War, despite hanging around on Kratos' shoulder being an excellent way to get a hip bone lodged in your eye socket. Even RE4's worst features, like those wonderful mid-cutscene quicktime events that as stimulating gameplay mechanics go were right up there with a little sound on the children's storybook tape that tells you to turn the page, ended up sticking around too long for my liking, and in the ways it shook up the franchise you can see some obvious parallels in the way RE7 did it. The cutback to basic rescue princess plot, the starting is off in a quiet forest and the sudden ramping from zero to chainsaws, so you can understand why the RE2 remake makes me concerned about history running in cycles. Not only has a lone success primed Capcom to start pouring the old Resident Evil bullshit back in, it's gonna be literally the exact same bullshit as before. You gonna remake 3 after this? Code Veronica? Dead Aim? Probably not that last one, if only because there isn't enough raw material in the septic tank. Ah, Battle Royale, the genre that is to video games what Chris Pratt is to movies these days. Very, very popular, absolutely bloody everywhere, but probably doesn't have a whole lot going on upstairs. It's a great genre for efficiently relearning how crap I am at first-person shooters no less than 40 times an hour, but when an obvious and simple idea takes off, imitators will swiftly follow. I mean, one big map and a hundred randomly placed players is not exactly 
exactly a Cecil B. DeMille production. So this week I have been mostly playing Totally Accurate Battlegrounds, which is actually a hilarious parody of Battle Royale shooters. What it does is, instead of dropping 100 players onto a map full of randomly spawned equipment and gradually shrinking it until only one remains, it drops about 50 players onto a map full of randomly spawned equipment and gradually shrinks it until only one remains, and everyone's got googly eyes. Yeah, that's some astringent satire you've got going on there, Totally Accurate Battlegrounds. Truly the spirit of Jonathan Swift lives on through thee. Oh wait, what also makes it hilariously parodical is that everyone's at the mercy of a crazed physics engine that makes them wobble about like pipe cleaner figures on the floor of a moving vehicle with dodgy suspension. Did I mention it's by the cluster truck people? So players poing merrily across the landscape like overexcited puppies in the long grass and hold guns out in front of them the way that lady from Jurassic Park Trespasser did, although thankfully without the health meter tit. But Totally Accurate Battlegrounds falls into the not underpopulated trap of the attempted satire that ends up becoming a viable alternative to the thing it's satirising, if not just another example of it. Classic scream syndrome. The wobbly bobbly physics mean that melee combat can actually overpower ranged weapons if you wobble bobble your way up to a sniper as they pull the old Ramsey Bolton and continually miss your thrashing limbs until you get into range and knock all their teeth out with a loofah. On that note, there's also an extensive range of weapons, more weirdly extensive than satirically extensive. You've got guns, rocket launchers, crossbows, grenades, axes, sticks, and slightly sharper sticks, but no elastic band launchers or comedically oversized sex toys. The large range of guns also makes it hard to find more of the specific ammo that each one takes, thus improving the odds that a gunfight will eventually devolve into loofah dueling. The animation and uncluttered maps also makes it harder to hide or find cover, encouraging direct conflict, and I appreciate that the wall around the map is an actual literal wall, not a ring of fizzing Listerine. So all in all we'll put TAB in the viable alternative category. It is a bit mired with bugs and cheaters, but they're diligently churning the patches out, which makes me wonder if any of the developers think that this has all gone a bit beyond a joke. Haha, <laughs> let's make a battle royale mode of our silly physics game for April Fools, it's not like we'll have to support it for the rest of our fucking lives. It's like they served a trick rubber steak to their house guests and the idiots won't stop trying to eat the fucking thing. Hey, I can't chew this steak. Yes, haha, <laughs> it's a rubber steak. April Fools, but I want to eat the steak, it smells of steak. Yes, we made it smell like steak because it needed to for the joke to work, I didn't expect you to get this into it. Ow, my stomach hurts after I ate the steak. Look, you weren't supposed to- ugh, just- Fuck it, here's a real steak, alright? Have fun with it. Do I get a steak too? Can I have a slightly larger steak? Yes, fuck it, I'll cook steaks for everyone. This is my life now. That's all I had to say, really, is let's have an indie game chaser. How about Moonlighter, a roguelike pixel art dungeon crawler on Steam? Now, if you're anything like me, your eyes probably glazed over and you started thinking about sticky buns halfway through that description. A roguelike pixel art dungeon crawler indie game on Steam is like a seagull on a pier. Yes, you might have fun with it if it holds still long enough to let you take a funny picture, but there'll be another 12 along in a moment. And while Moonlighter, like many of its fellows, has some very well animated pixel art, a seagull wearing lipstick is still a seagull, just as likely to brazenly steal your cheeseburger. As much as there have been some very lovely roguelikes, I can't help feeling that we see them a lot because making randomly generated levels is slightly easier than meticulously designing a bunch of carefully curated maps with tiered challenges and story elements, and I think these days you have to do the Bloodborne thing, where random dungeons are there if you've got an hour to kill and are saving your higher brain functions for an upcoming speech or televised quiz show production, but it can't be the actual meat of the game anymore. To that end, Moonlighter is also a shop management game. Your job is to go into dungeons and collect a wide variety of the trash until your bag is full, then come home and load up your shelves. The interesting challenge then is figuring out how much to charge for the items, with nothing to go on but a list of the items in descending order of value and whether the customers roll their eyes disgustedly at them or skip joyfully to the counter singing money makes the world go round. You then spend the money on upgrading your shop, the town, and your dungeon exploring gear because there's an old bloke who's constantly telling you not to try to reach the end of the dungeons and kill all the bosses, so obviously we're going to do that. I think the problems with Moonlighter emerge as soon as you have figured out most of the prices of the current dungeon's items. Once the deductive part is over, the game just turns into a slightly anemic roguelike dungeon crawler with an overly elaborate loot flogging system. The combat gets kind of rote, I gravitated to using a spear because it's no slower than any other weapon and had the advantage that all the dangerous stuff is going on at the far end of it, and besides that your dodge roll has more iframes than a maritime museum has jolly interesting facts about knot tying. After four dungeon types and the final boss that rolled over like a frightened armadillo in a skate park, I was feeling rather underserved by Moonlighter, the shop management element is a nice enough idea but just isn't fleshed out enough.
enough. More nuance might have been nice, like it mattering where you display what items, or whether or not you've solicited an endorsement from Commander Shepard. I would have said it was an original idea, but then someone drew my attention to a Japanese game from 2010 named Reketeer. Not to be confused with Reketeer, which is spelt Reketeer rather than Reketeer like the first Reketeer, which is a shop management come random dungeon crawler game with deeper haggling and salesmanship mechanics, which on the whole I recommend if you've got a higher than average tolerance for the animes. But I digress. The pieces only fell into place when Moonlighter's credits rolled and about 5,000 backers got name dropped. Ah yes, gimme an O for overfunded Kickstarter project. I've learned to recognise the telltale signs of the overfunded Kickstarter project. They're like Californian teenagers, overly proud of themselves, unpunctual, and severely underweight. When all the great questions of the universe have been answered, why are we here, how do you open clamshell packaging without lacerating yourself, only one remains. Does a driving game need to have a plot? On the surface, maybe not, since it is still one of the more skill-oriented genres, at least until a game offers to do the handbrake turns for you if you pay it five bucks, and all you usually see of the player character is the back of their neck and an exhaust muffler. But then again, Driver San Francisco had a plot and did pretty well out of it. Fortunately, the Crew franchise has finally supplied the definitive answer to the question of does a driving game need a plot? The answer is yes, I mean no. I mean maybe a little bit. Thanks for your fucking contribution, Ubisoft. See, The Crew 1 had a plot. It was a surprisingly involved one, too, in which a bloke who looks a bit like the bastard offspring of Gordon Freeman and Phil Fish must avenge his brother's death and bring down a corrupt FBI agent by driving cars at things a lot. And that makes the rather conspicuous absence of a plot in The Crew 2 a cause for wonderment. Well, the plot is, you are a person who likes driving a lot, and your mission is to drive a lot. Also to become very popular on social media, a goal that can be best accomplished by driving a lot. Perhaps it's a sign of the times that the goal of getting a lot of social media followers is now considered equivalent to avenging a dead brother, that is, a unit universally understandable motivation. No officer, I had to mount the pavement and plough through two Parisian-style street cafes. Don't you see that my Twitter profile depended on it? But I digress. The Crew 2, like The Crew 1, is a sandbox game by Ubisoft, a phrase still about as redundant as an unhealthy meal from McDonald's, that boasts a huge cohesive sandbox map of the entire continental United States and all of its important cities and St. Louis. The usual shrunk-down, heavily summarised Legoland version, obviously, but it'll still take you about an hour to drive from coast to coast. Not that you'd fucking want to. The map's got a shitload of dead space, containing nothing but endless terrain and copy-pasted trees, and you'd probably have an equally enjoyable time playing an hour-long YouTube video compilation of inexpensive indie rock tracks where the singers all have their mouths way too close to an unfiltered microphone, while staring at the little position marker on the timeline and pretending you're riding on top of it. I'm pretty sure if you travelled in a straight line northeast by east from Los Angeles in this game, you wouldn't run into anything of note until you hit St. Louis, and arguably not even then. The game is divided between four distinct types of driving gameplay. Pro racing, which involves driving to a place the fastest. Off-road racing, which involves driving to a place the fastest. Street racing, which involves driving to a place the fastest in a very responsible way, and freestyle, which involves doing stunts in a plane until you unlock the second tier, at which point it becomes about driving to a place the fastest. It's through these four extremely distinct disciplines we receive what amounts to the game's plot. Each of the four has a rival character who is currently the most accomplished racer, and someone assures us that this person is a bit of a twat and we should feel motivated to unseat them from their perch. And that's it. I don't even get a chance to gauge their twattishness for myself by interacting with them or taking them to the water slide park. I think some of the mystery voices that talk in your ear during races might have been the rival characters, but I don't know why you expect me to remember any of these doints, when the game's context is as engaging as a slithering contest at a worm farm. Is it worth speculating why Ubisoft went from in-depth plot to basically none? Was it a calculated move because nobody gave shit one about the plot of the first crew, or did Ubisoft use up all their budget and resources adding tits to one of Assassin's Creed Odyssey's protagonists? Whatever the case, a sequel having less stuff than the original is always a tough sell. It'd be like putting out a new smartphone without a headphone jack. More of a plot might have helped give the game some fucking structure. Yes, you unlock more races as you go, but the entire sandbox and fast travel are unlocked right from the start, so I don't feel like the game has anything new 
to reward you with as you progress. All it does is throw brightly coloured Christmas presents at you that contain new rims and suspensions that you can glue onto whatever vehicle you arbitrarily picked from the available list to make its numbers get slightly higher, and then you can attempt to convince yourself that it now handles better than it did before, even though I strongly suspect the unlockables have less effect than adding a fuzzy dice, and I wouldn't be surprised if the developers confessed that once we've got them all tied to stakes. Oh, but I know what else they would say as I walked up with the burning torch. Sandbox, Yati. Sandbox is not supposed to be structured, you make your own fun. Yeah, let's bring that up, Guy Fiery. Does anyone else remember a time when sandbox games were characterised as being cathartic, where the point was you could just go crazy if you were bored and the world would react appropriately, exploding cars and sending police after you, and that response was important because part of the glee in stealing cookies is knowing you'll get spanked to the moon and back if you're caught. You remember before Ubisoft turned sandboxes into glorified MMOs with the other players taken out and replaced with more grind. Bearing this in mind, The Crew 2 has one of the least reactive sandbox worlds I've ever seen. The street racing lads occasionally mention that they have trouble with the cops, selfishly not wanting people to plough through pedestrian precincts with flamethrowers attached to their rear bumpers, but cops don't come after you in-game. I'm pretty sure every NPC vehicle has exactly the same mass. I know, because I sideswiped a bus and it reacted like a bamboo frame with aluminium foil wrapped around it. There's also no damage physics, unless you count fences and Parisian street cafes atomizing the instant you lightly brush past, although now I'm mentioning it, there's very little distinction between what you can plough through and what flimsy wooden park benches will cause you to instantly go from 200 to zero in a way that by rights should have decapitated you with your own seatbelt. But there's no car damage, so after a head-on collision that should by rights have reduced both cars to bleeding cardboard cutouts, the game just pulls the old Prince of Persia that didn't happen, and drops you back on the road a few yards back. And I am one million percent certain that this is because the Crew 2's vehicles and environments are all licensed from real-world companies and slathered with corporate logos, and licenses are notoriously iffy about their products being shown getting so much as a dent, to say nothing of getting wrapped around an orphanage, so all the cars just roll indestructibly about the landscape like Maltesers on a loved one's lower back. I suppose in the dilemma between more fun-stroke realism or more money, Ubisoft opting to bend over and spread its hot pink wallet open shouldn't come as a surprise. If you just want a multi-terrain racer then there's one in here, sure enough, but you might wonder why it's spread out across a pointlessly large, empty, uninteresting sandbox. If you want that experience, then just play, say, Mario Kart with your accelerate and brake buttons on opposite sides of the room. Octopath is sadly not what Chris Eubank calls his favourite kind of marine life, it just means eight paths. Octopath Traveller is a game about going through the stories, or travelling the paths if you will, of eight characters. Might seem a bit on the nose as titles go, but then it is a Japanese game, probably sounds cooler in a foreign language. Yes, it actually literally means eight paths in English. Gosh, you're so clever and worldly, Square Enix-san. It's like how any food sounds classier if you give it a French name. Merde de chien à la gravier probably sounds a lot more palatable than dog turds in gravel. Anyway, Octopath Graveler is a JRPG, but don't hold that against it because it's deliberately trying to evoke an older era of JRPGs when they were more tolerable, and weren't all over-designed bogwash and prolonged fashion parades on the planet of melodramatic emotionally stunted shitheads. Actually, thinking about it, that's been less the case with JRPGs lately, possibly because we haven't had a new Final Fantasy in a while, and the last one we did have was about people going around relatively soberly dressed. But while we're on the subject, it's games like Final Fantasy VI that Octoplut Unraveler is most trying to ape, the seminal 16-bit Final Fantasy that hit the perfect sweet spot between the series beginning to indulge more complex plots in less standard fantasy settings, and everything turning into convoluted magitechno-visual diarrhea, and whatever the fuck was going on with Final Fantasy X. At least everything was visually consistent in 2D times, nice readable tile-based environments and every character a super deformed big head lad with exactly the same face so they all look like chronically overdressed lemmings. That's the visual style Octopus Rattler is going for, although the little 2D character sprites are all running around fully 3D environments with pixely 16-bit textures stretched over them, all rendered in accordance with graphical standards of the modern age, meaning everything is lit like an overexposed photo and slightly brown. So here comes my challenge, viewers. In order to gauge the effectiveness of the game's story, I'm now going to attempt to list all all eight characters and their story arcs from memory alone. There's Tressa, an underage girl who vows with the lofty ambition of youth to dedicate her life to becoming a really good travelling merchant, this being a more innocent time before child protection services. Then there's Cyrus, a teacher who gets fired because of some mean girls drama and goes looking for an overdue library book or something. Um, oh yeah, Primrose, she's a stripper assassin who shows her commitment to revenge
revenge by refusing to put trousers on regardless of the weather. Uh, this might be easier if I tried to remember their classes rather than their personalities. So their standard warrior man with sword, who is seeking justice on the man who robbed him of honour because aren't they fucking always. The thief, Therion, I remember his name because it contains most of the letters of thief. And his story involves having to steal some things because if you've only got one thing going for you, might as well own it, I say. Priest, yep, got one of them. Some blonde lady going on a pilgrimage because the lady who was supposed to do it called in sick or something. How many is that? Six. Shit. Oh yeah, there's the hunter lady looking for her missing master who comes from the village where everyone talks like they got really drunk at a renaissance fair and decided they were just going to have fun with it. Lastly, apothecary lad. Their friend gets poisoned, they cure the poison, then they decide to travel the world because the format demands it. Well, I suppose we can't all be stripper assassins. Not all stories are created equal, so it's weird that while you can freely swap out three members of your four-man party, whoever you picked first leads the party permanently. So don't pick apothecary lad first, as you'll be stuck with him like a piece of toilet paper trailing from your shoe. What I find iffy about the whole presentation is that I really get a sense that my ragtag bunch of anime misfits are actually interacting with each other. For the first part of the game, you tour all the home villages randomly touching people until one goes, hello random group of strangers, I'm about to embark on a very personal quest that will define the rest of my life, why not tag along? And that's your new party member, smilingly joining up with a group of what might be cannibalistic serial tax dodgers for all they know, accepting that they're going to have to mutely witness the personal bullshit of seven complete strangers before they come back around to sorting out whatever put a hair up their own ass. It's particularly jarring with characters like Primrose doing the I am dishonoured and alone and have nothing left in this world but my quest for violent bloody revenge bit, never acknowledging the seven colourful dudes at varying stages of adolescence with whom she shares a sleeping bag every night. It's only right at the end of the game that any connection between the eight stories is established. Before that it's eight separate stories rather than a story about eight people. Every time you go through a new chapter of one party member's story everyone else just disappears up their butthole for the duration of the cutscene. Sometimes after a cutscene a little button prompt comes up and you can teleport the relevant character and one other party member to the interaction dimension where they discuss what just happened. But I don't see why they couldn't have worked that into the scene. Made it look like some actual organic relationship building was going on, not just a spot of post-match commentary like Statler and fucking Waldorf. The structure of Octagon Waffler's gameplay meanwhile is kind of formulaic. Every chapter goes through the same motions, you pursue whatever villain de episode is through a little maze of random combat encounters, confront them at the end and they turn into 20 foot realistically drawn version of themselves and you fight them for absolutely bloody ages. As for the combat, it's fine, I guess, you take it in turns to twat each other which is to my mind essential for turn-based combat. There's also this whole system based around figuring out enemy weaknesses to knock out their defences and saving up our glowing power testicles so we can scrunch them all up at once to do an extra damaging attack, but I think Square Enix are indulging the modern JRPG tendency to overthink things. I mean I liked how the combat in Final Fantasy VI was straightforward and didn't get in the way much. Enemies attack, twat twat twat, enemies go away, the universe uncrosses its legs. Here even the random battles drag on a bit and not the fun kind of drag on. All in all I would classify Otacon Breveler as a time killer. It doesn't trouble my story liking brain or tickle my gameplay gonads much, and too much of it is rampant cliche and grind, which is funnily enough the name of my usual law firm. After the first round of story chapters I was about six below the recommended level for the next one and thus did things get grindy. Once I'd fucking found somewhere to grind of course, considering the game map refuses to tell you what level each area is suitable for. In retrospect, maybe I shouldn't have equipped that passive perk Cyrus had that reduced the number of random encounters. But it was his only perk at the time and it took ages to learn, so what was I supposed to do? Not equip it? That's like giving me a long cylindrical object and telling me not to stick it up me dog's bum. Every year it's the bloody same. Oh the mid-year drought isn't so bad, I'll just do indie games on Steam and retros and laugh at an industry that never learns anything, tee hee hee. And now we're in the middle of it and I'm desperately searching under sun-bleached rocks looking for something that isn't slathered in anime faces like a row of electrical sockets. You know I even seriously considered reviewing No Man's Sky again, now it's apparently been patched all the way from universally despised pariah to the lofty heights of another bloody survival crafting exploration game. But no, it's against my principles to encourage this let's just fix it in post culture, that is not a world in which I wish to exist, because I would never be able to have confidence in a negative review again. A game could melt my PC into hot slag until it falls over and sets fire to the curtains, I'd still have to add the proviso, oh but it's alright because in the future they might patch in a new pair of curtains, so fuck it. In the end I decided to review a game I missed out on from last year that popped up on my Steam recommendations apropos of nothing, like a starry-eyed young actor showing up on the last day of auditions. Observer, 
Bloober is a game by Bloober Team. No, really, that's their name. Sounds to me like someone asked them their name before they'd come up with it and someone had to hastily make one up. Same developers as Layers of Fear, which you may recall I didn't take too much because it was a classic walking simulator with all the usual walking simulator trappings, deliberately obscure plot, and it's only the continued brain-busting challenge of locating the W key on your keyboard that stops it being essentially the same as riding the Haunted Mansion ride at Disneyland. Observer, in contrast, plays like a first-person adventure game that's currently in rehab for walking simulator addiction. It's gradually rebuilding its life, one dialogue tree or basic lock-opening puzzle at a time, but every now and again it falls off the wagon. And if Layers of Fear came of riding the Haunted Mansion ride a few too many times, Observer comes of rewatching Blade Runner every night. Cyberpunk dystopia, check. You know, just for once I'd like to see a cyberpunk utopia where the corporation started bolting computers to people's faces and everything just worked out perfectly well. Main character's a detective, check. Completely unnecessary opening text crawl, which might as well have been replaced with the words it is a cyberpunk dystopia, check. Rutger Hauer's in it, double check with chips on the side. Rutger Hauer, who now talks like he's processing all his words through a slightly blunt hand-cranked ice-crushing machine, is an observer, a sort of cyber detective with the ability to jack off, I mean jack into other people's brains in order to search their memories for evidence of dirty crimes and whatever else should be of interest. Perhaps Jack Off was right after all. Anyway, our hero, Daniel Lazarski, which is one of those surnames that sounds just perfect being described as a loose cannon across the desk of a sweaty police chief, is contacted by his estranged tech genius son who probably stopped calling because he was sick of explaining to Rutger Hauer how to use Facebook. But something's gone to shit and he needs help, so dear old dad comes to the slum apartment building his son was calling from, finds a whole bunch of crime scenes and dead bodies and must piece together exactly what his son was doing and what it has to do with the evil megacorporation that inevitably hangs over everything like the highly productive rectum of a pitiless controller god by jacking into the minds of a select number of victims, so basically it's Blade Runner meets Psychonauts meets the Haunted Mansion ride. You know, detective games have long struggled with the concept of investigative gameplay. How do you make a gameplay mechanic based around the player figuring stuff out that can determine that the player actually did figure it out and isn't just rolling a belt sander back and forth across the controller until progress happens? Observer takes a bold approach to this age-old problem and that's to not let it bother them in the slightest. While you go over crime scenes with three different pairs of magic electronic spectacles holding down the analyze button on anything that makes one of your spectacles go whittly-wee, what usually happens after you've whittly-weed everything that can be whittly-weed is that Rutger Hauer announces he's figured it out and the door to the next bit opens. Either that or there'll be a four-digit code lock you need to figure out, but the game makes sure no one gets left behind. There is literally a moment where the numbers you need to figure out materialise before you in giant neon digits. Another time I was casually jacking off into the head of a dead young lady in a room with a conspicuous four-digit code lock, and towards the end of the jack-off sequence I see the same lady in the same room going 6105, 6105, 6105. So once I was back in reality I went back to the code lock flush with pride at my deductive reasoning skills, but before I could do anything Rutger Hauer went, I think the code might be 6105, what do you think electronic geniuses of the future. So despite its handful of puzzles and explorative element where you wander the maze-like hallways of the apartment building having arguments with random people's door intercoms in a way that screams we didn't want to have to design more than like three characters, Observer is still elbow deep in walking simulator land. The jack-off sequences are the moments when the walking simulator leaps off the bench rubbing its hands together with glee and I'm tempted to use the word overindulgent as well as the word cunt blast but that's for unrelated reasons. So with the justification that we're exploring a dying person's mental realm stitched together from unreliable memories all the old layers of fear reality buggeration comes back in force. Spooky happenings and illogical geography galore, but again it's just Haunted Mansion press forward to continue and I keep hearing random audio stings because apparently something sudden and jump scary happened while I was looking at something else. But then, on like three occasions during jack-off bits, Mr. Gameplay wakes up with a start, sees that Mr. Walking Simulator has been running unchecked for like an hour, and goes, shit, uh, here's a monster, stealth around it or something I guess. But I've been settling into a light puzzling come sightseeing tour groove for the last several hours, so this sudden risk of insta-kill game over is very bloody jarring. If you wanted to sprinkle gameplay into your Haunted Mansion ride, then I'd have put some kind of comprehension test at the end, to see if we'd figured out that the exploding jackdaw with the head of Bruce Forsyth was supposed to symbolise that the subject didn't get on with their dad growing up. But in summary, I'd say I like Observer quite a bit more than Layers of Fear, and it's mainly because, fun as it may be to explore the visual artistry of the interactive medium by throwing plates at our head as we walk down a hallway, a nice bit of context and grounding in reality can work wonders, and the little puzzle or gameplay challenge can really help us refocus when we've been dazed by a flying sugar bowl. It's just finding the right blend of elements now, 
exploration mechanics, yes. Jarring insta-kill monster interludes, cunt blast. Yep, it's still drought season, in both gaming and California. Sorry to keep mentioning it, but you might need context if you're watching this video on the 16th of Funvember or something. So in lieu of having saved up enough morphine tablets, here are two more indie games on Steam, and I'll even think of a connection between them if you give me a mo. They're both about some kind of peacekeeping official having to rescue some things and murder some other things. Oh fuck it, let's just go with they both bored the tits off me. Let's start with Chasm. It's pixel art, it's procedural, it's Metroidvania, and of course it's fucking Kickstarted. Hey Kickstarter backers, don't insulate the inside of that comfort zone too much, there'll be no room for your fat spotty ass. We are a rookie knight dispatched to an abandoned mining town to figure out what's gone wrong, and upon taking a look in the mine he goes, well there's your problem, you've got a Metroidvania game down there. Five distinct zones opened up in stages by new abilities, boss fights, more backtracking than a mistakenly laid out railway, that's Metroidvania alright. Hope you've been maintaining that safe point in your town square, cause this is gonna cost you, madam. Castlevania seems like the main influence, rescuing individual villagers is straight out of Order of Ecclesia, and there's a friendly animate sword NPC you can get that made the 60% of my brain devoted to remembering things from Symphony of the Night light up like Blackpool Pier. But while Alucard could reasonably be expected to take on Dracula's minions cause he ate asses for breakfast, the spotty gimp we control here doesn't inspire the same confidence. And the only thing that's changed by the time we fight the formless unstoppable demon king of the underworld at the end is that he found a nicer sword and some running shoes. Also Chasm is procedurally generated, or at least that's the claim. It seems like the boss fights, the warp rooms and the upgrades are all roughly in fixed order and it's just all the filler rooms in between that change, but I'm not even 100% on that. I started a second game with a new seed to see if I could figure out what had changed and discovered a short ways in that I didn't actually give a shit. Mind you, Castlevania and randomization has a precedent. I've played Aria of Sorrow so many times I've tried using fan-made ROM randomizers to swap all the pickups around and inject a little variety into my next playthrough, but what usually ended up happening was that a starting skeleton would drop the fucking clave solage or something and I'd spend the rest of the game effortlessly handing out wedgies. Maybe that's why Chasm's gameplay challenge seems painfully unbalanced, but I think it was mainly because of the magic daggers. See, magic attacks are upgradable and you can equip whichever one you want, and once fully upgraded the magic daggers were doing between 60 and shitloads of damage a pop and still only cost one point to use. So I ended up spamming them like it was fucking Gradius and killed every single boss in the game's second half on my first go, often without getting hit. I did at least finish the game, but only because it took basically no effort and I had some podcasts to listen to, and while procedural generation theoretically adds replay value, I'd far rather replay a game that carefully crafts its layout for maximum entertainment than a game like Chasm which rearranges its dull generic hallways full of repeated enemies in a way that has all the practical impact of rearranging the contents of a bag of frozen oven chips. I can state that Chasm is the very best game I've played named Chasm. It is at least better than Chasm the Rift, because in contrast it's a generic Castlevania ripoff with some nice pixel art rather than a generic Quake ripoff with the colour spectrum of a turd convention. So let's move on to our second game which I didn't actually finish but I'm going to offer a definitive opinion on anyway because I'm a busy man with a lot of uneaten crisps in the house, this is The Police 2. I haven't played This is The Police 1, so I had no idea what I was in for, but I was drawn to the fact that the acronym was TITPA. This is The Police 2, it turns out, is a game structured somewhat like XCOM, with isometric turn-based cover combat missions interspersed with a management game where you equip and dispatch named officers to deal with situations as they come up, all of whom are referred to by male pronouns, even the ones that are obviously women, which is either abject laziness or a relevant indictment of small-town authorities. Because the plot is about an inexperienced female deputy in a small-town department having to take over when the sheriff is killed and who just can't seem to get respect in a man's world. Fortunately, her officers arrest a drifter who turns out to be a former police chief wanted on federal corruption charges, but more importantly, he's a man, with a big manly beard, so she puts him in charge instead. Hey, this is the police too, did you see what I did there? I got the premise of your story across in about half a paragraph, perhaps you could show that to your cutscene writer the next time you get a word in edgeways. Yes, Titpa has pretensions to cinematic storytelling, but, well, here's my impression of a This is the Police 2 cutscene. I mean, I mean, this is me doing an impression of a This is the Police 2 cutscene right now. I'm doing it now. Can't you see I'm doing an impression of a This is the Police 2 cutscene? 
seen viewers, viewers, viewers. Are you listening, viewers? You need to be listening to understand my impression of a This is the Police 2 cutscene. I think they're going for an ultra-naturalistic dialogue style, but if realism was the intent, it fell flat, because realistically, if I was stuck in a conversation like this, I'd stick my head in the nearest bread-slicing machine. Imagine they remade Fargo, but every scene was extended by the ten minutes before the relevant thing happens, and the ten minutes after it as well. It's particularly cruel because the first thing you do is a tutorial for the turn-based XCOM-style combat, and then approximately 94 billion years elapse before you get to do it for real. And not just because the cutscenes are all like an argument broke out of the old folks' home between the hearing loss wing and the Alzheimer's ward. Turns out the bulk of the gameplay is dispatching officers to petty crimes and making snap FTL-style text-based decisions. Which isn't unenjoyable, but it is a bit of a lurch when the combat does come back and we go to a pitched battle with armed bank robbers immediately after solving the case of the schoolboys supergluing their bum cheeks to a bus shelter. But that's everyday police work for you, I guess, and after the first combat mission I was feeling positive. I stealthily brought all the baddies in alive with my XCOM chops. But when I was picking my dudes for the second combat mission, the game went, oh by the way, some of these officers hate you. And also being alive. So they're not going to do anything you tell them to do. Oh, could you point out in some obvious way which officers have this characteristic? No, now assemble your team. Sure enough, I inadvertently picked one of these loose cannon dudes who immediately ran off, shot the first bad guy they saw, and caused the nearby building to disgorge about 20 gang members like a drug-fueled clown car, and all my dudes got dead. And that's when I decided I'd had enough of tit per two. It's one thing to bore my tits off, it's quite another to then kick my tits around the garden with a gameplay system I'd usually kinda enjoy. Feels like a betrayal, like getting cut off in traffic by a character from Sesame Street. I had very specific desires in mind this week as I perused the new indie games like a Catholic priest moonlighting as a crosswalk attendant, I decided I was undergoing trial separation with anything that could be remotely described as open world or procedural. It's not that open world games and I don't both love you anymore, viewers, they can still take you out at the weekend to hunt through the bins for crafting materials, but I have needs that I have to fulfil elsewhere. I'm going to play a nice linear crafted story that makes me feel clever, not like an unusually well scrubbed homeless person who can leak rubber cement from their armpits, nor indeed like someone strapped to a conveyor belt drawing inexorably into the world's most boring doomsday machine, so that's most walking simulators out. No, I'm going to play a 2D point and click adventure game, take myself back to a simpler time when if there was an object you need in a high place you couldn't just exploit the physics engine, you'd have to combine a toasting fork with an extension cord and a stickle brick and click on something two pixels wide because trying anything else will make the game obstinately fold its arms and call you a stupid prick. Unavowed is an urban fantasy game that the Steam user tags seem to think is an RPG, possibly because someone was having a stroke. It's only an RPG in the sense that the game itself is playing the role of a 2D point and click adventure game. It was developed in something called Adventure Game Studio, there's a little giveaway for the sharp-eyed expert. You play an average dork, or dorkette, you choose your gender at the start, which just goes to show how far behind Assassin's Creed really is. What? Oh, yes, I suppose getting to pick your gender is technically role-playing, but then again, avocado is technically a fruit, but you wouldn't put it in a fucking crumble. Anyway, you are some flavour of bland pleb with one of three bland backstories who gets possessed by a demon and goes on the rampage before they get exorcised by the Unavowed, a secret society of paranormal detectives pledged to fight evil. Gotta say, guys, that sounds pretty fucking avowed to me. Probably more avowed than most people. Also, it's rather a grand name for three dudes who share a flat, consisting of a genie, a half-genie lady with a big bum, and a bloke who does fire magic in a trench coat and a big hat, and an enormous sandwich board with the phrase, we've read a few Dresden Files books daubed across it. Anyway, now that the demon has put your bland pleb face atop the most wanted list, you have no choice but to join the unavowed. You've got no supernatural abilities, or indeed any perceivable qualifications besides a very bland face, but I guess the washing up isn't gonna do itself. It transpires that none of your new colleagues can so much as run a D&D campaign, so it falls to you to take the lead, recruit some new talents, and undo all the piss artistry your demonically possessed self imposed upon the city of New York. Now if you have read a Dresden Files book, then you have my sympathies. Don't give up, there is always help out there, but if you have, then the world of unavowed 
about will seem very familiar. It's your fairly bog-standard urban fantasy. Magical races have lived in hiding among us for centuries and must be pretty fucking shit at it because literally every bookshop in the world has an entire section devoted to stories about them, bollocks. So it's a modern-day city full of demons and wizards and fairies and clumsy analogies to contemporary race relations. And as such, Unavowed is a touch derivative theme-wise, but I think that's forgivable as long as it's serving up an engaging enough little yarn. Having said that, I'm not sure if that's thanks to or in spite of the usual adventure game trappings. Some of you may know that I have some history with the adventure game studio community from way back. Basically, I hung around until they stopped feeding me like a feral cat, but also because I felt adventure games were too limited, and so was Adventure Game Studio, more to the point. You can have the loveliest art in the world, and Unavowed does have some lovely backgrounds, but there's always something dodgy about how the animations integrate. It doesn't help that every character in Unavowed spends 90% of their time standing like they're waiting for a bus, waiting for a bus on the street, waiting for a bus in the ethereal realm, waiting for a bus in the back of a speeding boat during a tense pursuit with a sea monster. Every character also has one action pose that they occasionally slide in and out of as naturally as an articulated sex toy, switching modes from sensitive to violent buggery. The broader problem with adventure games is that the challenge is having to navigate your way along one specific thread of logic. If it's too obscure, like you can only prod the angry octopus with the garden hoe and not the souvenir miniature of Nelson's column, then it gets annoying. But if it's too obvious, like the only things you can interact with are a fat dog and a hole shaped like a fat dog, then it gets boring. You've got to walk a fine line between solutions making sense but being obscure enough that you feel clever for figuring them out. Unavowed is more on the fat dog side of things, you only ever have access to small numbers of rooms, and half the time you can progress just by exhausting dialogue with everyone. I did feel clever figuring some things out, there's a bit with a duel where you have to find the loophole in the rules that springs to mind, but for the most part I rampaged through the chapters barely slowing down. Part of that might be because you can choose which two helpers to bring along each chapter, and so the puzzles have to be laid out in such a way that any combination of characters can solve them. Which reflects thoughtful design and is all very impressive, but it's impressive in the way that plate spinning is impressive. Yes, very skillful, but I'm going to want that plate back soon so I can finish eating my dinner off it. See, when you're asked to pick characters, you don't have any idea what the chapter's gonna be about or whose skills or experiences are most appropriate, so your choice is always going to be completely arbitrary. And unless you really do want to start a boys-only treehouse club, I'm not convinced it's worth it. But I'll get back to the story because I do like the game and I only want to piss on its shoes, not right down the back of its neck. It's about as deep a story as you'll get in an AGS game, despite the limited locations it succeeds in creating a sense of a much bigger world, largely by letting our imagination fill in the blanks. Bear that in mind, we happy few. Bear that in mind, vampire. And every other game that tried to fully create a big world and ends up being about as fun and involving as pulling your trousers around your ankles and filling them with half a ton of wet sand. And while the Dresden file style Wizards in New York malarkey is basically the equivalent of Harlequin romance novels for lonely men in their 20s, I liked the characters. They all had rounded backstories doled out both through implication and, yes admittedly, dialogue trees, but parceled effectively across multiple between chapter downtime bits that don't vomit their GCSE results at you the first time you seem remotely interested. And despite a few glaring holes, the plot had some interesting twists and in the end I was engaged. And that's all you can ask for, really. Well, it's not all. I could ask for a hand job, but I'm pretty sure you didn't bring the cream or the Long John Silver costume. Since it's important to me that my indie game double bills have some kind of theme in case zero punctuation ever gets adapted into a stage musical, I guess this week we're going for games that are quite a bit like another game but not as good. We'll get Ben Elton to write the song for it, who had some kind of hilariously satirical parallel. So let's start with Guacamelee 2, a game that's quite a bit like Guacamelee 1, but not as good. Guacamelee is the non-unionized Mexican labor force of Metroidvania, inexpensive, hardworking, perfectly decent, probably getting deported anyway. I guess it's Mexican in the same sense that We Happy Few was British, they got someone who'd never been to Mexico but has watched an awful lot of television to write down everything Mexico related they could think of and made a game about that. So it's about lucha libre wrestlers, sombreros, cacti, piñatas, moustaches, um, chickens, and a seemingly endless supply of limited-run soap operas about people getting married. The protagonist of Guacamole One, who's named Juan, because of course he is, is living happily with his wife and family when a new threat appears, one that's markedly reminiscent of the previous one. And our hero must explore a Metroidvania world, markedly reminiscent of the last game's one, in order to bring things to a markedly 
reminiscent, satisfactory conclusion. I never did Guacamelee 1, did I? I forget why. Maybe a Call of Duty game came out that week and I considered it more important that everyone notice all the subtextual racism in it. Well, that's a shame, because for the record, Guacamelee is quite good. A standout in the somewhat overpopulated Border Patrol child detention centre that is the indie Metroidvania genre, because it manages the rare thing of becoming more challenging the more abilities you unlock for an appropriate difficulty curve that starts with blandly hopping onto platforms like a stupid frog trying to escape from its own bum, and ends with these insane wall-run, wall-jump, uppercut, double-jump grapple sequences where you have to make use of the propulsive power of your every last fart, and by integrating movement and fighting abilities, the platforming and the combat evolve in parallel and both end up being damn impressive to watch as long as you remember to put on your most skillful trousers. And I guess my problem with Guacamelee 2 is that it's just pointing at Guacamelee 1 and going, yeah, basically that. I suppose it is four-player now, but that's about as relevant to me as it coming free with a pair of donkey castrating scissors. Being more of Guacamelee 1 is only as big a problem as you make it, but everything feels a little more half-hearted. Even the final boss fight just sort of comes and goes like a needlessly loud advert in the middle of a YouTube video. It doesn't help that Guacamelee seems to think it has a sense of humour, in the same sense that the 7-Eleven seems to think that its coffee is fit for human consumption. It's mainly memes and excruciatingly chummy references to other games, and it's got that Disney Star Wars problem where every dialogue has to end on a gag no matter how dramatic the context, lest anyone think for a nanosecond that we're too weighty and serious to be licensed for Happy Meal toys. So when a nun with a guitar tells us the tragic backstory of the main villain, at the end she has to pick up her guitar again and say, anyway, here's Wonderwall. Wait, that's not a gag, that's barely a sentence. Oh, don't stress it, Grandad, you're probably at that age where meme culture's starting to leave you behind. Piss off, viewer. I can't be old, I swear about video games on the internet for a living. If I were a chicken, I'd still have half the eggshell on my face, making snarky videos about amniotic fluid. But on that note, let's move on from the highly overpopulated genre of indie metroidvanias to the severely underpopulated genre of paperwork checking simulators, which contains only two games, Papers, Please, and now this one. Oh yes, and Tom Clancy's The Division. But that one only because it was so boring it made me stop and do my tax return instead. The game is Not Tonight, which isn't the best title, because in the time it took to go from buying the game to looking for it on my Steam list, I completely forgot what it was called. It's set in Britain, but in contrast to We Happy Few, is pretty clearly made by British people, because it's less T and Monty Python quotes, and more black comedy and pregnant teenagers with bad haircuts. In an alternative post-Brexit 2018, an extreme isolationist party has taken power and pledged to enforce national purity. And as a second-generation immigrant, you now have to work as a bouncer to avoid being deported to Europe. And occasionally you have to check visas at the border just to abandon whatever pretense remained that this wasn't a Papers, Please knockoff. I hesitate to say Papers, Please knockoff in case paperwork checking is the hot new genre, and I'll feel as stupid as I do about when we used to call FPS's Doom clones, but Not Tonight is deliberately doing its hair exactly like Papers, Please and illicitly trying to get off with Papers, Please's boyfriend. It starts off simple with you just checking expiry dates on IDs, and as the government gets more paranoid, complexity increases until you're checking off two forms of ID, tickets, the contents of their pockets, and whether they possess an innie or an outie belly button. Also, like with Papers, Please, there are multiple endings, and you have to decide if you're going to side with the government or the resistance, whom you can aid by pursuing secret extra objectives. But unlike Papers, Please, this isn't really a choice. In Papers, Please, I felt like supporting the government might be justified, as they are at least stable, and makes it less likely that the secret police will come round and split my nostrils open with a pair of donkey castrating scissors. But in Not Tonight, the government openly hates you and informs you frequently that given half a chance it will punch you off the White Cliffs of Dover onto a little raft full of Mr. Bean DVDs, so why wouldn't you support the resistance? See, Papers, Please was about the struggle of being a good person when survival's on the line and it's easier to keep your head down, you had to work your communist balls off just to get by day to day. Meanwhile, I paid every bill in Not Tonight the day I got it and ended the game with 14 grand in the bank. In retrospect, needn't even have bothered with all that drug dealing on the side. I just figured, why not? There's no consequence, except I lost a few points in social credit. Oh, how embarrassing. How will I show my face at the Ellingsworth's garden party? Yahtzee, are you seriously going to complain about a game simultaneously knocking off Papers, Please and not being enough like Papers, Please? Well, the ways it differ make it a worse game, is me point. Like how you don't get paid by the punter, you have to meet a minimum quota of people let through to pass a mission, so if the game randomly rolls a bunch of guys you can't let through when there's only 10 seconds left, then you're European in the wind, my friend. Well, let's not be too churlish, the pixel art is nice and the writing's solid, 
solid. The addition of a few character side plots based around inventory puzzles adds a nice enough bit of extra depth. It's just that I feel like in comparison to Papers, Please, it's doing less with more. It's less nuanced, less impactful, and the political commentary is going to be pretty fucking dated in a few years after a few governments change amidst a rise in popular support for giant radioactive cockroach people. Shenmue is a classic game from the Sega Dreamcast that very recently got officially ported to Steam as part of the console world's ever-burgeoning acknowledgement of its own irrelevance. The main things I knew about Shenmue is that it's a primogenitor of the particular kind of Japanese open world game now exemplified by the Yakuza series, and when Shenmue 3 got announced all the Sega fans collectively wet their Dr. Robotnik themed pyjama bottoms. So having now played Shenmue 1, I have to come to the conclusion that they were probably doing it ironically, and I hope their mothers appreciated the joke when Laundry Day rolled around. Shenmue's kind of a bad game. Not that it's boring or miserable to play, it's got a tang of obliviously enthusiastic badness that makes it slightly hilarious, on top of being boring and miserable to play. Hey, people have been waiting for Shenmue 3. Here's a thought, maybe you could have scratched that itch by watching literally any martial arts film. I'm thinking the plucky young hero who got beaten up by the sneering villain who killed his dad stroke kung fu master at the start probably beats up the sneering villain at the end. And this way you can enjoy the fight scenes without having to smash your controller with a steak tenderizer. What's that, Yarts? Shenmue on the Dreamcast doesn't hold up in this day and age, thanks for the revelation. Don't forget to inform us that Elizabethan roughs make it difficult to look at your smartphone. Hey, granted there's a lot of clumsiness in Shenmue that can be put down to it still being the awkward developmental years of 3D gaming, the movement controls that feel like we're redirecting a Roomba by strategically kicking it, the way we can zoom into and pick up random objects for no reason except to turn them around in our hands in a way that implies we're supposed to be dispensing a constant stream of thick, ropey cum strands at the mind-blowingly cutting-edge graphics. One could conceivably forgive the quick-time events because this is the game that arguably invented them and it took us a while to realise that Q2E's art and narrative game design what firing ping-pong balls out of a vagina is to midwifery. But there is plenty of badness about Shenmue that doesn't take the retrospective view of a mighty space genius from the future to spot. Even the primitive early man of the turn of the millennium could tell that all the conversations sound like every line was recorded on different days, in different rooms with no context and during a gas leak. The plot is, we play Ryo Hazuki, a fairly stock Japanese character, the high school student who is also a karate master and has the emotional range of a plate of egg and chips. Even less, actually, since at least you can use the chips to simulate raised eyebrows, using their quiet stoicism to mask their utter cluelessness. A sneering villain comes to his house, beats him up, kills his dad, steals a green drinks coaster, and so Ryo declares vengeance with the raw emotional power that most of us would use to complain about a vending machine failing to work, and sets out to uncover the truth behind the villain and their sinister organisation by walking out of the house and asking his next door neighbours. In fact, that seems to be Ryo's solution to most of the difficulties in his life, as his entire universe consists of five or six streets in a Japanese city, populated exclusively by people he knows and incredibly rude bastards who will tell him they're just too busy to talk and are in a hurry to get somewhere while sitting on a bench reading a fucking newspaper. But by the time-honoured method of asking the neighbours, Ryo delves into the seedy underbelly of the five or six streets, meaning some people who wear dark glasses and muscle shirts and are somehow even ruder than the newspaper assholes. It's here in this early phase of the game that we come to fully appreciate Ryo's cluelessness when he falls on roughly 12 occasions for the old sure I'll tell you what you want to know, just meet me in this dark alley tomorrow with three of my burly mates trick. And thus two hours into the game we are suddenly thrown into the deep end of the combat, getting attacked relentlessly on all sides while forced to get to grips with a lengthy list of combos like a drowning man being thrown a flat-packed life belt with half the assembly instructions missing. And it's hard to tell if a blow landed or was dodged because all the combatants frenetically roll around each other like a bunch of action figures in a tumble dryer, so in the end all he can do is get out the old steak tenderizer and do the monster mash. Still, I shouldn't complain about these brief interludes of excitement because I'd spent the last six in-game hours waiting patiently in the street for the ambush to start, passing the time by reading the stop signs, and before that I spent eight hours outside a tattoo parlour waiting for them to open so they could tell me where to go tomorrow to get ambushed. See, I'm not going to rag on the game for not being full-on martial arts action all the way through, and not just because the combat calls for precisely the same button inputs made by an impatient person trying to skip a cutscene. The concept of having to balance the exciting part of the story against the mundanities of everyday life is unique fertile ground for video games, explored by games like Persona 5 and Yakuza, and work simulators like Harvest Moon and Reseteer. The problem is, Shenmue's open world just doesn't have anything to do in it, between the story beats, besides walk around the neighbours,
murderers tell them you have to avenge your father and listen to them quite rightfully call you a suicidal fuckhead. Otherwise you can stroke a cat or bum around the arcade playing Space Harrier, neither of which feel like making the most of a bold new era of open world gameplay. And the real kick in the teeth was that after several hours of bumming around getting ambushed as punishment for indiscreetly asking random strangers where the sailors hang out, Ryo's mum or housekeeper or live-in gimp or whatever the fuck she is just goes, oh here's a letter for your dad that's your first actual lead that I forgot about, so everything up to this point has officially been a complete waste of your fucking time and don't forget to feed the cat. Eventually our detective work takes us to the docks, it never having occurred to Rio to check there while he was looking for sailors, and we have to get a job moving identical wooden boxes back and forth along the pier over and over again, day in day out. Finally the action's picking up. No really, this is the point when Shenmue turns into a video game, lo and behold. Phew, only took about six hours. You have to use actual driving finesse and map reading skills to move a minimum quota of boxes in a time limit, and finally the game can justify the fact that character movement handles like operating a piece of industrial lifting equipment. I was getting into beating my box relocation record and resented the game for constantly interrupting it, so that the bad guys could have another crack at throwing some meatheads at the karate master in the hope that practice will help them get better at being concussed. And inescapably the story rolls on to the insipid to be continued. To me the experience of playing Shenmue 1 was rather like what I imagined having sex with Ryo Hazuki is like, it just lay there staring resentfully at me as I poked all its bits trying to provoke a reaction. Yes I'm sure it was influential and very nostalgic for you, but of all the many wonderful properties in gaming this is the one you're holding out for a sequel to. That's like having two perfectly good eyeballs and using them to watch Destructoid videos. Well I wanted a AAA game to come out and it doesn't get much more AAA than this. Spider-Man means Sony, it means Marvel, it means Disney, it means they couldn't animate Spider-Man scratching his ass until six teams of lawyers had discussed it for a week. You can practically smell the money coming off this one. So of course they're going to milk it till its kidneys plop out. I go to buy it, it goes, do you want the standard edition for the usual only faintly extortionate 60 bucks or the deluxe edition for the obviously bullshit 80? You get a whole three more missions. Oh okay, so by deluxe edition what you meant was intact edition. Unbutchered edition. Edition that wasn't picked apart on the surgeon's table by Dr. Nickel and Dr. Dime. You don't get this in films, they don't bring the lights up halfway through and say could the silver ticket holders kindly fuck off for 20 minutes so the gold ticket holders can watch a few subplots. Anyway I went for the standard edition because I wasn't going to let more of this dominate my weekend than necessary. Marvel's Spider-Man is of course a new sandbox game about Spider-Man, a genre that has seen one exemplar, Spider-Man 2 on the GameCube and a whole load of Spider-Man newer since then. So let's get straight to the big question, is Disney's Marvel Spider-Man a better Spider-Man game than Spider-Man 2? The answer is… yes. And that incidentally was my entry for the 2018 most subtext in a single syllable competition. It is in the sense that Sony's Disney's Marvel Spider-Man does contain a better Spider-Man game. If you broke it down to component bits and selectively reconstructed it you'd have a perfect Spider-Man game. The problem is, the game also contains every other game that has ever existed in the history of the world, most predominantly Batman Arkham City, and the advice I've given to pretty much every Spider-Man game in the last decade has been stop trying to be Batman. Embrace the things that make you special Spider-Man. You can't skulk in the shadows, you're dressed like the top of a police car for fuck's sake. So while the web swinging in Sony's Disney's Marvel Lee's Spider-Man is great, it looks good and requires finesse and there are races and stunt challenges and boss fights that make the most of it, we also have to do the usual fucking stealthy base assaults. And once again someone rips off the Arkham style Predator mission without understanding the ingredient that made them work, escalation. The enemies got twitchier and more scared as you picked them off, the situation evolved. If it doesn't it gets boring. Isolate pick off, isolate pick off, whoops no more isolated ones, distract isolate pick off. But what's really galling is that even if I successfully pick them all off with no alerts, half the time the game just spawns more dudes, pre-alerted for your convenient and you're forced to fight them. I spent ten minutes going out of my way to careful careful stealthy stealth the first round of lads, but apparently I might as well have just blundered in here in a sombrero with my knob out for all the good it- hang on, why does it say wave one at the top of the screen? Oh, you're just padding this out now. The combat's already somewhat annoying, it's got nice variety and you can bestow a smorgasbord of blatantly life-threatening spinal injuries upon random goons, but I guess they all got bitten by radioactive rolled up newspapers because even basic thugs can knock your health down rapidly, and the spider sense effect that tells you when to dodge is wonky as balls. Sometimes it goes off when 
nothing's about to hit you. At other times it goes off 0.1 seconds before a hitherto unannounced rocket obliterates your spider nads. So the base assaults are a miserable chore, frankly. Oh well, at least it's still superhero stealth, at least you're not some boring fuck crouched behind a box throwing distraction objects and getting insta-killed the moment you get spotted. Uh, <clears throat> I don't like the sound of that cough you just made, Marvel Sony Steve Ditko Spider-Man. Well, the thing is, we thought we could have a few missions throughout the campaign where you play as Spider-Man's normal human mates. Crouching behind boxes, throwing distraction objects, and, uh, the other thing. You know, for variety. So let me see if I've got this straight, Insomniac Games' Disney Spider-Man. You're going to interrupt your high-octane, big-balls, web-swinging, free-roam superhero power fantasy for the sake of some mandatory forced stealth sections playing as a mundane fuck going on a chest-high wall inspection tour. And you're doing this so that we don't get bored. Yes, downtime is important for pacing, but the downtime in a Spider-Man game is when you blow off the missions for a bit to idly challenge yourself to web-swing all the way across the map without losing speed or mentioning that you're from New York. Speaking of the campaign, the story takes another cue from Batman Arkham Asylum which went, you fucking know who Batman is, shut up, don't lie. You know who the Joker is, you know who the Riddler is, let's just get on with the fun and not piss about with origin stories. Marvel's Clive Barker Spider-Man mostly does that, it's eight years into Spider-Man's career, there's a rather loose plot existing mainly as an excuse for a villain showcase. No offence Spider-Man, but your villains kinda suck, although it would be weird if you did take offence to that. There's only two kinds, the silly villains, bank robbers with really obvious themes and generic villain personalities, so if you swapped their powers around you couldn't tell the fuckers apart, and the serious villains, who are all former Peter Parker father figures with Jekyll and Hyde issues. Peter Parker really needs to learn to stop latching onto older men, it never ends well. The exception to the no origin stories rule is Dr Octopus, he gets origin story for days. There's like 90 million plot missions where you just hang around the lab so Dr Octavius can drop another hint and make another weird face to camera, until you're going, for fuck's sake, we know he's going to be Dr Octopus. Stop arsing about and bolt some Japanese rape tentacles to this motherfucker. Marvel's Disney's, Sony's, Insomniac Games' Stan Lee's, Steve Ditko's giant-sized man thing achieves that wonderful quality of Spider-Man 2 in which it was just fun and not a little zen to while away the afternoon randomly swinging through the streets, stumbling on collectibles and little crimes to foil, which may ultimately be enough, but I feel like saying it's a really good game is like saying the Bible supports the ostracization of homosexuals. It's true, but only if you cherry-pick bits of it from the piles and piles of other stuff. Web-swinging becomes the spoonful of sugar to help keep down the base assaults, the forced stealth missions with other characters, the weirdly elaborate science minigames where you have to play Pipe Dream and do tile matching puzzles, which make me think Octavius went off the deep end because he was sick of sitting around the lab playing Dr Mario all fucking day. This sort of design is the result of seeking the broadest possible audience, but I would argue there is still value in a refined experience. It's a bit unfair that AAA games can afford to just keep throwing bollocks at the wall until some of it sticks. Sticky bollocks are the last thing you want when you're wearing spandex tights. Ah, what a delightful thing it always is to see a video game enter the hallowed ranks of things that have shadows. Now as well as the Colossus, the Beast, the Damned, the Comet, Mordor, and, uh, the Beast too. there's also a Shadow of the Tomb Raider. You might say it's just falling back on hackneyed titling cliches because they already use the generic R-word sequel name with Rise of the Tomb Raider, but shadows are important. A shadow can tell you how fat and ugly something is without you having to directly look at it. And that's as fitting a segue into the actual game as we're going to get. Shadow of the Tomb Raider is the origin story for how Lara Croft became a Tomb Raider, which might confuse anyone who played the last two Tomb Raiders, which also claimed to be that exact thing. Apparently it was a trilogy all along. Surprise! I guess you need the full extent of three games to fully establish why a person might want to hunt for treasures or murder people who are trying to murder them. The plot for this one is, oh god, it hardly matters. Lara's on a treasure hunt, needs to get to the ancient ruins before the bad guys do, because the bad guys wouldn't treat them respectfully or something, as opposed to Lara who just accidentally demolishes most of it by climbing all over it with her big fat ass. She picks up a treasure that sets off the countdown to apocalypse and the bad guys call her a stupid fuck as natural disasters start killing off all the locals and it's completely her fault. But you have to have sympathy for her, because ages ago her father died and made her quite sad, and alone with nothing to her name but all the money in the universe. Anyway, everyone sort of forgets 
forgets about that apocalypse thing and the plot becomes about tracking down a lost city of Incas and doubly doubly dumb and at the end we're too late to stop the main bad guy using the ancient magic treasure to turn themselves into a god. The kind of god who walks very slowly around a boss arena and can be killed by shooting them with bullets. Yeah, Laura, I guess it was important we stopped them acquiring this unstoppable power. They might have marched on Washington and been instantly cut down by the National Guard. I'm sure all those dead Mexicans now understand the importance of their sacrifice, you mad cow! Well, now the origin story's officially over, I can state with complete confidence that I can't stand this version of Lara Croft. Admittedly, old Lara Croft seemed to have augmented her tits and bum by extracting material from her personality, but at least there was a sense of fun. Even falling nine stories onto spikes had this colourful bonhomie about it when her ponytail was dancing merrily about her exposed giblets like Francis Bacon's favourite brush. New Lara is just equal parts boring and apparently psychotic. First, most of her emotional range got blasted off her face in a hideous leaf blower accident, so she reacts to everything from an exploding oil refinery to the death of her pet badger, like she's at the supermarket trying to figure out what kind of toothpaste she wants. Just like last time, she's got a bad case of the have-tos, and if you take a drink every time she declares that she has to, or must do something, then you'll wake up in a dog kennel with your mouth tasting like the inside of a cement mixer, which again gives her the personal agency of a wooden ducky on a string. And let's not forget she's bugfuck nuts. Villager says, some naughty criminals are giving us trouble. Lara says, oh how terrible, I must help you. And then with no further questions, proceeds to start wordlessly dragging people into bushes and slitting their throats, like she's been waiting all fucking day for the excuse to get started. Help me out here, viewers. How has Lara Croft's character developed over the course of this developmental origin story? She was already a super gymnast adventurer archery gold medalist when the first game started. She had a brief case of the Wibblies after her first confirmed kill, but she was chalking them up like a champ inside ten minutes. She has received a lot of punishment, but if getting the shit beaten out of you is enough to make you a complex and interesting character, then my knob deserves its own Scorsese-directed biopic. Mostly, it seems she goes after treasures because someone else getting it first would be bad in some poorly established way, and then proceeds to monotone her way through the subsequent peril. There is the occasional blip of character development that is always quickly squashed like a bubble in wallpaper. On around twelve occasions she thinks she's gotten her big dumb friend killed and starts wondering if maybe this is why nobody comes to her birthday parties, but oh, turns out he's alive, aboard character development. Then she thinks the baddies have killed her big dumb friend, so she puts on her Terminator face and goes on a rampage, but again, oh, big dumb friend's still alive, back to sanity. Big dumb friend almost gets through at one point by yelling at her to stop shouldering the whole burden and making things all about her, shortly before she shoulders the whole burden and makes things all about her, but the only revelation she seems to have had by the end of her origin story is that maybe she should just stop bothering with the big dumb friend in future. Oh yeah, and there's this business with avenging her father, who was killed by the evil cult conspiracy organisation thing we're up against, but she isn't even sure they did kill him till right at the end, and most of the leaders of the evil cult all die off screen, which was probably the highlight of the game comedy-wise. There's this action-packed penultimate battle sequence before the final boss where an easily missed voiceover goes, hey I've got all the cult leaders in this helicopter, whoops it crashed and everyone died, butterfingers. Then the secondary villain dies, then the main villain dies. This is all in like ten minutes, not so much tying up the plot threads as taking a fucking hedge trimmer to them. I don't know if this is coming across, but I really didn't like Shadow of the Tomb Raider very much. I consider it fitting that it used an eclipse as its symbol, because creatively speaking it's a fucking black hole. The only new idea it had for the gameplay was that now you can hide on plant-covered walls as part of the stealth. I assume this was the result of nepotism. Mr. Chest High Wall pressured Square Enix to give his layabout cousin a job so he'd get off the weed. It's one of those games where I had real trouble deciding what upgrades to buy from the character menu because they all seemed equally useless as long as stealth kills still work and most enemies go down in a mere smattering of bullets from the assault rifle you are given at no cost. Increase the amount of time Lara can hold her breath underwater, I don't see how you could increase it by much. She's already putting pearl divers to shame. She must have a couple of air pockets concealed in her bra. Speaking of which, did you see that bit in the trailer where Lara's struggling to squeeze her D-cups through an incredibly narrow underwater cave before she drowns? Effective moment that, wasn't it? Devs clearly thought so, they reuse it like four times. Not that there's any actual peril, it's an altogether now predetermined action set piece, like half the rest of the game. Which is probably why the game world feels so shallow and artificial. There is a modern style oil refinery, literally within a minute's brisk walk of the secret Incan city, for no better reason than to have something Lara can blow up at the start of the 
final act, which she does within about 30 seconds of arriving at it. What do you expect? She's an outdoors woman. She likes hiking. Insurance rates. <laughs> I like to think I'm always keen to try new things, as long as it doesn't involve my bottom. Trust me, whatever you think I'm missing out on, I'm quite content with the maximum amount of entertainment value that can be extracted from my butthole being doing crosswords on the toilet. Nobody else is talking about your butthole yards. I know, I'm just saying. Anyway, the point is, I'd never played a Dragon Quest game before, but I thought I'd give the new one a go, which obviously means I can't say if it's a good Dragon Quest game, but I can certainly compare it to other games and to objects being pushed up my butthole. One thing I did know about Dragon Quest going in is that Japanese people go double downward dog bonkers for it. Like unofficial public holiday every time one comes out bonkers, putting it in impact terms right up there with terrorist strikes and dead princesses. But having played Dragon Quest XI Echoes of an Elusive Age, and yes I am so going to slowly pervert that subtitle as this review goes on, I am now slightly concerned about the Japanese, as I would about a school friend who confides that they have a crush on the dinner lady, knowing they're going to be driven to suicide by mockery within a week by me. Like the dinner lady, Dragon Quest's appeal seems to lie in it being a nice, comfortable, unthreatening place, always good for an extra helping of dumplings if you put in the right words. The plot of Dragon Quest XI, Emissions of an Infected Arse, is you are in generic JRPG swords and sorcery fantasy world, east of Java. You are the last surviving heir of a deposed royal house who was found as a baby and adopted by peasant farmers. There's a weird birthmark on your hand that magic occasionally comes out of and you grow into a strong, handsome lad with a girl's haircut. So when you come of age, your adoptive parent takes you aside and says, look, let's not beat around the bush, you couldn't be more obviously a destined fantasy hero if your high school graduation picture was painted by Boris Vallejo. Sadly, there doesn't seem to be any global crisis going on at the moment that would require a destined hero, so why don't you just wander around the countryside for a bit and destiny will presumably strike at some point. I'm not being dismissive here, that's literally how we start. You go to the royal castle on the off chance that a kidnapped princess needs rescuing but get thrown in the dungeon because the king's played too many Elder Scrolls games and thinks that's just what you do with destined heroes. We break out within minutes and the plot becomes go from city to city looking for the person who isn't one of the five or six endlessly repeated NPC models, recruit them to your party, then do whatever they want to do until the next one comes along. By this method, we enlist to our cause a toddler, two hotties, an old man, a comedy stereotype of a homosexual, and an actual homosexual. And after the last party member joins, they say, what do you mean destiny hasn't struck yet? Alright, let's just gather the six destiny balls, that'll wake the fucker up. I only had three or four days to play the game in, so I was under no illusion that I'd finished the fucking thing and I dropped out after the third or fourth ball, about twenty hours in and still no sign of a big villain. Couple of Darth Vaders but no Palpatines, you know. But you can see what I mean about comfortable and non-threatening, at least the plot is. Couldn't say the same for the visual design. The characters all remind me of those anime cosplayers who wear masks with anime faces drawn on to look more open quotes authentic. The kind that looked like if you woke in the night and saw them at the foot of your bed, it'd be the last thing you experienced before blackness and the sound of tearing cartilage. Well, let's be accepting of cultural differences, which are presumably why pressing start doesn't open the pause menu but turns on auto-run mode. I wouldn't think an auto-run mode would be much use in an RPG. The overworld can be big, but it's full of random encounters, so it's not like you can just point yourself at your destination and then nip off for a quick tea ceremony. Gameplay-wise, Dragon Quest XI, Errors of an Illicit Anus, embodies a nostalgic if-it-ain't-broke-don't-mentally-progress-past-the-age-of-twelve attitude with a simple, heavily text-based, retro turn-based combat system. Although you can move your character freely around the battle space, possibly as a joke, it seems to be a feature put in for very superstitious people who want to convince themselves that serpentining will actually affect whether or not malicious chimp A will whiff his handful of feces attack, or for very easily amused people who want to stand behind the enemy during battles so that their alert, hunched-forward pose can become part of a hilarious, suggestive tableau. The funny thing about random battles in Dragon Quest XI elegies of Eddie the Eagle Edwards is that you only ever get into them because you choose to. Random enemies only notice you if you accidentally stumble up one of their nostrils and you can run faster than them anyway. Even during the what I will only call stealth sections if a small dog nervously pissing on a cello is a string quartet, the armed fanatics convinced that you are the spawn of Satan get winded and stop pursuing you after chasing you the approximate length of my dick. You can literally sprint unmolested through an entire dungeon and back just to use the save point before you take on the boss, but if you don't get into random battles then you'll be severely underleveled for the fights you have to do. So while the game doesn't force us to run a gauntlet of cricket bats to the arse, it has laid a cricket bat down 
in front of us and locked the door with a special mechanism that would only open if we fill a jar with our tears, I think it's fair to say the Dragon Quest XI Erections of an Aggressive Emu isn't going to light any fires as an innovative or challenging work. I mean, it's not even half-heartedly clicking an empty barbecue lighter, but that's precisely not what it's setting out to do, and you know what, I think I respect that, as I sailed inexorably through this entirely obvious plot that at times feels like we're playing a D&D campaign that the DM is making up on the spot in the brief moments when he can get off the phone to his divorce lawyer, visiting the standard environments, grasslands, desert, ocean, grasslands, grasslands, ocean again, fighting twee monsters that all seem carefully designed to be potentially made into plushies to sell on Etsy, I felt myself being taken in. I was sinking down into a cosy warm bath where I could doze blissfully off to a fluffy dream world where no perceptions are being challenged but everything's just nice. But I think it's worth mentioning that I could only enter this state after I had muted the music, or to give it its proper name, the fucking music. Yeah, I get the game's dedicated to the retro nostalgia thing, hence the bleep bloop 8-bit battle sounds, and that's why a lot of the music sounds like it came from a 16-bit era MIDI synthesizer, but it also sounds like someone took that synthesizer, turned to the blarp setting to 100%, and proceeded to stomp on it like a grape in a French vineyard. It's minute-long loop after minute-long loop of string and brass sections honking like pigs queuing up to have their throats cut. Let that be the lesson, viewers. Cozier place as the past may seem, don't forget it also contains potato famines, Hitler and synth music. I think we've reached the point that sticking the word origins on the end of your prequel name has become the equivalent of taking your husband's name after marriage, not technically required, just a societally expected formality. Well, flip my bollocks up like a Venetian blind and tickle the hairy crevices below if it isn't a prequel to the classic Star Control series of PC Space Explorer maps. Except it isn't really, because according to Wikipedia the original creators aren't behind it and sued for copyright infringement so the developers of Origins couldn't use any of the plot characters or alien races from the old games. Which rather makes me wonder why they were still allowed to call it Star Control, seems like that's a fucking big oversight if you're copywriting things, but then I don't know much about the law. If I did, I'd have taken those Google Android motherfuckers to the cleaners years ago. Still, Star Control Origins plays well enough like it's not predecessors, it's a fairly unique take on space games which usually fall into one of two categories, the full-on 3D explore dogfight em up like your Elite Dangerous, or your 2D strategic tedious em up like your EVE Online, all making sure everyone's thermos flasks contain enough space tea before you mobilise the fleet to sector bum sex gamma, all about as fun as slowly inserting your head into a tank of cold centipede jizz. You might think at first glance Star Control leans towards the latter, but don't be fooled by the menu-driven interface or the dry mechanical titles. Star Control! Control your stars, madam, they're disturbing the other diners in this family restaurant. No, Star Control is actually quite a light and fluffy affair as space games go, with its main selling points being funny dialogue and pissing about. Everything else, and there's quite a bit of everything else, in some way serves to get you to more places where you can see funny dialogue, or make it easier for you to piss about unmolested. So with the core gameplay loop established, the premise is, just as the people of Earth are about to embark upon an exciting new age of space exploration with several we-come-in-peace greeting cards under one arm and a load of nukes under the other, we suddenly find ourselves on the radar of an ancient and sinister alien empire who have enslaved most of the cosmos, and it's up to us to discover and unite the various slave races to restore peace, freedom and equality to the galaxy. Just this galaxy though, fuck those snooty Andromeda wankers. So gameplay takes place on multiple levels, first of all travelling between planets and star systems, it's all in 2D, so it's just rotate until facing thing you want to go to, then press forward. If thing you want to go to isn't there, you either didn't press forward enough or pressed it too much. Blimey, interstellar travel's more complicated than I thought. The next level of gameplay is exploring planets in your landing craft for minerals and shiny chocolate wrappers, and either your landing craft is about the size of continental Europe, or every planet is titchy enough that even Pluto could steal its lunch money. But you know, corners have to be cut when you're trying to render an entire galaxy. That's why there's only like eight types of planet and four types of wildlife, and why your lander is made of crisp packets and toilet rolls and occasionally explodes because you parked it slightly askew. But you know, repetitive as the planets got, it was always pleasing to explore a new system and find a planet rich in natural resources, and as I touched down to rape it for its every last drop of potential, I ruminated on how lucky the galaxy must feel to have someone like me raping it, and not an ancient evil space empire for once. The third main gameplay mechanic is the combat, when the stars and planets of the nearby environment are converted into little pinball bumpers around which you and your murder partner fight on two levels, secondarily with each other, primarily with the sodding controls. It ends up being something like a jousting simulator, you speed towards each other, let fly a bunch of missiles and lasers when you get close, speed off into the distance and start wrestling your ship back around for another run, assuming you didn't slam headlong 
bong into a space brick wall. It's kind of like having a breakup conversation with your significant other while the two of you are on opposite ends of two funfair pirate ship rides and you need to blurt out apologies in the brief moment you're in earshot. Once you've befriended a few races and getting a good planet-raping groove going, there can be long gaps between needing to do combat, so you might get caught off guard at inconvenient times when there's nothing in your fleet but two wheelbarrows and a banana boat. For the same reason, you don't get much chance to practice combat, so you end up not wanting to use any new ships you've picked up because odds are good it'll get blown up in two seconds because you didn't realise it's got the turning speed of an old lady in a crowded charity shop and the main gun only works on alternate weekends. Might be just as well as an option to have the computer do combat for you, but I'm not sure I'd recommend that since it removes most of what constitutes the game part of this video game. The only other time challenging gameplay appears is when the planet you're raping occasionally rapes you back. Yes, I do have to use that word, mother. The interface is very janky, especially when using a controller. There's frequent confusion over what's currently highlighted and what will be highlighted instead if we start moving around. Sometimes it does that thing where you press a button on one menu and it automatically presses a button on the next menu, leading to scenarios where we accidentally start combat in the banana boat when we wanted the wheelbarrow. And then we come to the interstellar map and star search engine when the game officially fucking gives up and goes, I'll just get your keyboard out for fuck's sake. Throw that stupid thing away, it's like someone melted a TV remote in a kidney bowl. Hesitant as I am to complain in this age of patching it in post, which means it might be fixed after this comes out or the entire game replaced with 18 hours of the hamster dance. But all nitpicking aside, the main reason to buy Star Control Revelations is for the writing, which is just as well, as every other mechanic lacks a certain depth. Most of the rest of it's exploration based and you'll be all explored out toward the end, even planet raping won't excite you like it used to, when there's nothing more worth buying and sometimes you'd rather just cuddle. The combat's officially over once you buy the one laser that auto-hits any ship or missile that gets close enough to ask you directions. The dialogue's all that's left, but it might be enough. It does the rare thing of being funny without seeming like it's trying too hard. True, it's annoying how some enemies inflict the same prolonged dialogue tree on you every time you run into their ships when no combination of platitudes won't result in a fight. True, every species apparently only has one appearance and personality to share between them, but hey, Star Trek gets away with it. And every species stroke character has depth and a unique perspective. Even the evil space empire becomes more complex the more you learn. You start to think they're all mouth and no dilithium crystals because they're too old and mired in bureaucracy to maintain a decent oppression stiffy. So after all that, I liked Star Control Revengeance. It's a light snacky bit of fun and adventure in a somewhat awkward package, like an attractive sexually curious Dalek. Don't be fooled by the two asses in the name, viewers. Assassin's Creed is half-assed at best. Oh boy, they stamped out a whole new one that's set in ancient Greece, so who gets to be Leonardo da Vinci this time? As in, the historical celebrity who inexplicably becomes BFFs with the main character within seconds of meeting them, and becomes the major support character to lend a sense of desperate authenticity reminiscent of celebrity cameos on more recent episodes of The Simpsons. Oh, we don't do that in every Ass Creed game, yards. It's Herodotus. Thank you! And in keeping with every Ascreed game using the previous Ascreed game as a prototype, like a slinky descending a filthy staircase acquiring more and more dust and mouse turds as it goes, Odyssey is basically Origins with a couple more bits added, which means the fucking levelling system is back again, and the sense of an open world is lost as quests and areas have recommended levels ensuring that only one portion of the game is worth being in at any one time. It also continues the de-emphasisation of stealth. Call me a boring old stick in the mud for expecting a game with the word assassin in the title to be about sneaking and precision, rather than hammering away at an overlong health like I'm driving a stake into a concrete floor. A stealth attack isn't a guaranteed kill on a higher level enemy and it feels like enemies take forever to come out of alert mode if you run and hide, so any attempt at subtlety or cleverness on your part will very frequently give way to prolonged punch-ups with mobs of football hooligans. And I know precisely why this had to be the case, because if you weren't constantly forced into open combat then you'd have no reason to keep upgrading and replacing your weapons and armour, and Ubisoft wouldn't be able to entice you with high level gear with bigger numbers winking brazenly at you from behind paywalls, grindathons, and the sequin covered chastity belts of special editions. But hey, why bring that 
to hate just because Assassin's Creed is different to how it used to be. Ubisoft wanted to be more of an open-world RPG than a sandbox, there's nothing wrong with that. After all, if you want a sandbox, just play literally anything else Ubisoft puts out. Now we're in RPG, we can enjoy the usual benefits of an RPG, that is, a stronger emphasis on story and character development. Can't we, Ubisoft? Look me in the eye, Ubisoft, I said can't we! Not really. If anything, characters have only become less developed. In stark contrast to Ezio and whatever that dude from Assassin's Creed 3 eventually decided his name was, when we followed the main character basically from birth and learned exactly who they were, why they hate Templars, and how their grip strength became stronger than an obsessive Alan Titchmarsh fan holding onto the very last copy of BBC Gardener's World magazine. Now it's just, they're here, they've already got the skills, and they oppose the Templars because Templars are baddies and baddies are bad. Mustn't let any prolonged character building moments get in the way of the fucking grind. Even the apparently inescapable future bridging narrative I have officially given up attempting to follow, as it seems to be populated exclusively by characters who have had no introduction whatsoever, and yet we're just supposed to know what they're about. But let's talk innovations. You play as one of two siblings of opposing genders in ancient Sparta, which as I've previously stated isn't even innovative for Assassin's Creed games, so what innovation does Assassin's Creed Odyssey bring to the series? Well, there's dialogue trees now. That's the new hotness, is it? Dialogue trees. That's like bursting into the avant-garde fashion show and loudly announcing that you've just discovered that oversized t-shirts are good for sleeping in. Oh yes, and I guess it finally sank in that Ubisoft sandboxes are all just go to icon on map, because now there's an optional explorative mode, where instead of going to icon on map, you wander vaguely around the relevant area until the screen lights up going, you are near the thing, call your eagle, look around until an icon appears, then go to icon on map. Not so much removing go to icon on map as adding an extra step to it, like trying to get more exercise by keeping the TV remote on the other end of the couch. Anyway, your character is a mercenary caught up in a war between Athens and Sparta, and a big thing is made of how you can intervene in the war by weakening a territory's leadership until you can participate in a big ground battle to switch the area from blue to red or vice versa. Except at various times you fight for and against both sides, and gameplay-wise there's no difference except the colours of their t-shirts. They all get equal amounts of Narcon when you're trying to complete objectives in their soldier camps, and their spears are equally pointy. So I'm a little unclear on why we should care about influencing the war. Why do you need a reason, Yards? Overthrowing a nation always looks good on the old resume. Oh yes, and the ship is back. In Origins, the ship combat was a carnival sideshow, but now it's your main mode of transportation between islands like it was in Black Flag. Thing is, in Black Flag, the ship was the centre of your pirate universe, and everything revolved around it, and now it's just sort of there. Someone conveniently hands you it the instant you need one, and between prolonged grinding on big islands and fast travelling, huge swathes of the game can go by without you needing the ship at all. It's another thing that's there, like the stuff with the war. Assassin's Creed Plodicy is a game full of things that are there. Quote that for the fucking blurb. There, but not really connecting, like my LinkedIn account. Some of the things that are there are there one suspects because they are things that other popular games have done, usually with a hell of a lot more depth and mileage. You can recruit knocked out enemy soldiers, MGS5 style, and add them to your ship crew, but your ship seems to be capable of getting along perfectly well without enslaved conscripts that hate you. There's a network of named mercenaries that bears a suspicious resemblance to the Nemesis system from the Middle Earth shadow of such and such games, except with none of their personality, and their main role appears to be to materialise while you're in the middle of grindy combat sessions in order to extend the length of the grindy combat session. Do you know how many Assassin's Creed games I've reviewed? One, two, two and a bit, two and a bit more, three, Slack Flag, Yunchiti, Syndicant, Oriminge, and Sodacy makes ten. And while I've given each game varying degrees of shit, I've never once failed to play through the entire story campaign until now. In modern gaming, Assassin's Creed is a fat and awkward member of the gang who occasionally made interesting wheezing noises when we punched him in the gut, but it has finally ceased to amuse. I had been playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey for nearly 40 sodding hours, 40 sodding plodding hours, of copy-pasted soldier camps and temples, of hammering away at one overlong health bar after another, like 
a drinking bird toy trying to eat a king-size Mars bar. And I swear half the characters look the same. I swear King Leonidas and Barnabas the ship captain are the same fucking guy with his beard at different stages of development. And all I could see ahead of me was 40 more hours of the same shit, stretching unbrokenly on from anus to toilet water. You did it, Ubisoft. You beat me. The first Assassin's Creed game I couldn't finish. It can finally take its place alongside everything else I can't finish, like JRPGs, the main courses at American family restaurants, and masturbating to the one nude scene in The Shining. I know Call of Duty and I have had our ups and downs, well, had our downs and downs, and more downs, and just when we thought we couldn't go any further down we broke new ground and discovered a sealed off basement where a family of horny pigs were passing around the corpse of Modern Warfare 1, but when I saw that Cod Blobs 4 was coming out I felt renewed vigour. After having to plough through so many RPGs and open worlds in very limited time I was in the right mood for a nice straightforward four hour story campaign, and hell, as a white person it'll be nice to see the genetic superiority of my race being confirmed for a little while. That was when Cod Blobs 4 laid its knob across my porridge for the first time. No single player campaign. Well, Activision, as Milorad Petrovich said in response to the invasion of Yugoslavia, the fuck? We thought you'd be pleased, Yards. Every story campaign of every COD game you've played in years you call racist and overblown and taken straight from what insecure NRA members see when they close their eyes and touch themselves. At least we didn't hire Kit Harrington this time. Granted. But having removed the single player, are you going to charge less for the game? Oh, <laughs> Yahtzee, I can see why people say you're a funny guy. 130 bucks the deluxe version costs. As the water treatment engineer said of his favourite outflow pipe, that's taking a lot of piss. I can see why it's not on Steam. Steam has user reviews. There'd be a big fat mostly negative next to the name before you can say Eric Prince. Still, saying the game has no single player content would doubtless annoy a few marketing types. Of course there's single player content, they would say. You can play the tutorial missions as many times as you like. There are ten playable characters and a little tutorial for each and they're worth going through just because the person narrating them is the most insecure man in the universe and for Call of Duty that's saying something. Yeah, press that grenade key. Knock knock, motherfuckers, it's your birthday and the party clown's here. You're a stone cold brass bald killer and you're gonna have their ass for supper. I'd like to put your penis in my mouth. I mean take you to a steak restaurant and barbecue an entire cow using nothing but the pressure cooker effect of my giant balls. He's great. It's like listening to Jeremy Clarkson's stream of consciousness while he's using the communal shower at the YMCA. And by doing these missions you also unlock the story. For the story had to be somewhere. Without story there's no context and even a multiplayer game needs context. Shuts up, yes it does. If you don't need context there are literally hundreds of ways you could scratch your itch of wanting to shoot human shaped things with a gun, although maybe stick to video games if you're planning to do it more than once. Story cutscenes are gradually unlocked as you complete the character tutorials, so here's the story as I understood it. Very rich white lady is sad because her sister died in a gun battle and in response gathers ten elite mercenaries from around the world so that they can gun battle, in aid of something. She says something about ending war, but I don't think you do that with gun battles, that's like enlisting major game publishers in a campaign for reasonably priced entertainment. Then she betrays the mercenaries for some reason and that's your lot. For the reasons described above, the ten mercenaries will now gun battle an infinite number of clones of each other in various enclosed industrial environments for the rest of time. Ooh, maybe they're all dead and in purgatory yards. Oh shut up viewer, you always say that. Just because Lost confirmed it, you think you know everything now. There's an air of desperation about Cod Blobs 4. If it had a subtitle, well, a sub-subtitle, it'd be What the fuck do you people want? It's basically a collection of gameplay modes that several phenomenally popular other games have all done before and less blandly. Its challenge is not so much finding an audience as it is luring that audience away from the games it already has. The ten playable characters in the I hesitate to call it main multiplayer mode smacks of Overwatch-style hero shooters, but the characters just aren't distinct enough. It takes more than different hairdos and a greater variety of accents than a French punctuation manual. They're all basically the same size and speed and their unique weapons and abilities take time to warm up so most of the time is spent running around blasting assault rifles at each other, and again there are plenty of games where you can do that, some of which don't run like complete garbage on graphics cards more than six months old. And then of course there's the PUBG mode. We'd prefer you call it Blackout mode, Yarts. Well that's very adorable of you, but it'll take more than terminology to disguise the fact that it's just PUBG. I suppose the lesson that Fortnite taught us was that PUBG's audience is completely up for grabs to anyone who can rip off PUBG without being quite so buggy and awful, but there's something particularly cynical about a big AAA franchise doing it, presumably hoping a cosy and
and familiar name on the top will draw them in, like a supermarket-owned brand packet of fish fingers. And the third gameplay mode is that co-op zombies thing that's been hanging around Call of Duty for years now, like a friend's own nice guy constantly thinking they must be one more bad-mouthed boyfriend away from getting some of that. Now, as you all know, not being into this whole human society thing, I'm not big on online multiplayer and as such don't have much constructive criticism for how the game actually plays. When I joined public matches, I'd do a quick poll of the other players and ask them for one small change they'd suggest to balance the game, and Treyarch will be pleased to know that I now have about 85,000 suggestions for very simple changes, and they might also be interested to hear that they're all a bunch of cucks. However, there is one criticism I can make with complete confidence, and that's that the entire menu interface is complete dog shit. You wouldn't think this would be difficult, new game options quit, especially not when there's like a hundred guys working on it, but that's it, isn't it? Boiling an egg is easy, but if you've got a hundred guys in your kitchen trying to boil one egg, you won't achieve much beyond violating the fire code. You have to wade through screen after screen of shitty rectangles to do anything. I was trying to read all the dossiers for the ten characters because god knows I wasn't getting much context from playing as the fuckers, but I had to go three screens deep and back just to switch characters and the text fucks up in every way it is possible to fuck up a simple text box. There's more than enough space to display all the text at once but they put it in a tiny box anyway and auto-scroll it, and when it reaches the bottom if you're not finished reading, fuck you, back to the top. It's like trying to read the side of a truck as it rolls down a hill into a burning slurry pit, and I'm harping on it because it reflects the complacency and utter contempt for the audience with which this game thinks it can do nothing but present a box of scraps it ripped off better games and charge a hundred bucks. I suppose the question is would you prefer to plan a day out to do one specific thing, like scuba diving or seal clubbing, or go to Disneyland and do four or five shallow imitations of interesting things, all with this constant nagging sense that someone's trying to steal all your money and children? Ah, this is one of those moments that make it all worth it, viewer, one of the three basic pleasures of life, the first wank on a delicate spring morning, finally killing the last witness, and playing a new game that I actually like. Not just like, one that took me completely by surprise and genuinely excited me with an originality and freshness that has long since faded from spring morning wanks. I bought Return of the Oprah Din on Steam while casting a broad net for indie games to review, and because it looked nautical themed and I've recently been rereading my Horatio Hornblower books, so imagine my delight to see on the title screen that it was developed by Lucas Pope, the dude who made Papers, Please. Just goes to show that having a proven auteur creative in charge, with the balls to stick his name on the front, is still a far more effective marketing tactic than just, say, a picture of a dirty man holding a gun in an irresponsible manner. Imagine my further delight when the game completely drew me in like a lonely sarlacc. Lucas Pope seems to have a talent for coming up with unconventional new core gameplay loops that turn a cold, bureaucratic process like filling out paperwork into something surprisingly engaging, and then underhandedly tells an interesting story through that loop without interrupting it. First I should say that Return of the Obra Dinn isn't for everyone. Wow, that's a fucking useless sentence, isn't it? Nothing's for everyone, except maybe Oxygen and Pixar films, but speaking personally, Return of the Obra Dinn almost felt like a game that was specifically made for me, as someone who likes crossword puzzles, Horatio Hornblower books, and people being killed. The premise is, you are an insurance investigator, whoa, slow the fuck down Lucas Pope, this roller coaster's off to a hot start, and you come aboard a hitherto thought lost ship that drifted into English waters with its entire crew apparently suffering from a bad case of not there. After determining to your satisfaction that they aren't all waiting below decks preparing a surprise party, you acquire a sketch of each crew member and a list of names, and your task is simply to assign the correct name to each sketch as well as how they died. And the only tool you have to hand is a magic pocket watch that allows you to relive the last few seconds of a dead person's life and enter and walk around the precise moment in which they expired. Yeah, I guess that is a pretty big only. I mentioned in the unavowed review that I appreciate a game that makes me feel clever because god knows precious little does since the stroke, and that's exactly what Oberdin does, for you see most people when seconds from death aren't courteous enough to say things like, oh no, I, third officer Eric Braithwaite, am soon to die, but at least I'm in the company of my friends Bob and Hercules, cough cough splatter splatter. Most of the crew will have to be identified through keen deduction from scraps of clues and processes of elimination, and that's where I felt clever. It was thanks to having read Horatio Hornblower books that I was able to recognise a midshipman when I saw one. A degree of general knowledge is required to identify people's national 
nationalities or what a top man does as opposed to a seaman. If it helps, top men are generally concerned with the rigging and what goes on above decks, whereas seamen is a white liquid that comes out of your penis when you think about Jenny Agatha too much. Often you just have to take an educated guess, like when you have to decide which of the two female passengers looks the most virginal. The game confirms your correctly deduced profiles in groups of three, which strikes probably the ideal balance between allowing for some guesswork and not letting you cheese everything by plugging in one name after another like you're reading off the school register. Having said that, you're probably gonna have to cheese it when it comes to the four identical Chinese top men. I have it on good authority that there is some method of telling them apart, but whatever it is, I doubt it's easier than randomly swapping their names around until you get a hit, like you're fussing over seating arrangements with a very indecisive bride. And through the process of filling out the death certificates, we gradually piece together the story of what happened to the ship. It's a fairly incomplete story since there wasn't someone dying at every single moment. I know, how inconsiderate of the doomed fuckers. So don't expect to be held by the hand through it, but what I could glean from suggestion and the occasional massive, angry, pretentacled overstatement certainly made me intrigued enough to want to keep pushing through and learning more. Now, I have a soft spot for the solo author indie developer. It's exactly what I'd be doing if I didn't have all these reviews to make and novels to write and crime scenes to scrub. And obviously a solo developer has a lot of limitations. Don't expect a high definition rendering of an 18th century sailing ship with environment mapping on every splinter-filled todger. But Lucas Pope embraces those limitations. How convenient that the format of exploring single frozen moments in time means that he didn't have to do any character animation. A full 3D game by one guy is obviously going to look like sautéed buttock, so why not push it to a point of maximum buttock and somehow come back around to looking good? And that's why all the graphics are rendered using only pixels of two colours, like an antique monitor. You might find it a bit harsh on the old eye if you're not a fan of dithering, but try to think of it as part of the challenge, trying to discern faces and firing lines through an indistinct haze of poorly pigmented pixel pillockry. I find the combination of a historical setting and retro PC graphics conjures a nostalgic memory of playing shit like Oregon Trail on the school computer, where you were supposed to be learning something but were just naming party members after that one smelly girl in class and laughing when she caught dysentery. I do have complaints. I kinda completely despise the music. Yeah, I know, solo developed, don't expect the Tokyo Philharmonic, but that doesn't excuse the way it loudly and repetitively blops away while you're trying to think. And of course, there's no separate volume controls. Relatedly, I also don't like how the game forces us to wander around each memory, getting unskippably blopped at for a minute before the event gets officially unlocked and we can start taking notes. It's weird that the music's so annoying when the rest of the sound design is fucking top-notch. Voice acting, ambient sound, and especially the little radio plays that accompany the death flashbacks. I couldn't say for sure if it accurately reproduces the sound of a bloke getting torn in half by a giant calamari platter, but it certainly made me cross my legs uncomfortably. If I have sold you on Return of the Cobra Commander, then consider this advice before you play. Try to fucking savour it. Like, play it for just one hour a night or something, because after I finished it, I felt the sudden melancholic realisation that I could only experience it for the first time once. Tragically, the nature of the deductive gameplay means it has virtually no replay value, but fuck it, why give up so easily? You can achieve some wonderful things with head injuries, as my nursery school teacher used to say. So I think we should call these last two weeks something, something like games by auto developers whose titles I had to double check to make sure I'd written them down properly, Fortnite. Or perhaps we could just call it Not Finished with Red Dead Redemption 2 yet week. But I was interested to play Deep Breath, The Missing JJ Macfield in the Island of Memories, because it was a new game by Swery, he of Deadly Premonition and latterly of D4 Dark Dreams Don't Die. Yeah, you remember that, that episodic game with Kinect controls and the cat that was a sexy woman. Although I'm not sure we can technically call it episodic, because the prerequisite for an episodic game is that it has to have some fucking episodes come out. Guess it did turn out pretty over-optimistic to call it Season 1, eh, Swery? Still, lessons learned, so this time Swery's decided to make an indie 2D platformer. Blimey, not so much scaling back as completely descaling, gutting, and selling to a fishmonger. JJ Macfield and the Island of Dr. Moreau is Swery's take on the genre of arty 2D scary world keep moving right until we tell you to stop indie platform games as epitomised by the likes of Limbo and Inside, except instead of a small child with a big head, you're a schoolgirl with a stupid hairdo. Because it's a Japanese developer, I guess. Japan has this weird thing, named Swery, sorry, I couldn't resist. Japan has this weird thing where every imaginable theme and genre of fiction has to be explored through the medium of schoolgirl. Horror, comedy, giant robots, porn, detective drama, bullet hell shooter, porn again, you name it, Japan's got a schoolgirl version. I can't think of any equivalent for this in any other country. It'd be like if every kind of game or TV show made in Canada had a version 
with Mounties in it. But I know what you're thinking, interested viewer. Japanese schoolgirls, arty keep moving right platformer, this all sounds rather by the numbers, and not at all like the imagination that brought us sexy lady who is a cat. Well, don't worry, JJ Macfield and the Chamber of Secrets certainly has Swery's unique blend of warped Americana, inconsistent emotional tone, and sudden hideous violence. At the beginning of the game, the main character is struck by lightning and dies, and then under the supervision of a moose in a lab coat, must slowly and painfully regenerate with a noise like my dad eating lobster before descending into a fit of sobbing as the title appears and an upbeat love ballad plays. Sorry I doubted you, Swery, you fucking lunatic. But let's contextualise this as best we fucking can. The protagonist got struck by lightning while searching for her missing girlfriend, who she went camping with on the titular island, and after acquiring unexplained regeneration powers must continue making progress rightwards largely by inflicting a series of horrifically traumatic injuries upon her nubile, characteristically undernourished Japanese schoolgirl body. Remember that game Never Dead? No, not surprised you don't. Came and went like a dose of the squirts, that one. It was that action shooter about an immortal bloke who could lose all his limbs and his torso and keep fighting. I remember saying at the time that the concept didn't work very well in an action game, because however unmoved a person might be by the loss of all their arms and legs, it's only making it exponentially harder to turn the situation around. But it might work with something puzzly, or explorative, doing the Samus Aran morph ball trick but with severed heads. JJ Macfield and the Nibble Nobble Noo Noo is basically what I meant. You put yourself into states known only to the furtive night terrors of air crash investigators to access specific areas and solve puzzles. So as well as flinging body parts onto things for justifiable reasons, probably, there are puzzles where JJ needs to transfer fire to something, so of course she sets herself alight. She's in a forest full of dry twigs, but hey, if you've got regeneration powers, it's like when you buy a really expensive pizza cutter but you don't eat pizza that often so you start using it on sandwiches. Also, you can subject her to particularly hideous spine-mangling injuries to make the world turn upside down. Now, it's not that that doesn't make 100% perfect sense, nor the constant bone-splintering sound effects like she's trying to talk through a mouthful of dice, it's that these basic processes are always drawn out so long that the game moves at a very sluggish pace. You've got to mangle and unmangle yourself over and over again for the puzzles, and unmangling always takes about half an hour of extreme self-chiropractic, and when you are mangled you can only move at a snail's pace, falling over every two steps and banging your head on the floor, which was only funny the first 19 or 20 times. But don't take my word for the game being too slow, because after you finish the game you unlock double speed mode, which means that it was considered a reward. Ooh, you were this close to a revelation there, weren't you, Swery? My game's more fun when you play it at double speed. It'll have to be a super special bonus unlock then. The puzzles are straightforward enough. There was one in a bowling alley that I didn't like much because it used somewhat arbitrary logic that didn't even involve maiming myself. But let's stop picking at the sprouts and jam our fork right down the middle of this beef, Wellington. JJ Macfield and the Hendersons is an arty game, and there's a tendency in video game discussion, I think, for the conversation to abruptly end at that point. Oh, this game's a bit surreal and inscrutable, that's because it's an arty game. Oh, well, that explains it. But isn't art supposed to be about conveying a specific idea or message? The message of JJ Macfield and the thing on the doorstep feels confused. Swery lays some cards on the table right at the start with a little opening text saying something like, no one should feel bad for being who they are. I'm Swery and I'm one of the good ones. And that, plus the fact we're searching for our girlfriend, makes me think it's a metaphor for coming to terms with your sexuality. But in that case, what's all the tearing all your arms and legs off business about? Is that a metaphor for scissoring during that time of the m That was the new worst thing I've ever written. Maybe it's not so much the injuries as the regeneration that's the point. Oh sure, love feels painful now while you're young, but soon you'll realise how superficial it all was after you grow up and become dead inside like the rest of us. But what does the stabby chase monster represent? Societal disapproval? Self-loathing? How much we hate waiting for a hairdresser appointment? Probably the second one, because in one of Swery's trademark massively inappropriate lurching shifts of tone, we also bring in teen suicide, and then at the very end something happens that makes me think, and here I'm going to spoil something so if you don't want to hear it, mute the video or cover your ears, quick, quick, here it comes! It might have been about transgenderism all along. I think the presentation confuses the message somewhat, turns into a sort of Rorschach test of an arty game, where he approaches the themes the same way he approaches Americana, as an outsider with a possibly overly romantic view of the subject. Well, I don't know much about Swery personally. I'm assuming he's not a suicidal teenage lesbian. Maybe he identifies as one yards, don't be oppressive. How dare you oppress me? I identify as someone who isn't oppressive. Well, I managed to get through the story of Red Dead Redemption 2, and I have to say I'm quite shook. Possibly the emotional impact, more likely from delirium tremens. Didn't have a single moment to myself.
myself. Saturday afternoon I was like, oh boy, I've finally reached the epilogue, maybe I'll actually have Sunday free to relax on. Eight hours of additional story later, fuck me, my definitions are out of date. I had no idea that epilogue now means entire second game. Rockstar Games used to reliably put out at least one game a year, but Red Dead Redemption 2, or more accurately Red Dead Revolver 3, or more accurately Grand Theft Auto with Angry Cowboys 2, or more accurately the game where the horse does plop plops, is the first game they've brought out since 2013. Oh dear, Rockstar, did GTA Online's little spine finally break and now you can't wring any more cash out of it? Or more likely, were you sitting atop your giant pile of money one day and thought to yourself, maybe we should spend some of this money on something, because I'm starting to suffer the effects of oxygen deprivation. The result is about what you'd expect, although I'd have expected the horse to be pooing diamonds for how fucking indulgent this game is. Alright Rockstar, I know your sandbox games tend to have somewhat sprawling plots, but just give us a quick summary of RDR2 and don't be too confusing. Well, RDR2 takes place before RDR1. Oh, you fucked it up already, Rockstar. Two doesn't come before one. Always had a blind spot for numbers, haven't you? That's probably why the ninth GTA game was titled GTA 4. So while the first Hardy Ha was set in the last days of the Old West, Hardy Ha Who is set in the last but one days of the Old West when the gang of idealistic outlaw Dutch van der Linde is seeking a place to hide out after a botched robbery. In fact, this is the plot of basically every chapter in the game. Dutch plans a robbery, the robbery fucks up, we move hideouts to the next relevant area of the map, new chapter. We play as Dutch's number two, a cowboy so generic that when the game started it took about ten minutes of dialogue heavy riding through the snow for me to figure out which of the several generic cowboys with speaking parts was the one I was controlling. And our protagonist's personal arc consists of gradually realising that Dutch doesn't have a plan and might just be a complete arsehead. Something the audience figured out the first time they saw his soul patch. I must say, it's nice to be playing a sandbox that isn't by Ubisoft, especially because Rockstar sandboxes are always less focused on mechanics and numbers and more on story. There's very little in the way of RPG elements or ability upgrades. In stark contrast to Assassin's Creed Flawdacy, where I was switching to new better weapons and armour every three seconds like a teenage boy going through Kleenexes, I got through the latter 40 hours of RDR2 using the same Lancaster repeater to the point that I was wondering if the ejection port was wide enough that our marriage could finally be consummated. Which means the game runs into the same problem that RDR1 had in that none of the side activities or missions offer much benefit besides money and there's not much to spend that money on, besides haircuts and apples for your horse, which help keep your horse's stamina and health up and when your horse goes plop plops you can congratulate yourself on having made a contribution. You can also buy food and supplies for yourself to appease the mild survival elements but you can just as easily pick them up lying around everywhere for free. Or hunt rabbits. And by hunt I mean fail to notice getting crushed beneath your charging hooves like a lost toddler on Black Friday. Allow me to quickly throw a little speed trap in front of the pedants stampeding this way. Yes, you can buy upgrades for your gang's camp, which have the vital effect of scattering more tinned peaches around or improving the communal stew, none of which have much profound impact on moment-to-moment -moment gameplay with the glaring exception of the fast travel map. I would advise saving up to unlock the fast travel map as soon as possible and then blowing all your money on hats, because as beautifully realised as the world and its characters are, most of what you actually do is go on very long horsey rides and then get into a token shootout that the NPCs who brought you here Pinky promised wouldn't happen this time, but which we all knew damn well had to happen because it wouldn't be a game otherwise. Rockstar sandboxes are somewhat formulaic. You're always a cynical mercenary type who regards everyone he meets with open contempt but always does what they ask him to do anyway, and every single story mission plays like a tutorial for a gameplay mechanic you're never going to use again. The writing's usually what saves it. Dutch's gang consists of about 20 distinct and diverse characters, all of whom you can organically converse with and get to know as at the back of your mind you wonder when and how all the ones who didn't appear in RDR1 will inevitably die. Dutch's gang being so well realised contrasts glaringly against every other gang, family, police force and boy scout group in the world consisting of a seemingly inexhaustible supply of generic thugs for token combat's sake. But this is where a sort of pure role-playing element comes into things. When the gang decide to have a celebratory piss-up, will you role-play as someone who mingles at social functions, joining in with the singing and getting rat-arsed, or as the kind of person who goes to bed at nine and bangs on the wall for the rest to keep it down? Either way, you will always be role-playing as someone who has lost all sensation in their arms and legs and can't even walk up to a dog without accidentally kicking it in the head because Rockstar's engine still prioritises realistic physics and momentum above our being able to effectively move around. What they set out to do with RDR2 was create an immersive world where you can just roam, discover and let things happen to you. Shame that that goes completely out the window the instant you start any mission, during which you're constantly yelled at by NPCs until you follow a rigidly determined sequence of events, with
with all side activity and random encounters gagged and locked in the car boot so the aforesaid NPCs can drone on about bullshit for the whole ride. It's not forcing you to enter missions, but you can only drink in the scenery in Hogtie Suffragettes for so long. Frankly, RDR2's realistic world only impresses me the same way I'd be impressed if you drank a litre of cooking oil, more so by the effort than the wisdom behind it. Because so little of what you see and do in RDR2 is actually fulfilling on a story or challenge level. The horse going plop plops sums it all up nicely. I can't envision a scenario in which a lack of horse plops would knock a half star off an otherwise perfect score, but there it is. A drop in an ocean of pointless decadence, and this isn't one line of code, horse underscore plop plops equals one. Someone had to texture and animate it and trawl sound effect libraries for the ideal plop plop sound, and they could have been using that time to cradle their children or make something creatively fulfilling like Obra Din. The fact that someone had to do it for their job makes me think of a restaurant manager loudly humiliating a waiter because he thinks it'll impress the customer. Well it doesn't, Mr Rockstar, and now I'm going to have to be very cautious about ordering the meatballs. Call of Cthulhu is a game based upon the works of H.P. Lovecraft, America's favourite racist. And alongside the large numbers of horror games inspired by the Cthulhu mythos over the years, Call of Cthulhu can certainly claim the lofty title of another one. Come on, Yahtzee, be nice in the opening spiel, you've got six whole paragraphs to dump asparagus year in on the game. Well, you certainly can't deny that it's an extremely dedicated adaptation, as in they set out to make a Cthulhu game, but when it came to deciding which specific story or aspect of the Cthulhu mythos to adapt, someone got a bit overexcited and said, let's do all of it, like at once, can we do that? And so an attempt was made to see how many of the cliches of Lovecraftian storytelling we can squeeze into one small game before its delicate little rectum bursts. Even a few that Call of Cthulhu Dark Quarters of the Earth didn't already do. So with all that in mind, how could the main protagonist not be a grizzled private detective with a drinking problem and a dark past in early 20th century New England? And how could they not get called out on a routine investigation to a highly suspect isolated community with a permanent green filter over it like the whole island's been dipped in snot? But to say that protagonist Edward Pierce is basically the main dude from Dark Corners of the Earth would be to miss out on the opportunity to say that he's basically the main dude from Vampire. Quite eerily so, actually. Same face, same beard, same voice, the only real difference is the specific nature of their drinking problem. Wait a second, same fucking voice actor? Talk about typecasting. I checked and the games are by different developers, although they are both French and therefore probably incestuous. Call of Cthulhu is by Cyanide Studio, who are best known for Cycling Manager, Cycling Manager 2, Space Marine Deathwing and Cycling Manager 3. Not exactly big time award winner types unless there's an award for world's most basically competent mid-range developer. But anyway, Edward Pierce is hired by Rich Uncle Pennybags to investigate the suspicious death of his daughter, an artist whose paintings have a slightly alarming habit of making people go Toblerones in the eye sockets mental. Also, she'd been living in a remote fishing community that seems to be muddling on suspiciously well for there not being that much fish around, and all the locals treat you like a black person in an affluent midwestern suburb because you haven't got boggle eyes or smell faintly of death and sandwich tuna. So by now, your Cthulhu game bingo card should have more crosses than an infant graveyard in an anti-vaxxer community, but ironically Call of Cthulhu misses out on the free space by forgetting that the defining element of Lovecraftian horror is the fear of the unknown. And Call of Cthulhu just can't make things known fast enough. Sorry to keep bringing it up, but Dark Corners of the Earth shows how pacing is supposed to be done, at least in the bit before it turns into a crappy stealth shooter, when you can feel tension slowly escalating until you find yourself getting chased over a rooftop and stumbling upon a fish finger in a negligee. In Call of Cthulhu, meanwhile, Pierce is barely off the boat and getting the stamp on his Lovecraftian protagonist rewards card before he's stumbling on secret cultist lairs and getting thrown into the usual local franchise of Stock Horror Asylum, where they had to fire the cleaning staff to pay the electricity bill. I think the moment the game officially lost me was when a giant spindly monster climbed out of a painting for a surprise stealth section in full view with no subtlety or build-up and it might as well have been wearing a top hat, and it wasn't even much of a surprise, because ever since I'd entered the room, Pierce had switched from searching the cupboards I clicked on to wanting to hide inside them, which instantly informed me that either we were about to have a stealth section or Edward's social anxiety problems were kicking in. Which might as well bring us to the gameplay. Call of Cthulhu is on the surface an investigative game patterned with basic use key indoor inventory puzzles, accessorised with dialogue trees and light stealth. Very light stealth, actually. It struggled to leave a finger mark in a bowl of watery custard, run away from an alerted human guard and turn precisely one corner and they'll usually write you off as a mystical vanishing wizard and it's far more important that they investigate the mystery 
history of the nearby stain on the wallpaper. The spindly monster is a bit more dogged and can insta-kill you as soon as it catches up, but it's more irritating than scary. In fact, I don't remember feeling the least bit scared by any of Call of Cthulhu, which for a horror game is a big red cross and a see-mean note. The world of the game just didn't feel real enough for me to get sufficiently immersed. I found it slightly hilarious how Pierce has a special designated horror face, where his eyes are all boggly and his hair's mussed up, that he flips to like a fucking toggle switch every time something weird happens. But I'm with you, weird-faced version of Pierce. I do get the feeling there's something very wrong with this island. The main town appears to consist only of several empty wooden sheds and a pub, populated by about 15 copy-pastes of the same three guys. The story feels patchy, like bits of it are getting skipped over. You escape from McHorror Asylum, or rather the basement of McHorror Asylum, with still the top part of McHorror Asylum to worry about, I'd have thought, and the game goes, hooray, you escaped, and now you're back in the house you were in earlier that you've decided to use as a hideout and a bunch of other characters are there and are now your best friends. Sorry you missed all that, but you seemed really into that loading screen and we didn't want to interrupt. There's this gangland boss character who gets built up for the whole first half of the game as a major player that everyone's scared of, and they just fucking disappear without payoff before the end, and sit out the finale eating Twixes in the green room. See, I assumed the patchiness was because the game was going for branching paths and was swapping characters and events around based on my actions. There are heavily emphasized choices that do the Telltale Games thing, where it flashes up a bit of text saying things like, Yogg-Sothoth will remember you did that. Also, the RPG elements let you put points into things like eloquence and psychology to unlock new paths and dialogue choices, but as I discovered on my second playthrough, this was all theatre. The RPG elements and the sanity meter, whoops, another cross for the bingo card, are all a paper-thin veneer to make you think your path isn't completely predetermined. Most of the events that reduce sanity are mandatory, and even if you skip the few optional ones, Edward Pierce goes just as Banana Flapjack's nutty at precisely the same point in the story as before. In the end, the only thing your choices affect are what options are unlocked on the ending Tron 3000, and after going over the guide, what choices unlock what seems to be completely arbitrary. Say yes to character A, drink the whiskey in Act 4 and stick an olive up your nose to unlock ending 1, say no to character A, molest the baby harp seal and put on the kilt instead of the chastity belt to unlock ending 2. Pull your trousers down, select quit to desktop and open your preferred web browser to unlock slightly more fulfilling afternoon. Fallout 76 is a new Fallout game thoughtfully named after its projected average review score. That was the joke I was gonna go with, on the assumption that it would be the usual Bethesda fair, nice looking but bland and inexplicably popular like most American television presenters. But goodness gracious, Fallout 76 has taken a drubbing in the user reviews. The Metacritic page has produced more red circles than the average venereal infection. Don't tell me that those dastardly unpleasable fanboys who ruined Diablo Immortal's big day in the spotlight have struck again. How dare those horrible nerds make such spoiled entitled demands for reasonably priced franchise installments targeted at the people who made that franchise popular in the first place. It's just bull bullying, really, isn't it? If only these dissatisfied consumers with very little actual power and influence would stop bullying the poor, innocent, massively wealthy corporations and leave them in peace to hack out inferior garbage designed to siphon money from idiots and exploit what positive emotions remain unstrangled out of existence. Yeah, push that narrative, games industry. It worked for the Ghostbusters reboot. So what is it about Fallout 76 that's teabagging everybody's grandmas? Well, for one thing, it's angling rather blatantly for the open-world survival crafting thing that, strangely for such an ambitious concept, has always been more the territory of your smaller developers, your rusts and your arc survival evolves and your minecrafts, if you're of an arc archaeological bent. At least it was back when survival crafting was a hot trend. Fallout 76 is jumping on this bandwagon way too fucking late. The bandwagon pissed off months ago and is currently touring the south coast. But that's development times for you, and hey, never say die, you could always patch in a battle royale mode. But the reason lower budget developers were doing the survival crafting games is because such things don't really need anything except a world. No obligation for deep storytelling or complex gameplay, just a bunch of crafting rules and leave the players to find their own fun, building working computer processors with golden cocks coming out the top. Accordingly, Fallout 76 lets you loose on the map with a slap on the bum and a hearty get building those cocks, and remember to take lots of pictures for social media, you little word-of-mouth money-spinners, you. But sadly, Bethesda couldn't leave well enough alone, presumably because there were a lot of employees who had to look busy at least until they'd covered this month's mortgage payment, and Fallout 76 tries to be a Fallout RPG as well, ultimately satisfying no one but the Blandness Preservation Committee that doesn't exist. The story is, you were in a nuclear bunker and got let out to the post-apocalyptic wasteland, blah blah blah, but the bunker was entirely on the level, wasn't subjecting its residents to weird experiments, and the overseer seemed to be a perfectly reasonable human being. Which made me wonder if the story writer had ever fucking played a Fallout game before.
anymore. The game has no human NPCs, a fact that the marketing blurb is weirdly keen to point out. Hey, look at all this work we didn't do. The implication being that the human players create the content. Fair enough, but sadly it's a lie. There are NPCs. No humans, just robots and disembodied voices. But they still talk to you and give you quests, so the no human NPCs thing just feels like an arbitrary self-imposed restriction that doesn't do much more than make the game world feel empty. For the other players don't make their presence felt very much. If your browsing history is anything like mine, well first of all delete your history you sick bastard. And you've no doubt been seeing that live action Fallout 76 advert with tiresome frequency. It's been constantly popping up like a nervous orgy hostess that one. It depicts achingly diverse groups of players having communal wasteland fun times with the tone of an online dating advert, dishonestly depicting smartly dressed attractive people meeting in romantic locations with neither party trying to eat the other one's skin. Yeah, that wasn't representative of my experience, when at any time there'd be like ten players scattered across the entire map. I only interacted with someone once, when I was curious to know what was making the sound of a baby crying and a couple having an argument. It turns out that any slightest noise your mic picks up will be fucking broadcast over a 200 yard radius, so bear that in mind before you start jerking off to something on the other monitor, lest you attract hordes of players curious to know what's making a sound like a small dog enthusiastically eating pancakes. The deliberate emphasis on multiplayer means that the solo RPG experience has had a lot of the air let out of it, and the result plays like a version of Fallout 4 that was partially taped off of cable TV by a dodgy VCR. Combat is a repetitive affair, with limitless quantities of Fallout brand zombies whose AI just about permits them to move towards you and then slide back and forth like a frozen hot dog on the floor of a moving bus. Gamely, the developers attempt to adapt the VATS system to the new format, but as our nagging mothers ever persistently failed to understand, you can't pause a multiplayer game, so enemies can keep moving while you're choosing what to target. Rather than a chance to strategically plot your next few actions, the VATS is now a cheat system for people who can just about summon the effort to vaguely point at the enemy but can't be bothered to finish the job. Hey, I let other people work the fine details out, I'm the ideas gunman. As for the survival elements, such things hinge on resources being limited, and in accordance with my usual experience with Fallout games, the issue was not so much finding a steady supply of Wasteland Mars bars as it was finding room for them all in my Wasteland bum bag, alongside the free ammo that spurts from fallen enemies like apologies from a Canadian teenager after their first sexual encounter. So the people wanting a Fallout RPG will find a heavily watered down one with no strong plotline to keep it interesting, and the people wanting a multiplayer survival crafter will find a load of Fallout RPG stuff getting in the way, so once again a play for broad appeal ends up appealing to no one. And while my grousing about Cod Blobs 4 lacking single player was shaky when the story campaigns in such games always hang off the main drawer of multiplayer like a bunch of balloons tied to a donkey's hind legs, those expecting a strong plot and solo RPG experience from a Fallout game are on much firmer ground for complaint. People ask me if I worry about the future of the interactive arts in this era of AAA being a constant stream of soulless exploitative knockoffs, but I'm not worried because we've been here before. At the end of the 90s, games like Quake 3 and Unreal Tournament tried to convince us that we didn't really want artistic single player PC games when we could just pay to run on hamster wheels all day. And look what the 2000s brought us. Deus Ex, Thief 2, Bioshock, Portal, it's always a phase. In the long run the only eternal guarantor of success is a quality product well made, ideally with tits on the front. The money to be made from knocking off what's popular and exploiting the stupid always dries up eventually, if only because the stupids die out from daring each other to headbutt the ceiling fan. Reviewing Battlefield 5 hardly seems fair when I blew off Call of Duty World War 2. Going back to tired old World War 2 after having innovatively explored new settings in Modern Warfare and Black Ops was just pathetic, frankly, and Battlefield instantly following suit like a puppy starved of cuddles and bonios is new levels of pathetic. This is no one showed up to my Babylon 5 themed birthday party territory, so bollocks to it. I played Hitman 2 instead this week. Not the first Hitman 2, the other Hitman 2. Another series with a blind spot for numbers, which is particularly odd seeing as the main character is named after one. Agent 47, Baldy McBarcode, continues the story that began with Hitman 1. 
one, not the original Hitman one, the last one, in which he was in pursuit of an ideological killer and now discovers that continuing the pursuit will uncover hidden truths about his origins. Oh Christ, not again, Agent 47. How many times is this now? You've had more sinister hidden truths in your origins than the average supermarket sausage. It's probably not worth trying to get your head around what continuity may or may not exist in the Hitman series at this point. Personally, I stopped keeping track around the time of the rocket launcher bondage nuns. But even focusing just on the last two games, it's probably not worth getting invested in the plot because the developers certainly aren't. The plot is relegated to cheapest chips between mission slideshow cutscenes and only seems to exist to limply sandwich together the usual unconnected collection of elaborate open-ended NPC crowded missions set in glamorous international destinations. Which many would argue is all you need, but come on, maybe the pastry case only exists as a sausage delivery system, but it still wouldn't be a sausage roll without it. Games are always trying to skip to dessert too quickly. You've got to have the talky bits at the start of the Indiana Jones film to put the exciting action scenes into context. You can't just explain the plot in a fucking news ticker at the bottom of the screen. And just like its predecessor, Hitman 2 ends on an unsatisfying cliffhanger, with the massive financial risk inherent to AAA development these days. Promising a sequel once is like dangling your baby off a high-rise balcony, promising one twice is like doing the ironing with your free hand. After all that, Hitman 2 is rather disappointingly little more than an expansion pack for Hitman 1, so you might as well just watch the review of that if you want to hear about the gameplay. It's still the stealthy stealthy disguisey disguisey get them alone and next snappy snappy definitive Hitman experience. Still the poster boy of a cock-up cascade, where you might as well reload your last save the instant an NPC you couldn't possibly have known about comes in and catches you crouched over an unconscious waiter with your trousers around your ankles. Again, the game will come across as insultingly brief if you don't go along with the intended experience of replaying each mission over and over again to beat all the challenges like an OCD patient in a Rubik's Cube warehouse. Personally, I don't see the appeal of doing that just for the sake of ticking boxes. Kill target with gun, kill target with drowning, kill target with toilet duck, kill target with the hind legs of a cat. What I will say about Hitman 2 specifically is that I get a strong sense that the series is blatantly repeating itself. This feeling came on after I got to the mission titled Another Life, set in an American suburb, which for some reason reminded me of a mission from Hitman Blood Money set in an American suburb that was titled A New Life. How embarrassing for you, IO Interactive. Or it would be if being a AAA developer these days didn't mandate having your shame glands surgically removed, which explains why they're charging full price for an expansion pack and two slightly sucked gobstoppers. Let's talk about another game about assassins, although it's only a game about assassins in the sense that Back to the Future 3 is about engine maintenance. Killer 7, a classic PS2 GameCube era game recently re-released on Steam, and the game that put the weird into weirdo auteur developer Suda51. Killer 7, Suda51, it really is a numbers festival this week, isn't it? Next we'll watch 2001, and listen to the B-52s, and consume a very large number of drinks. Killer 7 is sort of a shooter puzzler adventure game choo-choo train simulator where you run back and forth along a fixed track shooting multicolored suicide bombers that resemble gritty vampiric versions of Morph from the Tony Hart show. You're an assassin who's actually seven assassins who's actually one assassin, different to the first assassin I mentioned, and you're caught in the middle of a complex global plot involving conspiracy, multiple political parties, and a bloke with an afro. To say the developer must have been on acid would be very lazy. You don't get much done on acid besides talk nonsense and stare at the carpet. You might have fun if you play the game on acid, but don't blame me if you end up trying to assassinate Jodie Foster or something. Killer 7 is one of those games that I love, but I'm not sure I'd recommend. Take the sort of usual baseline level of weirdness all Japanese games have, by virtue of being from a different culture that's been nuked more than the recommended healthy number of times, then add a sort of anarchic post-punk stream of consciousness where even the art style changes from chapter to chapter, and then cut the budget a few times so the developers have to drop every scene that explained what the fuck was going on. But even without understanding what the fuck was going on, there's still enough humanity in the main characters that you feel something for them by the end of their journey, especially the Mexican wrestler who headbutts bullets out of the air. What I felt for him was a strong desire to invite him to my next birthday party. It's a game you play for the surface spectacle more than the deeper meaning, which is just as well, because as a game it's kinda shitty. The challenge curve resembles a piece of spaghetti thrown carelessly at a wall, between the incredibly easy puzzles, standard enemies with wildly varying difficulty, and a bunch of obscure boss fight things where you're left in a room with a hostile gunman and a pool cue and a rubber duck and are just supposed to figure it out. The game does benefit from a PC port, it's all in lovely HD now, crisper than the autumn leaves in Paradise, California, and you can play the first person combat with mouse and keyboard, which I guess isn't a thing on Suda51's home planet because all the tutorials still assume you're using a controller, and you have to trial and error your way into figuring the keys out, and that on top of the game already being terribly
trouble at explaining certain mechanics means you'll be more confused than a blind dog in a small room full of assorted buttholes. And there are other things I wish they'd taken the opportunity to fix, like audio mixing. There's a scene in a burning room right before a boss fight where the boss is saying something and you'd assume anything a boss tells you in a burning room right before they die has got to be important. But you can't make out what the fuck she's saying over the ambient fire noises. Ah, maybe that's the point, Yard. Like that bit in Evangelion where they deliberately mute the dialogue just as Specky McCunflap says something important. Maybe it's intended as an analogy for modern times in which important information is drowned out by sensationalist media. Ugh, don't start down that rabbit hole. Maybe me kicking you in the bollocks is a metaphor for the neoconservative urban renewal policy. We return once again to THQ's ongoing reinterpretation of Judeo-Christian mythology as dramatised with poorly painted Warhammer 40k miniatures, centrally featuring the Horsemen of the Apocalypse, except with famine and pestilence dropped out in favour of two others that wouldn't look quite so off-putting on a box art, Fury and Strife. There apparently being no overlap between the remits of those two and war, presumably war in this universe is only ever waged very dispassionately for extremely sensible reasons, Fury is the sole daughter of Mr and Mrs Apocalypse and apparently the least predictable of the four horsemen. Why is that, Darksiders? Because she's really angry and violent all the time. Surely that makes her the most predictable of the four horsemen, Darksiders, or at least fully consistent with the previous two. Oh, I see, it's because she's the girl, isn't it? War and death and the other bugger can slap angels and demons around with surfboards on the ends of sticks and that's just boys being boys, but you pick on Fury for doing it because she's supposed to be making packed lunches and ironing everyone's pauldrons. One of the root causes of Fury being furious is how she thinks everyone underestimates her, but you know what might help that, Fury love, is not showing up to every battle in stiletto heels. After Darksiders 1 and 2, a lot of questions still remain surrounding the ongoing story, chief among them being how the fuck do you expect me to remember this plot? The first game was eight years ago, I can barely remember what I was doing last night, or why I woke up this morning in a half-empty vat of Frangelico. Darksiders 3 takes place after the first part of Darksiders 1, but before the rest of Darksiders 1, and either before or alongside Darksiders 2. Keep up, this isn't going to get easier. Fury is sent to walk the freshly fucked but not quite as fucked as it's eventually going to be Earth in order to track down the escaped personifications of the Seven Deadly Sins. I was hoping for some kind of twist along the lines of Fury spending half the game trying to track down Wrath, only to realise, hang on, that's me, isn't it? But no, as I said in my Darksiders 2 review, this series is essentially about bureaucracy, and the Celestial Administration apparently doesn't mind a little competitive redundancy in middle management. Wrath is characterised with staggering obviousness as a big angry violent bloke. Competition for the title must have been fucking stiff. Darksiders continues to reinvent itself from game to game. Well, reinvent the part that follows the but in the phrase, like God of War but. So Darksiders 1 was like God of War but Zelda, number 2 was like God of War but Diablo, and now number 3 is like God of War but Dark Souls. Not that we're chasing trends or anything. Fury explores an interconnected open world that expands as she takes down the sins, respawns at fixed infrequent checkpoints with her potions refilled when she dies, and can recover her souls from her previous bodies, but in keeping with established pattern, the Darksiders version of the games it emulates is always a brightly coloured hollow plastic Fisher Price version of it. Darksiders 3's combat, for example, isn't one iota as nuanced or interesting as Dark Souls is, is, is it? Mainly because Fury is stuck with one main weapon the whole game, her whip. Because of course the token lady has to have a whip, doesn't she? Can't have a sword. People might accuse her of having penis envy. The same way male characters are always accused of having vagina envy whenever they're depicted using padded envelopes or ordering the fish tacos. But Dark Souls' bellend has massaged my uvula a little too often over the years, and when reviewing Souls-esque games I do tend to mark them down for the ways they differ regardless of if the change works for them, and no, having one main weapon isn't really a problem if you're one of those unambitious types and your parents have gotten used to being disappointed in you, but the combat still feels iffy in a slightly hard to explain way. It's more Bayonetta than Dark Souls in that it's very dodge focused, and if you dodge just before a hit there's a little slowdown and you can seize the advantage. Fine so far. One of the tactics enemies might develop in such a game is to do a little pause or feint during the wind-up animation to make it harder to predict when the blow will land and throw off your rhythm. But that would be something to introduce some ways into the game, and I swear in Darksiders 3 every fucking enemy does it. Even the piddly little starting zombies swiping at you with broken twigs and half-eaten sausages, and if you've attracted more than one enemy, a loss of rhythm combined with a misbehaving camera with fiddly lock-on makes it annoyingly easy to get passed around like the last unruptured paedophile in the prison shower. Elsewhere in the mechanics, there's a recurring pattern of aping Dark Souls without fully understanding the nuances. Yes, the world is open-ended and has that Dark Souls quality where if you see something huge in the distance you can say, someday I'm going to go there, in your best 
fixed Mufasa from the Lion King voice and be correct, but you still take down the sins in fixed linear order and are led by the nose through the entire game by a slightly wonky compass that is supposed to point the way forward but apparently isn't terribly career motivated. Also, I already said Fury's supermarket owned brand Estes flasks refill after she dies and respawns at a checkpoint, but they don't refill if you merely stop at a checkpoint. So when you find the checkpoint after an arduous journey, you'd be well advised to find the nearby enemy and let them kill you so you can be back at full healing capacity before pressing on. And the legendary apocalyptic warrior Fury happily bending over so a standard ground link and practice broken twig gynaecology isn't terribly immersive. Well, it is for the broken twig, but not in the right way. Ow. Still, I find Fury to be the least boring and contemptible of the three Darksiders protagonists thus far, at least her character undergoes growth, so I'm told anyway. Could have sworn she didn't, she starts the game angrily mowing through gremlins and ends the game angrily mowing through gremlins, but near the end her support character says, Mistress, you've changed, and who am I to fucking argue with that? In truth, I can't bring myself to hate Darksiders 3, I don't love it, but it's harmless and doesn't outstay its welcome like Darksiders 2. As I say, it's a hollow plastic Fisher Price toy of a game, so if I kick it apart it's going to ruin someone's Christmas morning. That said, something about the plot bothers me. There's this bit in the intro where Fury's checking in on an imprisoned war, and they say he's been put in the timeout chair for breaking the seventh seal without approval from upper management, and something about that niggled me in the back of my mind, so I looked up the plot summary for Darksiders 1 and my suspicion was confirmed. War didn't break the seventh seal. If anything, he was being punished for not breaking it before setting off for the apocalypse. He breaks it at the end of Darksiders 1, but that takes place long after this. Yeah, so commiserations if you are trying to follow the ongoing story of Darksiders, cause the fucking writers aren't!